This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents Red Platoon, A True Story of American Valor by Clinton Romache. Read for you by Will Dameron. With the introduction, epilogue, notes section, and acknowledgments read by the author. Please stay tuned at the end of this recording for the original songs Red Platoon and Remember the Fallen. To my fallen comrades and their families, and to all the soldiers of 361 who served with us in Afghanistan. Of comfort no man speak. Let's talk of graves, of worms, and epitaphs. Shakespeare, Richard II. First Platoon, Bravo Troop 361 Cavalry, 4th Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry Division, Alpha Section, 1st Lieutenant Andrew Bunderman, Staff Sergeant Clinton Romache, Sergeant Joshua Hart, Sergeant Bradley Larson, Specialist Nicholas Davidson, Specialist Justin Gregory, Specialist Zachary Coppus, Specialist Timothy Kugler, Private First Class Josh Danley, Bravo Section, Sergeant First Class Frank Guerrero, Staff Sergeant James Stanley, Sergeant Justin Gallegos, Sergeant Joshua Kirk, Specialist Kyle Knight, Specialist Stephen Mace, Specialist Thomas Rasmussen, Specialist Ryan Wilson, Private First Class Christopher Jones, Attachments, Sergeant Armando Avalos, Jr., Forward Observer, Specialist Alan Kucher, Medic, Black Knight Troop, Cop Keating, Headquarters Platoon, Captain Stoney Portis, First Sergeant Ron Burton, Red Platoon, First Lieutenant Andrew Munderman, Sergeant First Class Frank Guerrero, White Platoon, First Lieutenant Jordan Bellamy, Sergeant First Class Jeff Jacobs, Blue Platoon, First Lieutenant Ben Salentine, Sergeant First Class Jonathan Hill, International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, Afghanistan, May through October 2009, Bagram Airfield, Cabal, General Stanley McChrystal, Commander, ISAF. General David McKernan, Commander, ISAF. Fob Fenty, Jalalabad Airfield, Nangahar, Providence. Colonel Randy George, Commander, 4th Brigade Combat Team. Fob Bostic, Kunar, Providence. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Brown. Squadron Commander, 361 Cavalry. Cop Keating, Nuristan, Province. Captain Melvin Porter, Commander, Outgoing, Black Knight Troop. Captain Stoney Portis, Commander, Incoming, Black Knight Troop. Lieutenant Robert Hull, Executive Officer, Black Knight Troop. Introduction. It doesn't get better.
0545 AM, Red Platoon Barracks, Combat Outpost Keating, Nuristan Province, Afghanistan. Zach Kopis lay in his bunk, half awake with an ear tuned to the radio in the next hooch, a few feet down the hallway. In the pre-dawn darkness, he was anticipating the call, the deeply unwelcome summons that usually arrived just a few minutes before he was slated to pull early morning guard duty. Sure enough, like clockwork, there it was. Hey, um, could somebody tell my relief to get on out here? Came the static charge voice over the combat network. I really need to take a shit. Copus sighed. Every morning, it was the same deal. Josh Hart, one of Red Platoon's four team leaders, and therefore a man who outranked Copus by a full grade and nearly five years of service, could never quite make it to the end of his early morning shift without needing to ease his volcanic surge in his bowels. Hence the request, which was really more of an order for whoever was relieving him to get up early and hoof it out to the armored Humvee known as LRAS-1 on the eastern side of the outpost so Hart could make a dash for the latrines, which lay a hundred yards to the west. Somehow, it seemed to Copus, it was invariably him and never anyone else who was on the receiving end of that call. But as he reminded himself when he levered out of his bunk and threw on his kit, this day was different for a number of important reasons, one of which was lying right there on the bed beside him. When he finished with his gear, he reached over and grabbed the newly arrived magazine that he was planning to read in the turret of the Humvee, rolled it up as tight as possible, and prepared to shove the thing into the place where no one would spot it. Needless to say, a dude couldn't just cruise out to the guard post swinging a magazine in his fist. That was the kind of infraction that would win you a full-on ass-chewing from our first sergeant, Ron Burton, who was a raging stickler when it came to even the smallest rules. But Copus had a little hidey hole, which he called his go-to zone, in his body armor the ceramic plates we wore to protect our necks and torsos. We hated those plates for their weight and how hot they were, even though they had a couple of advantages, the chief one being their ability to prevent an AK-47 bullet from turning the contents of your chest into wet dog food. But in addition to that, right there in the front of the armor was a small pocket of dead space into which, Copus had discovered, you could stuff a magazine to see you through the end of your guard duty shift. This system had worked well enough that during our five months in country, Copus had taken to semi-regularly bringing old playboys with him when he went out to the Humvee. His buddy, Chris Jones, had a respectable stash that his older brother had been sending him in care packages. They featured women like Carmen Electra and Bo Derek and Madonna, which Jones and some of the other lower-ranking enlisted guys, after much discussion, had agreed offered up some compelling evidence that centerfold chicks from the distant era of the 1980s, were actually kind of hot. On the morning of October 3rd, though, Copus had something even better than vintage softcore porn riding under his armor. The previous afternoon, one of the Chinooks had made a supply drop-off, and by some miracle, we had actually gotten our mail, including what was an almost current issue of Sports Pro with Peyton Manning on the cover, which offered comprehensive rundowns of the top 100 NFL players for the 2009 fall season. True, we were nearly 7,000 miles from the nearest sports bar, 
and yes, would be stuck here long past the end of the playoffs in the Super Bowl. But Copas knew, like the rest of us did, that when he was finally allowed to go home, he might be making that trip inside a metal coffin draped with an American flag. So the prospect of paging through the players' stats and team rankings, and thereby permitting his mind to travel far beyond the black walls of the Hindu Kush, which framed our world and restricted our movement, and offered a perfect vantage for our enemies to smoke us. The mere idea of making an imaginary trip like that, no matter how brief, was enough to put him in an exceptionally positive frame of mind. Which is why he jammed the magazine inside the vest and trundled out to the Humvee. A journey no more than 50 steps. Copas muttered a phrase that we all like to invoke in such moments. A mantra whose succinctness and sagacity summed up the many double-bladed paradoxes that dominated the thoughts of every American soldier who found himself stuck inside the most remote, precarious, and tactically screwed combat outpost in all of Afghanistan. It doesn't get better. Up in the rafters of our platoon's plywood barracks, just three cubicles down from Copas's bunk, there was a plank on which one of the previous tenants... A soldier who was part of the unit that had been deployed here before we arrived had scrawled a little message to himself, a reminder how life worked in Afghanistan. Me and the rest of the guys in red liked what was written on the board so much, by the end of our first week on station, we had adopted the thing as our informal motto. It epitomized precisely how we felt about having been shoved up the wrong end of a country so absurdly remote so rabidly inhospitable to our presence, that some of the generals and politicians who were responsible for having stuck us there were referring to the place as the dark side of the moon. Those words were so cogent that whenever something went off the rails, whenever we learned, say, that we were heading into yet another week without any hot chow because the generator had taken another RPG hit, or that last month's stateside mail still hadn't been delivered because the Chinook pilots were refusing to risk enemy's guns for anything but the most critical supplies. Whenever news arrived of the latest thing to go wrong, would give one another a little half-joking smile, cock an eyebrow and repeat, it doesn't get better. To us, that phrase nailed one of the essential truths, maybe even the essential truth, about being stuck at an outpost whose strategic and tactical vulnerabilities were so glaringly obvious to every soldier who had set foot on the place that the name itself, Keating, had become a kind of backhanded joke. A byword for the Army's peculiar flair for stacking the odds against itself in a way that was almost guaranteed to blow up in some spectacular fashion and then refusing to walk away from the table. We took Keating's flaws in stride, of course, because as soldiers, we had no business asking questions so far above our pay grade, much less harboring opinions about the bigger picture, why we were there, and what we were supposed to be accomplishing. Our main job had a stark and binary simplicity to it. Keep one another alive, and keep the enemy on the other side of the wire. But every now and then, one of my guys would find himself unable to resist the urge to ponder the larger mission and to ask what in God's name the point was of holding down a firebase that so flagrantly violated the most basic and timeless principles of warfare. 
Typically enough, the sharpest and most defiant response to those quarries would come from Josh Kirk, one of the other sergeants and probably the biggest badass in the entire platoon. Kirk had grown up in a remote homestead in rural Idaho, not far from Ruby Ridge. And he never backed down from any kind of confrontation, no matter how big or how small it might be. You want to know why we're here? He'd ask us one evening as he was peeling back the plastic wrapping on his chow ration, a veggie omelet MRE, which was everyone's least favorite item on the menu because it looked like a brick fashioned from compressed vomit. Our mission at Keating, he'd declare, is to turn these MREs into shit. The real beauty of It Doesn't Get Better, however, was that it had a two-sided quality that enabled it to work like a coin. On its face, the phrase not only expressed but somehow managed to celebrate what Kirk was getting at, which was that Keating's awfulness was both magnified and underscored by its pointlessness and futility, and that to a man who was prepared to adopt the necessary frame of mind, being stuck in such a place could instill a perverse but ferocious kind of pride. On the other hand, if you took that phrase and flipped it around in your mind, you'd see that it could mean something completely different, and that this new meaning hinged on the fierce sense of purpose that young men sometimes embraced, especially young men who are permitted to carry extremely heavy weaponry when they find themselves drop-kicked into a situation that is totally and incurably fucked up. The main reason why life wouldn't get any better at Keating, of course, was that it was so irremediably impossible to begin with. But in one of those odd little twists, the kind of irony that only a group of guys who pulled time in a frontline infantry unit can truly appreciate, we were convinced that we would all look back on our tour there, assuming we managed to survive the damn thing, as one of the most memorable times of our lives. It stood as a point of considerable irritation that among my guys in Red Platoon, First Sergeant Burton, the highest-ranking enlisted man in our troop at Keating, wasn't willing to try and wrap his head around any of this. Burton, who was a big admirer of formal military protocols that tend to work in a stateside garrison but made absolutely no sense in a free-fire zone, decided that our little slogan was an expression of poor morale. So whenever he heard one of us repeating those words, he'd make a point of going up to that guy and telling him to shut the hell up. What Burton never understood, however, was that it was categorically impossible to lay down a decree like that in a place like Keating. By the end of the first week on station, the outpost had already implanted it doesn't get better deep within us. Down in the dark, fertile layers of the mind where words take root and then sprout into conviction and belief. Weeding it out of us would have been like trying to weed out the Taliban from the slopes and ridgelines that ringed every side of the outpost. And that would have been like trying to yank up every thorn bush and poisonous little flower that had anchored itself into the flanks of the Hindu Kush. As far as we were concerned, Keating not only wouldn't get better, it couldn't get better, because we were already doing our damnedest to make it, by sheer force of will, into the best thing going. That was something we all grooved on, 
And a good example of how it worked was exactly what Copas was doing as he strolled out to the gun truck with his magazine to relieve Hart. The armored Humvee where Copas was headed was one of five such vehicles positioned along the perimeter of our outpost that served as part of our primary defense. It featured a steel turret mounted directly above the cab that was armed with a Mark 19, which is basically a machine gun that shoots 40 millimeter grenades instead of bullets. When fully engaged, the gun is capable of pumping out almost 300 rounds per minute, an astonishing level of firepower. In less than three minutes, a Mark 19 is supposed to be capable of reducing a two-story building to a pile of rubble. Copas had never actually witnessed such a thing with his own eyes. But that little factoid afforded a certain measure of comfort each time he clambered into the Humvee and was forced to ponder the truck's many glaring vulnerabilities, starting with the fact that when he hunkered down behind the Mark 19, his legs, arms, and torso were shielded. But his head and shoulders were totally exposed. Equally disconcerting, the turret rotated along an arc of only 110 degrees which made it impossible for him to return fire at anyone who was trying to shoot him in the back. Like almost everything else at Keating, this was decidedly not ideal, which was why we'd been planning to replace the gun truck with a properly reinforced guard tower. But those plans had recently been put on hold when we'd been told to prepare to dismantle the outpost, pack it up, and get the hell out of this part of Nuristan. That operation was actually scheduled to start within 72 hours although most of the lower enlisted guys at Copas's level hadn't been told about this yet. By the time Copas reached the side of the truck, Hart had already climbed down from the turret with the aim of getting over to the latrines as quickly as possible. He paused just long enough to update Copas on the latest intel. According to the small network of Afghan informants who were supposed to keep Keating's officers abreast of any developments in the surrounding areas, a group of Taliban had been mustering in the village of Ramol, a tiny hamlet that lay less than a hundred yards to the west of the outpost on the far side of the Darye Kushtes River. This hardly qualified as news. Since our arrival four months earlier, it seemed as if we were receiving a warning along these lines every three or four days. Each time, the pattern was the same. The report would state that 50 or 75 enemy fighters were massing for a major attack. But when the attack finally arrived, it would turn out to involve four or five insurgents, or even more frequently, just one or two gunmen. Eventually, we'd started taking these warnings with a grain of salt. Which is not to say that we didn't expect to get nailed. Throughout the summer and into the fall, we'd been getting hit, on average, at least four times a week. But for the men on guard duty... Word of a massive, impending assault was no longer capable of setting off alarm bells. And so when Hart passed along the report, Copas simply nodded and settled himself into the turret while concentrating on more immediate matters. For a soldier of Copas's rank and stature, the pleasures afforded by life at Keating were few and far between. So it was vital to savor any diversion, regardless of how small it might be. The new issue of Sports Pro certainly qualified as one of those. Indeed, the magazine all by itself would have been more than enough to make Copas's entire morning. But there was an added bonus, because today was Saturday, 
which meant that every one of the 50 American soldiers at Keating was scheduled to get not one, but two hot meals, an event whose importance was almost impossible to overstate. Ever since we first arrived at the outpost, we'd been receiving about one hot meal a week and surviving for the rest of the time on MREs, liberally supplemented by Pop-Tarts and chocolate pudding that was so long past its expiration date, it made you wonder if maybe the Army wasn't trying to give the Taliban an assist. Under these circumstances, two hot meals in the same day was almost beyond Copas's ability to imagine, especially considering that breakfast was supposed to be eggs and grits. What's more, if Thomas, our cook, was in a generous mood, maybe there would even be some bacon too. But even that wasn't the whole story. The best thing about all of this, in Copas's mind, was that if you were on guard duty when Thomas started slinging breakfast at the chow hall, the guy you had just relieved was required to go up there and get your food, then bring it out to the truck and actually serve the stuff to you. To Copas, whose name fittingly was pronounced just like the word copacetic, the confluence of these events was like the greatest thing on earth. He not only had his top 100 football players magazine, but a hot breakfast was about to be hand-delivered, as if he'd pulled the Humvee into a sonic drive-in. It was true, of course, that this grub would be forked over by a guy who had just taken his morning dump. But did that matter? To a man like Copas, a man who, thanks in part to the motto we'd all adopted, was able to embrace the brighter side of pretty much anything, no matter how shitty it might be. The answer was an emphatic no. This did not matter one bit. You know what, Hart? He told himself as he got behind the Mark 19 and his sergeant dashed off toward the latrines. You head on up to the shitter and do your thing. Everything here is absolutely cool. As Copas was settling into position on the guard truck, another soldier, a private by the name of Stephen Mace, was counting down the final minutes of his own four-hour guard shift in one of the other gun trucks, which was positioned on the opposite end of camp, about 120 yards to the west. Known as Elraz II, that Humvee was the most remote and exposed guard position on the entire outpost. It sat just 40 yards from the Darie Kushtes River and faced directly toward the cluster of some three dozen mud-walled buildings that comprised the village of Ermol. Mace, who was Copas's best friend, was waiting to be relieved by a sergeant named Brad Larson, who happened to be my best friend. And just like Copas and Hart, Mace and Larson had a little ritual that they enacted on most mornings when they were trading off guard duty. Although Mace was one of the lowest-ranking soldiers at Keating, he was also one of the most entertaining characters inside the wire. Armed with razor-sharp wits and a wickedly inappropriate sense of humor, he generated a continuous stream of off-the-cuff jokes and smart-aleck remarks that could always take your mind off the surrounding miseries even if it was just for a second or two. In short, Mace was the kind of guy that everyone enjoyed having around, and a measure of that enjoyment was that even Larson, a laconic and self-contained Nebraskan who rarely had more than a word or two to share with anyone, including me, would voluntarily get up a few minutes early 
and Trundle out to the guard position just so that he could sit in the front seat of the Humvee and listen to Mace's bullshit. What those two guys talked about spanned a wide spectrum. It could run the gamut. From heated debates about which animal you'd most want to shoot during a big game hunting safari in Africa, to minutely detailed descriptions of hot teachers they'd had back in grade school. But the substance of their conversation probably mattered less than the fact that they liked each other's company enough that sometimes they'd simply sit in the cab of the gun truck, staring out the windshield in silence while Mace pulled on one of his marble lights and Larson took a dip from his can of chewing tobacco. On this particular morning, however, they'd skipped over their usual routine because Larson had some business to take care of first. Instead of climbing directly into the Humvee, he strode past the driver's door toward the front of the truck, set his helmet and his gun on the hood, then spread his legs, unzipped his fly, and stood there, bareheaded and facing west, taking a long, much-needed wake-up piss. Technically speaking, Larson should have taken care of this back at the piss tubes, a row of four-inch diameter pipes made of PVC that were sunk more than three feet into the ground just outside the shower trailer. The path out to the gun truck had taken him right by them, and normally he would have stopped there. But the tubes reeked worse than almost anything else in camp. And for whatever reason, he had decided that the odor of stale urine wasn't something he was keen to inhale just then. Meanwhile, when May saw what Larson was up to, he climbed down from the gun truck and headed east across the outpost toward the barracks building where the rest of our platoon was still fast asleep in our bunks. It was 5.50 a.m., and the dawn had just broken, as Larson went about his business while staring up at the scene before him. The first rays of the morning sun were painting the mud walls of our mule with a golden pinkish light, and his gaze was pulled toward the tallest structure in the village, which was the mosque. Unlike the masjids that graced the larger and more prosperous towns and cities of Afghanistan, Armul's mosque boasted neither a delicate tapered spire nor an onion-shaped dome. It was a square-sided tower, coarse and humble, that reflected not only the harshness and the austerity, but also the humbleness of this impossible, distant, and cut-off corner of Afghanistan. Closer at hand, Larson could see the river frothy and bright as it churned beneath the single-span concrete bridge leading out of the small island that doubled as a landing zone for the massive, anvil-shaped Chinooks that served as Keating's lifeline to the outside world, ferrying in everything from diesel fuel and ammunition to crates of Dr. Pepper and plastic bottles filled with drinking water. On the far side of that river, a dense green wall of vegetation concealed the monkeys, the birds, and the other wild creatures that populated the sides of the impossibly narrow valley in which Keating was nestled. And soaring above all of that, Larson could see the features that dominated and defined our lives in that place, which were the mountains. Their cliffs rose up out of the river valley, straight-sided and steep, and high above those cliffs and far in the distance, he could see the snow-covered peaks that were now glittering with the orange tint of dawn against the backdrop of a sky that had taken on the deep and impenetrable color of cobalt. In another place, at another time, 
a view like the one laid out before Larson, would have been nothing short of glorious. But here you could never allow a thing like glory to seduce you into forgetting that we were at war, and that the men who had been sent here to fight, the soldiers whose deepest desire was to kill as many of us as possible, lay concealed within that beauty. Looking back on that moment now, I've tried to imagine the scene from the perspective of the 300 Taliban fighters who had moved into position overnight, forced the civilians in the area to leave their homes, set up firing positions in the buildings and across the hillsides along all four cardinal points of the compass, and who were now counting down the final seconds to launch a coordinated attack on us from all sides with RPGs, mortars, machine guns, small arms, and recoilless rifle fire. The force they'd assembled outnumbered us by six to one, and the onslaught that they were about to unleash would qualify as the largest, fiercest, and most sophisticated assault ever seen in the portion of Afghanistan the U.S. High Command referred to as Sector East. As impressive as all of that may sound, however, what is perhaps even more remarkable is the depth of our collective ignorance in that instant. Brad Larson had no clue. As he stood there with his dingus on display, absentmindedly registered the sound of splashing in the dirt just beyond the toes of his boots, that his head was framed in the crosshairs of at least ten snipers, each armed with a Russian Dragunov rifle and intent on putting a 7.62 cartridge through the front of his face. Zachary Kopas had no idea that there would be no delivery for a hot breakfast, that his magazine would never be opened and that within seconds he would be cut off inside his Humvee and squaring up against dozens of insurgents while more than three dozen Afghan army soldiers who were supposed to be our allies and partners abandoned their positions and fled, allowing Keating's eastern defensive perimeter to completely collapse. Josh Hart didn't have the faintest notion that within the hour, those insurgents would breach our wire, seize our ammunition depot, set fire to most of our buildings, and eventually be pointing an RPG at him with the aim of blowing his brains through the back of his head. As for me, as those final seconds ticked down before the Taliban's hellfire was unleashed, I was racked out in my bunk, fast asleep, and oblivious to the fact that within 30 minutes everyone inside our besieged outpost who was still alive would be falling back into what would later be called the Alamo position and preparing to make a final stand in the only two buildings that weren't on fire. Well, ten of our comrades were stranded outside the line. Which brings me back to our little motto. The phrase that sustained us. It doesn't get better. There were 50 Americans inside the wire at Keating that morning, including the men who were part of Red Platoon. Partly thanks to those words, we not only understood but also accepted with total clarity just how bad things were, how untenable our lines were, how impossible it would be to effectively defend our perimeter, how far we were from the nearest help, but in reality, not a single one of us had the faintest inkling of the sheer fury that was about to rain down upon our heads. What follows is not the story of one man, but of an entire platoon. It is a story that has the hair and the dirt still clinging to it. A saga whose characters, in ways both large and small, 
are less heroic than one might wish, and yet far more human than the citations to the medals that this battle yielded might suggest. The men of Red Platoon were no pack of choir boys, nor were we the sort of iron-willed, steely-eyed superheroes who seem to populate so many of the narratives that have emerged during the last decade of war. We were quite unlike the squadron of special forces, hard men who had ridden across the plains of northern Afghanistan on horseback to capture the city of Mazari Sharif in the weeks following 9-11. And we had almost nothing in common with the four-man team of American spec ops assassins whose ordeal in the summer of 2005, just a few miles south of Keating, would later be chronicled in the book and the movie called Lone Survivor. If we qualified as heroes, then the heroism we displayed that day in the autumn of 2009 was cut from a more ragged grade of cloth, a fabric whose folds concealed the shortcomings and the failings of exceptionally ordinary men who were put to an extraordinary test. Men who were plagued by fears and doubts. Men who had bickered endlessly and indulged in all manner of pettiness. Men who had succumbed to and in some cases, were still running from a litany of weaknesses that included depression and addiction, apathy and aimlessness, dishonesty and rage. If we were a band of brothers bound together by combat, then it's important to note that our brethren included a private who had once tried to commit suicide by drinking carpet cleaner, a soldier who was caught smoking hashish in a free-fire zone while standing guard duty and me, a man so keen to go to war that he never bothered to consult his wife before volunteering to be deployed to Iraq, and then later lied to her, declaring that he had had no choice in the matter. But if all of that is true, what is also true is that we were soldiers who loved one another with a fierceness and a purity that has no analog in the civilian world. To fully understand how that worked, you need to know a bit about how my platoon came together and the path that drew us to Afghanistan. Part 1. The Road to Nuristan Chapter 1. Loss I come from an old Nevada ranching family with military traditions that date back to my grandfather, Ori Smith, who took his brother's place in the draft during the summer of 1943 and eventually wound up getting sent to Normandy as a combat engineer just a couple of days after D-Day. Six months later, Ori got himself stuck inside the besieged perimeter of Bastogne with the 101st Airborne Division during the Battle of the Bulge. Somehow he made it through, then finished out his time in Europe helping to put on USO shows as a bareback rodeo rider. Almost 30 years later, my dad was sent to Vietnam. And although he never said a single word about either of the two tours that he pulled up near the Cambodian border with the 4th Infantry Division, which was known to have taken some horrendous casualties during that time, his silence carried enough weight that all three of his sons enlisted in the military. My oldest brother, Travis, enlisted in the Army right after high school, participated in the invasion of Haiti, then later transferred to the Air Force. Next in line was Preston, who hitched up with the Marines. By the time I was a senior in Lake City, California, a town so tiny that our high school graduating class numbered only 15, 
my brothers assumed that I would join up too, despite my father's hopes that I might break the mold and follow the path he'd laid out by enrolling me in the Mormon seminary I had been attending since ninth grade. My brothers were right. I joined the army in September of 1999 and was assigned to Black Knight Troop, a mechanized armor unit whose 65 men were spread across three platoons, red, white, and blue. In military jargon, Black Knight belonged to the 4,000-man 4th Brigade Combat Team, which itself was part of the 20,000-man 4th Infantry Division. In layman's terms, what that boiled down to was that I was a tiny cog nestled deep inside the world's largest and most sophisticated war machine. It also meant that I was part of the very same infantry division in which my dad had served. My first deployment was to Kosovo, where we performed peacekeeping duties and saw very little action. But following the attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001, I volunteered to go to Iraq. After a 15-month detour through Korea, I found myself commanding an M1A1 armored tank in Habinia, an area about 50 miles west of Baghdad that sits directly between Ramadi and Fallujah. There we spent the better part of 2004 battling hardcore Al-Qaeda fighters who specialized in improvised explosives. We took an average of roughly one IED strike per day. At the end of that first Iraq deployment, we were sent back to Colorado and the entire unit was reclassified from heavy armor to light reconnaissance so that we could start preparing for the type of fighting we'd eventually be facing in Afghanistan. As part of that transition, I was shipped off to school to learn how to be a cavalry scout. Eleven months later, in June of 2006, we were back in Iraq, this time in a place called Salman Pak, about 20 miles south of Baghdad, along a broad bend of the Tigris River, and not far from a notorious military installation rumored to serve as a keystone of Saddam Hussein's biological and chemical weapons program. It was also a hotbed of extremist militia, and they did their best to make our lives as miserable as possible. This was where my new training really began to kick in. A cavalry scout is generally thought to function as the eyes and ears of a commander during battle. But in fact, a scout's role extends quite a bit further. We refer to ourselves as jacks of all trades, masters of none, and we are trained to have a working familiarity with, quite literally, every job in the army. We are experts in reconnaissance, counter-surveillance, and navigation, but we're also extremely comfortable with all aspects of radio and satellite communications. We know how to assemble and deploy three-man hunter-killer teams. We're pretty good at blowing things up using mines and high explosives. We can function as medics, vehicle mechanics, and combat engineers. And we have a thorough understanding of every single weapon system, from a 9mm handgun to a 120mm howitzer. Many soldiers find it challenging to master such an eclectic skill set. So it was odd that it all came so easily to me. Prior to the military, I found school to be quite difficult, especially when it came to abstract ideas. But these new disciplines came to me so instinctively that it was almost disturbing. Regardless of whether it was small unit tactics or maneuvering an entire company's worth of armor, the logic seemed inherently obvious. What's more, I loved every aspect of being a scout. Although I had a particular knack for something called 
react to contact drills, which involved coming up with a combat plan on the spur of the moment as the shit was hitting the fan. There were two things, however, that didn't come easily at all. The first had to do with the position in which we found ourselves in Iraq, where we were consigned to a reactive role, and where we found ourselves bound by strict rules of engagement, or ROEs, that prevented us from shooting first, which meant that we were usually able to return fire only when attacked. I found this intolerable, not only from a tactical standpoint, but also at a psychological level. And to compensate, I developed an unorthodox style of leadership that hinged on provoking a reaction from the enemy. When I was leading an armored convoy, for example, I would often order my tank driver to abruptly switch lanes, taking the entire column down a city street directly against the flow of traffic, forcing oncoming vehicles to get out of the way or risk head-on collision. At the extreme end of things, I would even use myself as a decoy. To ferret out snipers, for example, I would climb onto the Sponson box, a big rectangular storage compartment on the turret of our lead tank, pretend it was a surfboard, and balance myself out there as we clattered through the streets of Habinia, daring any Iraqi marksmen to take a shot at me and expose their positions. Often these tactics worked well, although they never fully relieved my frustration with the rules of engagement. But as impossible as I found the ROEs, this challenge was dwarfed by a second problem, one that arose as an inevitable consequence of serving in a leadership position in a war zone. What I found harder than anything else, by far, was witnessing one of my guys get killed. The first time this happened to me was just outside of Sadr City, and it involved one of the finest soldiers I've ever known. The summer and fall of 2007 was a bad time for all three frontline platoons in Black Knight Troop. By this point, we were several months into a new strategy in which the administration of George W. Bush attempted to stabilize Iraq by sending in five additional brigades while extending the tour of almost every soldier who was already on deployment. While the surge did lead to a drop in overall violence, for reasons that remained mysterious— and which may simply have resulted from bad luck, our troops started getting hit harder and more often. In September, one of White Platoon's team leaders got shot in the back, and although he survived, the bullet severed his spine and paralyzed him from the chest down. Not long after that, White lost two other men to a roadside bomb. And then in September, Snell got hit. Eric Snell was a 34-year-old scout when I first met him in Iraq, but even as a newly enlisted private, he'd managed to stand out as something extraordinary. He had been drafted as an outfielder for the Cleveland Indians, straight out of high school in Trenton, New Jersey, but he had decided to forego a career in the major leagues and instead focus on academics. He got a degree in political science, then moved to South Africa to work as a project manager for AT&T. He could speak French, and he'd lived in Italy. He was also good-looking enough that he'd been recruited as a male model, appearing in magazines like Mademoiselle, Modern Bride, and Vibe. Snell had the entire package, and he brought all of it to the task of being the type of soldier that did everything perfectly. You never had to give him an order or an instruction twice. He learned fast, and he learned well. He showed initiative, 
and he demonstrated leadership. In fact, the only thing that seemed remotely off about the guy was the confusion he provoked among the rest of us over why he had signed on as an ordinary soldier in the first place. For Christ's sake, Snell, you got all this education and all these credentials, we'd say to him. Why the fuck did you come into the army as enlisted? Well, yeah, I'm going to go and be an officer one day, was his response. But first I want to know what it's like to be a soldier. That impressed us, too. He was promoted to sergeant two years after he enlisted, far ahead of his peers. Just over two weeks later, on September 18, 2007, me and him and two other guys were ordered to perform overwatch just outside of Sadr City on a group of Iraqi soldiers who were setting up concrete barriers to block suicide bombers. White platoon had been on duty for most of that morning, and our captain had ordered Red to relieve them, an idea that me and my platoon sergeant deemed unwise, because if there were any snipers in the area, they now knew our pattern of movement. Our objections were overruled, so me and Snell started setting up our perimeter security. I was leaning inside the Humvee, coordinating on the radio with another platoon on the other side of the battle space, and Snell was standing right beside me in back of the vehicle with just his head exposed, when a sniper from across the way got him. The bullet came in just beneath the lip of his helmet, went through his right eye, and blew out the back of his head. As soon as I looked down and saw him lying on the ground, I knew he was dead. It was the first time I'd seen one of my own guys get killed. Up to that point, I'd been convinced that there was some sort of connection between how good you were and what happened to you in the theater of battle. But after watching Snell get assassinated like that, I realized that one of the fundamental truths about war is that horrible things can and often will happen to anybody, even to a soldier who has everything dialed to perfection. In the days that followed, I found myself wrestling with the implications of this. While you could strive to be your best, and while you could demand that everyone under you adhere to those standards, the reality was that in the end, none of this might make a rat's ass of difference, even for an ace like Snell. When you lose a man like that, it can fuel a sense of resignation that can be totally debilitating. If there is no causal link between merit and destiny, if everything on the battlefield boils down to nothing more than a lottery, what's the point of bothering to hone your skills or cultivate excellence? The loss can create a practical problem, too. When a soldier as good as Snell gets drilled through the brain, even if you want to try to replace him, how could you ever find someone to fill his shoes? As it turned out, however... The rotten luck of losing Snell wound up having a silver lining to it because it triggered the arrival of a soldier who was destined to become my right-hand man in Afghanistan, a man who would provide the foundation of what Red Platoon was to become and what it would later accomplish during its trial by fire in Afghanistan. About a month after Snell died, a batch of new replacements arrived in Iraq from Fort Carson, just outside of Colorado Springs, to fill the ranks of our dead. Whenever a surge of soldiers arrived, the sergeants from all three platoons would size up the new guys and then haggle over how to divvy them up. These assessment and bargaining sessions 
were often intense because the outcome would have a big impact on the quality of each platoon. And the criteria on which everything hinged basically boiled down to our greatest pastime, platoon-on-platoon football. Ray Didinger, a sports writer who covered the NFL for more than 25 years, once said that football is the truest team game because nothing happens if all the players aren't performing their roles to perfection. Everyone has to contribute on every single play, he argued. You could have the guys up front all do everything exactly the way they're supposed to, but if one guy breaks down, if he doesn't get the play right or goes in the wrong direction, then the whole play falls apart. That's not a bad summary of small unit military tactics either, especially when you consider that football is all about assaulting another team's territory, then holding that ground against a series of counter-assaults. Plus, and this is Didinger again, football is also a violent game, and the guys who play it have to accept that fact. Maybe that's why we bonded so deeply with the game, especially in Red Platoon, where we took it with such hyper-seriousness that we literally went for years without losing a single platoon-on-platoon matchup. Brad Larson was a recruit from Chambers, Nebraska, a town whose population, 288, was almost as tiny as the minuscule spot where I'd come from. He had jug-handle ears that kicked out from the sides of his head, cartoonishly thick eyebrows, and almost nothing to suggest that he possessed the sort of athletic prowess we were looking for in Red Platoon. So when we wound up getting stuck with him, I initially made a point of ignoring the guy and saying as little to him as possible, despite the fact that he was serving as the driver of my Humvee. Aside from go left and turn right, I don't think I directed a single word to him for more than two weeks. As it turned out, Larson had played free safety at the junior college he'd attended in Nebraska before joining the Army. But as we discovered after finally condescending to allow him on the field during one of our platoon-on-platoon games, he could play just about anywhere because he was so astonishingly fast. Even more impressive was his uncanny sense of vision. Whenever the quarterback drew back his arm to throw, Larson knew exactly where the ball was heading. Except for one guy who had a weird sidearm throw that was almost impossible to read, Larson could figure out where the ball was headed just by looking at the quarterback's eyes and the angle of his forearm. And then, thanks to his ferocious speed, he was able to make a beeline for that spot and destroy whoever was the target. That made me sit up and take notice of him. It also served as the basis of the relationship that swiftly developed between us. Because it didn't take long for me to realize that when we were practicing combat maneuvers, Larson was taking the skills he exhibited on the football field and applying them to me. He was also unbelievably quick to adapt, so quick that I almost never had to sit down and explain anything to him. Instead, he would simply look at me as I was doing something, and, just by the fact that he was concentrating so hard and that he was so freaking on it, he would absorb the lesson. As soon as I realized what was up, I started integrating him into the role that Snell had previously filled as my team leader. Like Snell, Larson did everything with ferocious precision and attention to detail. But what I valued even more was the way we connected. Within a few months, the two of us had built the kind of rapport where if we were out doing a platoon exercise, 
assaulting an objective, say, or trying to find a weapons cache, I would give my team the commander's brief, sketch out the mission, and announce, Larson, you're on point. Then we'd start walking on patrol, Larson in front, me in the rear, with two or three guys between us. As we came up on a place where we had to make a tactical pause and decide what to do next, whether to transition from high ground to low ground, or how we'd pass by an obstacle of some sort, Larson would turn around and look at me. We both had radios, but we wouldn't need to use them. Our eyes would lock, I'd give him a nod, and whatever I was thinking, he would know exactly what to do. It was almost like each of us was an extra pair of eyes and a second set of hands for the other. In addition to that, our strengths and weaknesses overlapped in a way that complemented each other, so that together we were more than twice as good as we were alone. For example, I'm sort of an idiot when it comes to numbers and math, but this was something that came naturally to Larson. Whenever we were on patrol and I was in charge, I would often be deluged with information and struggle to write things down with a marker on either my gloves or on the window of my Humvee, which served as my notepads. If I couldn't keep up, I'd lean over to Larson and say, Hey, they're calling up a target grid at 4 Sierra Mike 6 Juliet 1802245. Remember that. Twenty minutes later, when I'd ask him to give me the grid, he'd spit it right back from memory. Up to that point, I'd never experienced anything quite like this in the military. We synced. We clicked. And in doing all of those things, each of us made the other better. If there's a term for this sort of connection, I've never come across it. Perhaps because the mechanism is so hard to pin down that it resists encapsulation. I don't know how we meshed. I just know that we did. And there was really no way of explaining it except to acknowledge that it worked. In fact, it worked so well that it was soon obvious to the rest of the platoon, too, where it provoked enough curiosity that our lieutenant finally pulled us aside and asked what was up. At a loss for a better answer, Larson and me fell back on the only explanation that made sense to us. It's kind of the same way that a positraction clutch works on the rear end of a Ford Mustang, I said. And how's that? asked the lieutenant. One way to explain it, I replied, is that it's a limited slip differential gear that allows for some variance in the angular velocity of the output shaft. But the better way of explaining it, Larson chimed in, is to say that it just boils down to PFM. Okay, I'll take the bait, said the lieutenant. What the hell is PFM? PFM is technology so advanced that it can't be explained to the layperson as anything other than sorcery or witchcraft, I replied. It's pure fucking magic. So there you go, said Larson. PFM. Like PFM, the intensity of combat can create a level of trust that you don't get anywhere else, which in turn can create some serious obligations. And that brings me back to the insight I drew from the manner in which we'd lost Eric Snell. Snell's death forced me to acknowledge and accept that the dynamics of combat are impervious to human control. But in the wake of that revelation, I decided that there were at least two things worth concentrating on that I could control. 
The first involves stacking the odds in the favor of my men and me by being very, very good. Snell and Larson embodied that principle. The second thing involved, for lack of a better way of putting it, the paramount importance of cultivating a sense of defiance about how we ended things. I may not have been able to control what happened during combat, but I had a lot to say about what happened after it. And given that, I decided that the follow-through and the finish mattered. Hugely. After we'd picked Snell up off the street, we had to get him back to our base, the first leg of a journey that would take him through the Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, home of the largest military mortuary in the United States, where the remains of those killed overseas are traditionally brought, and from there to Trenton, New Jersey, where he was buried. In a situation like this, the normal procedure was to place the body on the hood of your Humvee, but I didn't want Snell riding out there and exposed for everyone to see. Because he was so incredibly tall, however, we couldn't shut the rear door on the passenger side of the Humvee, even when we placed Snell across the two dismount seats in the back and bent his legs to get his knees up. Keeping a door open on an armored Humvee was a serious security violation, but I couldn't have cared less. I sat in the commander's seat with my right arm extended back and holding the strap on that 400-pound door. And that's how we rolled through the middle of Baghdad, taking turns as fast as we could without flipping the gun truck. This was the sort of gesture that may well sound pointless, and perhaps even a little absurd. At the time, however, it seemed to me that the manner in which we brought Snell home was terribly important. Looking back on it now, I've never changed my mind. Chapter 2. Stacked. During our time in Iraq, Black Knight Troop lost three men, including Snell. A half dozen others were wounded, several of them horribly. But by the time we wrapped up the deployment and returned home to Colorado in March of 2008, our numbers had been whittled down even further by an attrition of a different sort. Thanks to a spate of transfers, retirements, and disciplinary relocations during the weeks immediately following our return, Red Platoon was quickly reduced to a faint shadow of its former self. Of the twenty men we'd had in Iraq, only three remained. Myself, a guy who would soon get injured when a trailer fell on his hands, and the jug-eared Nebraskan with immense black eyebrows. Everybody else was gone. This meant that in addition to spending time with our families, as well as all the other things that we dreamed of doing back when we were choking on the heat and dust of Iraq, we were going to have to rebuild ourselves from the ground up. That would entail quite a bit more than simply snatching up good guys by any means we could. We would also have to find a way of forging those newcomers into a cohesive unit, a band of men who could work well together, trust one another, and keep one another alive during our next deployment. And in the context of larger events that were unfolding around us, that was going to be one hell of a challenge. In the aftermath of 9-11, when America had committed itself to fighting two extended wars overseas, one in Iraq and the other in Afghanistan, it consigned a relatively small group of young soldiers to something relatively new, which was to send them abroad repeatedly 
and throw them into combat again and again and again. These overseas combat deployments were not restricted to one or two tours for each soldier, as was often the case during World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Nor was the burden of those deployments shared across an entire generation. The brunt of our fighting during this time was performed by less than 1% of our population, and many of the folks who wound up on the front lines, especially the ground pounders and the infantry, were guys just like me, men who joined up straight out of high school and had three or four deployments under their belts by the time their peers were finishing college. Some of us, especially those who became medics or aviators or joined the special forces, had seven or eight combat halls under their belts. By the late winter of 2008, almost a full decade into the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the toll that those multiple deployments had taken on the army were really starting to show. One of the clearest signs of the problem was the alarmingly high rate of PTSD, especially among enlisted soldiers. This wasn't always easy to detect, at least not directly, but you could discern it in the rising incidence of suicide and drug abuse. Within a month or two, the brigade found itself wrestling with substance abuse problems ranging from marijuana to cocaine and meth, as well as incidents of depression that would contribute to three suicides. At the same time, Fort Carson was also saddled with some of the highest crime rates of any military base in the country, including domestic violence, armed robbery, and assault, as well as rape and murder. Over the course of that year, six of our brigade's soldiers would be charged with killing other soldiers or civilians. The most notorious of these was a specialist from Michigan named Robert Marco, who was part of Black Knight Troop. Marco suffered from the psychological delusion that he belonged to a species of alien dinosaur-like creatures known as the Black Raptor Tribe. Several months after we returned from Iraq, he was charged with raping and murdering a 19-year-old developmentally disabled woman he had met online. After confessing to the police that he had taken the woman into the mountains overlooking Colorado Springs, where he'd blindfolded her and slit her throat, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. In February 2011, he was convicted of first-degree murder and is currently serving a life prison sentence with no possibility of parole. That was enough to make national news. In some ways, it may be unfair to mention Marco, because he was such an extreme aberration. But if Marco was an exception to the rule, he offered stark evidence of the unsettling fact that not all of the men who were being pulled into the army at this point represented the cream of the crop, and that the problems Marco brought with him, like everybody's, were exacerbated by multiple combat deployments. Marco also provides an indication of what me and Larson were up against as we set about rebuilding the platoon with the best material we could find, a process known as stacking. As the longest-serving member of RED, I was afforded quite a bit of leverage when it came to selecting new personnel, and I knew exactly what I was looking for. But I had no influence whatsoever over one of the most important elements of all, because he would set the tone for the entire unit, which was who our new leader would be. Andrew Bunderman was a history major from the University of Minnesota, who'd made a serious and extremely successful effort 
to amass the absolute minimum number of credits necessary to graduate so that he could spend the rest of his college tenure cocktailing, which basically meant drinking and hanging out with his bros. In the midst of those pursuits, he also fulfilled his ROTC requirements with the goal of flying jets off of aircraft carriers, a dream that was deep-sixed when the Navy flat-out turned him down. Which is how, in May of 2007, Bunderman came to find himself enrolled as a junior-grade lieutenant in the United States Army. He was sent through the usual officer's tour of induction duty, first to Oklahoma for some basic training at Fort Sill that involved, among many other things, teaching him to assemble and take apart a 50 caliber machine gun in under 10 minutes without embarrassing himself. That was followed by a stint in Kentucky at Fort Knox, where he got to cruise around in tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles blowing stuff up, which he thoroughly enjoyed. This progressive escalation of training and seriousness was partly designed to impart a baseline of military how-to knowledge. But its primary purpose was to expose Bunderman to the men upon whom he would most closely rely in combat, the first sergeants, staff sergeants, and line sergeants who would serve as his non-commissioned officers, NCOs, and who would bridge the gap between the orders that Bunderman passed down from his superiors and the enlisted grunts whose job it would be to make shit happen. And it was during this period that Bunderman began absorbing the first lesson for a newly minted officer who is not a ring-knocker from West Point, a lesson that not every lieutenant in Bunderman's position chose to absorb, which is to listen to your NCOs and allow them, in a certain sense, to mold you into their leader. As it turns out, this was more complicated than Bunderman initially realized, because the main message that his NCOs wanted to impart was, always trust your NCOs. That advice was generally good, but as Bunderman soon discovered, it wasn't always good. Sure, it was important for a young lieutenant to take his sergeant's opinions seriously and make an effort to understand where they were coming from, but this didn't mean that he should literally do everything they told him to do. In fact, doing that would get him screwed incredibly fast. Although a platoon's sergeants often know far more than their lieutenant, at least from a technical standpoint, they don't tend to think strategically. Instead, what they're mostly doing is trying to make sure that things roll smoothly for them and the guys in their squads. And thus, one of the key lessons that a lieutenant needs to absorb boils down to this. Listen to the people who you're leading so that they feel like they have a voice, even if they don't actually have a voice. But never lose sight of the fact that your primary concern is not the men, but the mission. Sometimes it's the case that the mission's best interest aligns with that of the men. Sometimes it isn't. Regardless, an officer's primary concern starts and ends with the mission. So while it's important to listen to your men, you're not there to make friends, because you don't always have their best interests front of mind. I was well-versed in this mindset when I was summoned into Black Knight's office building in the early fall of 2008 to meet the man who would lead Red Platoon through its next deployment, so I had a decent grasp of the ideas that had been drummed into the new lieutenant's head. But I didn't know the first thing about the man himself. The gangly-looking dude sitting before me in a metal chair was as thin as a beanpole, at the top of which someone had affixed a thatch of blondish-brown hair 
and a face framed by some exceptionally geekish wire-rim glasses. All right, here's the deal, Bunderman announced by way of introduction. I like to chew tobacco, I like to drink beer, and I don't like to work very hard. That was enough to get my attention. You're an NCO, which means you're smarter than me and you have more experience than me, he continued. I will trust you 100% to do whatever you think is necessary, and if you fuck up, I'll take care of the paperwork, and I'll make sure that you have your shit straight. Now he really had me. All I ask in return is that you don't make me look like an asshole, okay? That was a surprise. It told me that the man I was talking to wasn't your typical officer, and that if me and the other guys treated him right, we might have a good thing going. By this point, I'd already had a bunch of platoon leaders, but none who I truly liked. When I stepped out of that cubicle, I didn't know if I liked Bunderman either. But I knew that I liked what he said, and it would soon become clear that the other NCOs felt the same. From that day forward, we had an unspoken quid pro quo deal with the lieutenant. On our side, we would take care of him by making sure that he always had an ample supply of chewing tobacco and beer, and we'd do our best to make him look like a rock star in the eyes of his superiors. In return, we understood that he'd leave us alone to do our jobs, especially our most important job at that moment, which was stacking the platoon by encouraging Black Knight's first sergeant and the squadron's sergeant major to take the strongest of the incoming soldiers who were being sent to beef up the troop and steer them to us. A typical platoon consists of 16 frontline soldiers who are divided into two sections, designated Alpha and Bravo. Each of those sections has two squads composed of four men who are under the command of a sergeant known as a team leader. Justin Gallegos was a densely built Hispanic team leader from Tucson, who I knew from back in 2005 when we'd both been sent to scout school in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Gallegos' most obvious asset was his size. He wasn't exceptionally tall, no more than 5'10", but he weighed around 230 pounds, and every ounce of it was muscle. He boasted so much bulk and brute strength that the lower enlisted guys called him Taco Truck, although that was something they would only do behind his back and never to his face because otherwise they knew they probably wouldn't survive the beating he'd hand out. The quality that truly defined Gallegos, however, had nothing to do with size and everything to do with a high-voltage aggression he could flip on and off like a light switch. That had worked to his advantage when he was a young man moving through the gang scene in Tucson, and it had played an important role when he joined the army in the hopes of avoiding the fate that befell two of his older brothers both of whom were rumored to have been killed in gang fights. When he arrived at Carson, he'd just finished pulling the second of his two Iraq deployments, and we scooped him up immediately, knowing that we were lucky to have a team leader who was thoroughly battle-tested. Gallegos would spend the next couple of weeks in cruise control mode, often showing up for our morning physical training sessions with a Gatorade bottle laced with vodka, but we marked that kind of behavior down to his need to blow off some steam after returning from Baghdad. The bottom line was that he had his duties down cold. In addition to mastering every aspect of his job, 
Gallegos made sure that the men who were part of his squad in Bravo's section knew their stuff, too. He was an exceptionally competent team leader, and his strengths were augmented in a serious way when, just before Christmas, we managed to snag another sergeant named Josh Kirk, who would become Gallegos's counterpart and companion in Bravo. Having recently returned home from his first Afghanistan deployment, where he had seen some significant combat in Kunar province and been recommended for a Medal of Valor, Kirk was eligible to spend three or four months in the United States before he could be deployed again. Instead, he'd waived that privilege and put in a special request to be sent back overseas as soon as possible. A highly unusual move, as well as a blunt statement about his love for combat. Kirk brought a level of fervor and courage to the platoon that was so far off the charts it was almost crazy. He was all about getting them before they got us, and his energy was nothing short of demonic, attributes that were further magnified by his size and strength. He was taller than Gallegos, weighed at least 210 pounds, and had such powerful hands, they looked like shovel blades, that once, when he lost his temper during a wrestling match, he almost snapped all of his opponent's fingers. But what put Kirk in a class by himself was his ardor for the tools of war. In pretty much any given combat situation, the men who serve in a cavalry platoon have an insane amount of firepower at their fingertips. Given the range of options available, most guys will tend to gravitate to their favorite piece of hardware. Some swear by Mark 19 grenade launchers, while others prefer to lay down the law behind 50 caliber machine guns. But Kirk could never restrict himself to just one weapon system, because he coveted and cherished them all. According to some of the men with whom he'd served in Afghanistan, Kirk had been like a kid in an arcade over there. At the start of a firefight, they told us, he'd grab hold of an AT-4 rocket launcher and let loose, then jump on the 50 cal for a couple of long and deeply satisfying bursts before switching over to the Mark 19. It wasn't unusual for him to finish out by having another go with the AT-4. He so loved the shooting and the adrenaline rush it inevitably triggered that sometimes his commanders needed to reel the dude back in. We're not looking to pick a fight today, they'd tell him. So let's calm down a bit. Like Gallegos, Kirk was utterly fearless, although he preferred to allow his responses during battle to be driven by emotion rather than analysis, whereas Gallegos was more methodical and deliberate. In this way, they balanced each other out, and their combined fury made us considerably more formidable than we otherwise would have been. These were all things that Bunderman appreciated and valued, which enabled our lieutenant to overlook both men's drawbacks. Gallegos's drinking and volatile moods, Kirk's arrogance and refusal to shut the hell up, along with the pleasure that he took in committing minor infractions like not keeping his hair cut or wearing a non-regulation special forces neck scarf under his uniform, which would drive our sergeant major nuts. In Bunderman's estimation, Kirk's and Gallegos's skills and personalities dovetailed in a way that provided a rock-solid foundation for Bravo section. They knew what they were supposed to do, they took care of the people under them, and they were in absolute top-notch physical condition. That last item may not sound super important, but it was a huge deal in Bunderman's book, 
because nothing brought more grief down on his head than a major or captain strolling past the platoon and catching sight of some guy who appeared flabby or weak. In short, Kirk and Gallegos reinforced a sense that our unit was in tune and humming, an impression that offered an effective counterweight when we found ourselves taking on a couple of new characters who were slightly less hardcore. Zach Kopis had grown up in the middle of Amish country in Ohio and attended a Mennonite school until he was booted for stealing the key to a test and trying to sell the answers to his fellow students. That was the beginning of a long slide that took Kopis through an ungodly amount of pot smoking, a dead-end gig at an Auntie Anne's pretzel stand in Colorado, and a trip to a Petco store, where he was hoping to apply for a job, that was waylaid when he passed by an army recruiter's office spotted a sign promising a $20,000 signing bonus, and decided that working with animals didn't sound nearly as exciting as shooting people. At the end of that road, which ushered him through basic training and a stint in Korea, was our platoon. And there, shortly after arriving in June, he struck up a friendship with another new arrival, a guy who shared Copus's penchant for combining idiocy and humor with a wild streak that was spectacularly and uniquely his own. Stephen Mace was from rural Virginia, and when he was growing up, he was so deeply into firearms that he'd apprenticed himself to a gunsmith in high school, fashioned a rifle from scratch, and given it to his dad for Christmas. He also had a taste for the kind of irreverence that involved stunts like pulling down his pants while riding in the passenger seat of his mom's car in order to moon his football coach as they drove past. When Mace got to the army, that mischievousness started coming out in ways that were both maddening and endearing, often at the same time. If he was bored by what you were saying, he'd close his eyes and tilt his head to the side, then slump down in his chair and start snoring loudly, pretending that you'd put him to sleep. On the other hand, if he happened to walk by your bunk while you were asleep, he'd insistently tap you on the shoulder until you woke up and asked what was going on. Oh, I was just making sure you were sleeping, he'd say innocently before walking away. In between gambits like these, he'd brag to the rest of the platoon about the awesome results he was getting with Extends, a penis enlargement supplement that he'd discovered on the internet. Then he'd earnestly suggest that some of the other guys might want to think about giving it a try, because it was clear that they needed help in that department even more than he did. Pulling crap like this could be dangerous, especially when it was directed at no-nonsense dudes like Larson, Kirk, and Gallegos. But whenever one of those guys was provoked to the point where he was ready to stick Mace's head down a toilet, he was often forced to hold off because he found himself laughing too hard. Which, of course, encouraged Mace even more. Copus had some of that same energy going for him, and this was probably a big part of why he and Mace quickly became inseparable. But the main thing that welded them together, I think, had more to do with Mace's deepest and most appealing attribute, which was his willingness to go to any length in order to support a friend. When Mace realized that Copus was constitutionally incapable of waking up and getting himself out of bed each morning at 5.30 for first formation in physical training, he developed a routine that involved coming down the hallway of their barracks and pounding on the door until Copus opened up. 
Then Mace would stand there smoking a cigarette until Copas got dressed and was ready to go. He did that every morning without fail. Later that spring, Copas was brutally dumped by a woman he'd been dating. One night, when he tried to call the woman with the aim of begging her to get back together, Mace interrupted the call with a timeout sign. I know how upset you are, he said gently. Give me the phone and I'll talk to her for you. Listen, bitch, screamed Mace when Copas handed him the phone. Stay the fuck away from my friend. Shortly after that incident, Copas tore some ligaments in his ankle during a platoon-on-platoon basketball game. Mace immediately seized on this as opportunity to recruit a replacement girlfriend for Copas by dragging him off to a party, where Mace started feeding every available woman a different lie about Copas's injury. Hey, would you mind going over and saying hi to my buddy? He'd ask, pointing to Copas. He just got back from Afghanistan, where he got nailed by an IED, and he could really use some support. If that didn't pan out, he'd move on to another woman. So yeah, my friend over there hurt his ankle doing some training that involved jumping out of helicopters at night, he'd say. He's kind of bummed out because he's an awesome dancer, but maybe you could just go talk to him for a minute? By the end of the summer, Mace was orchestrating a non-stop campaign to either find Copas a permanent girlfriend or, barring that, ensure that his friend got laid as often as possible before we deployed. In pursuit of these twin goals, they spent most of their free time that autumn running around Colorado Springs in mullet wigs, which they were convinced, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, made them irresistible to the women they were chasing. Mace's loyalty and generosity to Copas weren't especially unusual in the army where friendships often take on an intensity that can be difficult to find in the civilian world. But what made Mace so singular was that his bond with Copas didn't prevent him from reaching out and forging new connections with other incoming recruits, including guys whom no one else would even talk to, like Jonesy. When Chris Jones was nine years old, his dad bought a small farm in the southwestern part of Virginia, right next to the Tennessee border, where he intended to make a go of raising chickens until Tyson backed out of a contract that they'd drawn up with the old man, leaving the family high and dry. From that point on, Jones had been not just poor, but dirt poor. By the time he graduated from high school, joining the army looked like not only his best option, but the only one. After completing basic training at Fort Benning, he got transferred out of infantry in February of 2009 and was sent out to Fort Carson, where he was ordered to join our cavalry brigade, a move that left him totally mystified. Hey, what the fuck is cavalry? he asked, turning in confusion to the only other guy from Benning who had been dispatched to Carson with him. The answer he got was succinct and accurate. Cav basically does the same thing that we did in infantry, came the reply. They just do it with less fucking people. Well, all right, Jones muttered to himself. This keeps getting better and better. Thanks to his infantry background, none of us would even look at Jones when he got to Red Platoon. Except, of course, Mace. On Jones's very first day there, Mace bought a monster energy drink and gave it to Jones, 
a gesture that was intended to welcome him to the platoon and make him feel a little bit at home. Then, to let him know that the rest of what followed wasn't going to be easy, he hauled off and punched Jones directly in the balls. That was a pretty decent preview of what awaited him. During his second week, Jones showed up late for morning formation, and to make matters even worse, he arrived wearing a black fleece that had just been issued to him. But that was a different kind of black fleece, a jacket rather than a pullover, from what the rest of us were wearing. Needless to say, both infractions caught the attention of Kirk. Jones, barked Kirk, shaking his head in disgust. You show up fucking fifteen minutes late, and when you get here, you have the fucking wrong clothes on. Then Kirk stepped outside. This ain't gonna be good, Jones thought to himself. When Kirk returned, he was carrying a long yellow stick. The stick was heavy, and at the very top, Kirk had affixed a sign emblazoned with the words, Late Stick. See this stick? said Kirk handing the thing to Jones. From now on, you will carry this with you everywhere you go. With that, we all headed off on a 15-mile training run. For the next week, Jones obediently hauled the late stick with him no matter where he went, to PT, to the chow hall, to the bathroom. In addition to being exhausting, it also made him look ridiculous. Several times a day, some bemused NCO or officer would stop him and ask, Why you got that stick, soldier? This is my late stick, sir, Jones would declare, reciting what he'd been told to say by Kirk while standing stiffly at attention. I carry this stick with me everywhere I go. At the end of the week, Kirk came into Jones's room, took the stick away, and mumbled something about how Jones hadn't been a bitch or whined about his punishment. It wasn't exactly a thank you, but it was Kirk's way of letting Jones know that he was doing okay. From then on, Jones was one of us. Kirk may or may not have known it at the time, and even if he did, it's hard to imagine that he would have cared, but this was exactly the right way to handle a guy like Jones. It earned Kirk a level of loyalty from Jones that was as fierce and pure as Tennessee moonshine a loyalty that was matched only by Jones's affection for Mace, the one guy in the platoon who had deigned to speak to him back when nobody else could give a fuck. Although Copus, Mace, and Jones weren't necessarily cut from the same mold as the platoon's hard men, they added something important to the mix, starting with the fact that all three of them were good dudes and that they always made the rest of us laugh. Sure, they often poured more effort into thinking about what their next prank was going to be than on doing their jobs. But they were eager to succeed. They would do anything they were ordered to do in a heartbeat. And what mattered even more, they would do what they were told with a cheerfulness that made it clear they would not allow their spirits to be broken by the sort of drudgery that is part of life at the bottom of the enlisted ranks. In addition to all of that, they were incredibly earnest and genuine, a quality that came through in their eagerness to learn. What they absolutely loved more than anything else was when their team leaders, guys like Larson, Gallegos, and Kirk, who were only a couple of years older than them, but who wielded heavy authority because of their previous combat experience, would sit them down and teach them things they would need to know when we got overseas, 
like how to clean a 240 machine gun so that it wouldn't jam, or how to break down a Mark 19 grenade launcher. With proper mentoring and discipline, it was clear to me and the rest of the NCOs that these three young guys had the potential to become excellent soldiers. Plus, we liked them enormously, which helped buttress our sense of unity as the last members of our team showed up. Josh Hart was a bit of an outsider from the get-go. After spending 2007 with a completely different infantry division in Iraq, where he'd formed some tight connections with the guys in his platoon, he was sent to Fort Carson and ordered to join Black Knight. In addition to missing his buddies from his old unit, he was also newly married, which meant that he tended to spend most of his downtime with his wife. But even so, we snatched him up at the first opportunity because we liked what we saw. In the same way that Kirk meshed well with Gallegos, we saw Hart as a ferociously aggressive-minded sergeant with the potential to form an effective partnership with Larson. Hart had a fierce work ethic, which would help Larson reinforce the leadership of the platoon's alpha section. Also, he was something of a hotshot when it came to sports, particularly football. Finally, Bunderman was encouraged by the fact that Hart chewed tobacco, which meant that he would always have someone to bum some Copenhagen off of. Although Bunderman would eventually discover, to his intense annoyance, that most of the bumming went in the other direction. In all of these ways, Hart offered a striking contrast to the guy who showed up shortly after him, a man who, perhaps more than anyone else, would eventually come to represent the soul of Red Platoon because he embodied so many different aspects of each of us, which is to say, both our best and our worst qualities, while combining those elements together in a manner that was totally original. When Tom Rasmussen was transferred to us in February, he'd just broken his wrist after plunging into a bar fight, something that happened quite frequently, and then later that same evening and outside the same bar, getting jumped by a bunch of Hispanic dudes, one of whom had beat him into the street with an expandable metal baton known as an asp. To avoid punishment, Rasmussen had concocted an elaborate story that involved getting drunk and punching out a window. From the way he successfully sold that lie to the sergeant major, who was normally nobody's fool, it was evident that Rasmussen possessed a gift for projecting a rock-solid conviction that the course he'd chosen would yield exactly the result he was looking for while at the same time making it clear that if things went totally south, he truly didn't give a fuck, an attitude that would later make him someone in whom I had no hesitation about placing my trust in combat. Raz, as we came to call him, was a hulking six-foot-five Minnesotan who had arms that looked like they were milled from bitternut hickory trunks and whose no-bullshit forthrightness could be as rough as tree bark. If you asked him how he got into the army, he'd look you straight in the face and declare, I joined up because I never graduated from high school, was living in people's basements, and used to be a fucking meth addict. That's why. Because Raz was so huge, we initially assumed that he'd be really good at sports. As it turned out, he wasn't, although he could be entertaining on the field, especially when he did something like borrow Mace's mullet wig and wear it during softball games but there was something about Raz that struck all of us as decent and cool, 
and perhaps that's the reason why so many of the younger guys instantly took to him in a way that set up an interesting dynamic with Larson. To those younger guys, Larson and Raz were like big brothers, but each in a different way. Larson was the stern older sibling, who would show up in Copas's room on a Sunday night and drink fifteen beers while watching episodes of The Unit, thereby leading Copas to assume that our physical training the next morning was going to be a cakewalk. Then he'd reappear at 6 a.m. and announce that even though we'd won our last football game against Blue Platoon, we hadn't won by enough points. So everyone was going to do a 20-mile warm-up run and spend the rest of the morning doing uphill wind sprints until at least half of us puked. Larson was also a no-nonsense big brother, in the sense that he was always teaching us stuff. Often he'd come in the barracks and look around to see if he could spot somebody who wasn't doing anything. Grab that 240 and meet me out back, he'd say. Next thing that guy would know, he'd be in the middle of a three-hour machine gun tutorial. Raz, on the other hand, was the let's smooth things over big brother. If, say, you'd been dumped by your girlfriend, or if you'd just gotten done puking after Larson had smoked the entire platoon, Raz was the guy who would come up and give you a bear hug just to make you feel better. He was also the guy you would call when you wanted to get drunk, as well as the guy you called when you were trying to extract yourself from trouble after having gotten drunk. And he was the guy you'd turn to for the sort of favor that you'd never ask Larson for. Like, say, a ride to the airport when you were heading home on Thanksgiving. Even though you knew that Raz might pick you up two hours late because he was, of course, drunk. The bottom line was that Raz liked to drink almost as much as he liked to fight. But what he enjoyed even more than both of those things combined was being on good terms with almost everybody in the platoon. In the context of his tumultuous upbringing and the lost years that had preceded his time in the army, Red Platoon may have been the closest he'd ever come to having something that felt like a home and a family. Throughout the late winter of 2008, as the last of our new arrivals trickled in and everyone slowly found his place, the platoon started to gel. To be sure, there were a few weak links in our chain. Three of our recruits were too lazy to whip themselves into shape and constantly dragged their feet on the ruck marching that we were doing in the mountains outside of Colorado Springs. Another newcomer, a guy by the name of Josh Danley, developed a bad habit of dumping out the contents of his med pouch, the bandages and drugs that your buddies would use to save your life if you got hit, and filling the thing up with cheese and crackers, so that he'd have something to munch on while he was pulling guard duty. And Ryan Wilson was such a mess, not just on a symbolic level, but also literally, that one afternoon Kirk ordered him to pack up the entire contents of his barracks room, set everything up outside, and then stand there for several hours holding a poster that demonstrated how a clean and properly organized room should look. Those examples may seem innocuous, but they illustrate a key point. Civilians often harbor the impression that a platoon consists of a band of brothers, but that's almost never the case. Any time that you throw 19 or 20 young men together, not all of them are going to get along. And in the army, that tendency is further torqued by the fact that not everyone is a badass. The upshot is that you tend to wind up with a tight nucleus of insiders who like and trust one another, orbited by a scattered cluster of loners who never seem to fit in. 
Nevertheless, by the following spring, I was starting to believe that we had built up a crack unit, a platoon that was cohesive and capable enough to qualify as stacked. Across the spectrum and as a team, we had an extremely aggressive mindset, whether it was playing football or going out and running a patrol. We didn't wait on anything, ever. We weren't afraid to pull the trigger on any aspect of life, and we were unconcerned with the consequences, both good and bad, of going with what we thought was the right call. Needless to say, those qualities don't always work well in normal life. But Bunderman was nevertheless pleased with what he was seeing because on the battlefield, this type of mindset is essential. What's more, as we prepared to deploy overseas, it seemed like there was something about us that made us stand apart. And oddly enough, part of the proof, at least in my view, lay in our reluctance to fully participate in the kind of swagger that the army tends to foster at the platoon level, where virtually every unit is completely convinced that it's God's gift to the U.S. military. By this point, the guys in white platoon, whose barracks were right next door to ours, had adopted warlords as their call sign. Meanwhile, the guys over in blue, one building down, were insisting on being referred to as the bastards. Under different circumstances, we might have selected a comparable handle for ourselves. But somehow that didn't strike us as classy. We preferred to keep things simple. So instead of coming up with a jazzy moniker to trumpet what total badasses we were, we decided that we'd let our actions speak for us. We were just red, and nothing more. But if you wanted something done, regardless of how messy or unpleasant it might be, all you needed to do was to call us up, and it would get handled. If that offers a decent summary of how we rolled, it shouldn't be taken to mean that we were always happy with our lot, a fact that is perhaps best illustrated by Kirk's response when we finally got the news about where, exactly, we were headed in Afghanistan. He was familiar with the spot, having been posted close enough not only to hear the rumors, but also to talk directly to guys who had been there and seen it firsthand. That place, he announced, is a fucking death trap. Chapter 3 Keating The province of Nuristan is so isolated and poor that U.S. soldiers who have logged time there often refer to it as the Appalachia of Afghanistan. Like Appalachia, this region on the southern side of the Hindu Kush is home to a population of fiercely independent people who have a reputation for insularity and backwardness and who take a dim view of outsiders. They also know how to fight. These are the direct descendants of tribes that went up against the armies of invading emperors like Tamerlane and Babur and even Alexander the Great. More recently, their fathers and grandfathers were the first Mujahideen guerrilla fighters to rise up against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. The revolt they kicked off inspired other parts of the country to join the rebellion, which bled the Russians for the better part of a decade until the last Red Army units finally limped back across the northern border in the winter of 1989. Within a few months, a series of revolutions in Eastern Europe, triggered in part by the disaster that the Russians had endured in Afghanistan, would culminate in the fall of the Berlin Wall, and soon thereafter, 
the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. If you're not from this part of the world, you should think very carefully before you decide to fuck with the people of Nuristan. When the U.S. government decided to fling itself into Afghanistan following the attacks of 9-11, it encountered a problem in the eastern part of the country that would have made every Russian commander who had served time in the region back in the 1970s nod in recognition. By the summer of 2005, American forces and their NATO allies found themselves confronting a sharp increase in insurgent activity along the Pakistan border, right where Nuristan sits. Here, in a forbidding sector of impossibly steep mountains, pierced by rushing rivers of snowmelt, Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters were employing a network of secluded valleys as transportation corridors to move fighters and weapons between the two countries. There were rumors that this corridor system may have also been used to smuggle Osama bin Laden out of Afghanistan sometime after U.S. forces drove him from his fortress of caves in the mountains of Tora Bora. If you sat down in front of a map and plotted out these routes, they looked exactly like the supply lines that the Afghan Mujahideen had used to funnel men and arms against the Soviets back in the 80s. In the summer of 2006, the American military decided to tackle this problem by making a firm push into Nuristan and Kunar, the province directly to the south, with the aim of establishing a string of forward bases deep inside both provinces. The idea was that these bases would enable us to disrupt the enemy's supply lines while simultaneously winning over suspicious local villagers by providing them with things they lacked. New roads, clean drinking water, schools. The initial phase of this thrust was known as Operation Mountain Lion, and most of the donkey work was performed by units from the Army's 10th Mountain Division. The operation took roughly three months, and by the end of this period, they had established almost a dozen outposts, including a handful of very small bases along an extremely narrow road that winds next to the Kunar River and one of its main tributaries. Each of those outposts seemed more remote and inaccessible than the last. But the final one, which would eventually come to be called Keating, was in a class all by itself. Wars, observed writer Sebastian Younger during a year that he spent with a small unit of American soldiers in Kunar province, are fought with very heavy machinery that works best on top of the biggest hill in the area and used against men who are lower down. That, in a nutshell, is military tactics. In two sentences, Younger nailed the most elementary principle of small arms combat a concept that dates back to when the cutting edge of military technology was catapults and war elephants. In the face of that truth, which represents a distillation of roughly 4,000 years of martial wisdom, it's not unreasonable to ask why, when they sat down to draw up the plans for Keating in the summer of 2006, the intelligence analysts at the 10th Mountain Division thought that this principle could be tossed out the window. In one form or another, that question continues to haunt every soldier who later served there. The location the analysts selected was unacceptable by almost any yardstick you'd care to measure it with. Positioned only 14 miles from the Pakistan border, the site was ensconced in the deepest valley of Nuristan's Kamdesh district at a spot that resembled the bowl of a toilet. 
It was surrounded by steep mountains, whose summits went as high as 12,000 feet, and whose ridgelines would enable an enemy to pour fire down on the outpost while remaining concealed behind a thick scrim of trees and boulders. To mount an attack, the Taliban needed only to scramble along its ratlines, the foot trails lining the backsides of the ridges that the enemy used to bring in supplies and ammunition, set up and start shooting directly into the compound. In military parlance, this is known as plunging fire, and it is extremely difficult to suppress, because whenever the defenders started returning fire in earnest, the enemy had only to disappear down the far side of the ridges. The moment the defense let up, the enemy was free to return and resume work. This pattern of strike and dodge would continue until the Americans called in their attack helicopters from Jalalabad, 80 miles away, its fighter jets and Spectre gunships from Bagram Airfield just outside of Kabul, 200 miles, or, when things really got bad, the long-range B-1 bombers in Qatar, more than 1,300 miles away. This enormous tactical disadvantage was obvious to anybody inside the base, who took the trouble to tilt his head and look up. But that was only the start of Keating's liabilities. In addition to the fact that it was ringed by mountains, it was flanked by rivers, the Darya Kushtaz on the west, which separated the outpost from its helicopter landing zone, and the Lande Sin to the north. It also sat adjacent to Ermul, home to about twenty families whose mud-brick homes, and in particular their mosque, offered additional cover for enemy fighters. And as a final grace note, the closest U.S. base, which was located in the little village of Naray and would eventually come to be known as Bostik, was a six-hour drive along the only road in, which was barely thirteen feet wide and often skirted the edge of impossibly steep cliffs. In short, the site was remote, isolated, virtually impossible to supply, and so breathtakingly open to plunging fire that massive amounts of artillery and air power would be required to defend it. Those flaws were so glaringly evident that the young specialist who was ordered to draw up the initial plans dubbed it Custer. If you wanted to find an illustration of the worst possible place to build a firebase, a site that violated every morsel of wisdom that had been pounded into the heads of the soldiers who would be ordered to defend Cop Keating, it would be hard to come up with a better example than this. And yet that's exactly what the army did in the summer of 2006. The problems started surfacing almost immediately. Within three weeks of the first trooper's arrival, the camp was assaulted in force. Not once, but twice. The second time involved a three-pronged attack that demonstrated how exposed the soldiers inside the new location were to enemy surveillance and fire. Meanwhile, the overland supply line turned out to be unusable. Armed convoys met heavy resistance on the narrow mountain road from Bostik, and the resulting firefights also prevented Afghan construction workers from improving the road. To further terrorize the locals, insurgents set up fake checkpoints then began cutting off the ears and noses of Afghan truck drivers who worked for the Americans. The perils of that road, which by now everyone was calling Ambush Alley, were demonstrated most graphically that autumn when a young American soldier, a bright and energetic lieutenant from Maine, attempted to drive a massive armored supply truck, 
one that never should have been taken up the road to begin with, back to Bostick. When the berm collapsed under the weight of the nine-ton vehicle, the truck was sent plummeting over a 300-foot cliff toward the Lande Sin River. The officer was flung from the cab, and when his comrades climbed down to him, they found him broken in so many places they barely knew where to begin. His legs had multiple open fractures. Both of his feet appeared to have been almost severed at the ankles. His back was broken, and he was bleeding profusely from the head, abdomen, and groin. After applying tourniquets and splints, his rescuers placed him on a stretcher and began pulling him back toward the road. Halfway up, his pulse disappeared. By the time he reached the top, he was obviously dead. Still, they flew him to Bostick by helicopter, where the doctors spent forty minutes attempting to resuscitate him with open cardiac massage. His name was Ben Keating, and in addition to ending the use of the road, his death gave the outpost its official name. That was November of 2006. During the next two years, the regular drumbeat of attacks took an increasing toll on each succeeding unit of soldiers until, in October of 2008, a targeted assassination attempt was made on Keating's then-commander, Captain Robert Yeskis, who later died from his wounds. This meant that two of the outpost's four American commanders had now been killed. By this point, it was obvious to everyone that Keating was simply too isolated to defend, and so plans were finally set in motion to shut the base down, a decision that actually compromised Keating's security even further, because now no additional effort or resources would be invested into improving the fortifications. This didn't bode well for Keating's final group of soldiers, the unlucky cavalry troopers who would be tasked with one of the most unenviable missions one can imagine. Because the only thing worse than being ordered to defend an outpost that never should have been built is having to dismantle the thing and take it down. That, in a nutshell, is what me and the rest of Black Knight Troop were told to prepare for as we boarded the first of a series of flights that would take us from the airstrip at Fort Carson, through Germany, Kyrgyzstan, and eventually to Jalalabad Airfield, where we spent several days on the tarmac awaiting the final set of helicopter rides that would drop us into Bostik, Keating's main source of support and supplies, as well as the final jumping-off point in the journey to our new home. In the Hindu Kush, pilots often say that the weather is valley to valley. What that means is that on any given morning, especially in the fall, one drainage can be bright and clear, while its neighboring sector just a few miles away can be shrouded in storm. Depending on the wind, the temperature, and a host of other variables, you might be able to fly up and down the entire Kunar Valley without a second thought, while the Kamdesh Valley is buttoned down tight enough to make even the shortest flight unthinkable. For military aviators, especially those who pilot the low-flying helicopters that were responsible for providing transportation and close air support to American ground troops in the spring of 2009, this made for one of the most challenging flying environments on Earth. The helicopter pilots of the 7th Squadron, 17th Cavalry Regiment, 159th Combat Aviation Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division were the bread-and-butter backbone of the war effort in those mountains, and one of the machines they flew, 
the CH-47 Chinook, served as flying delivery trucks that hauled everything imaginable, from hand grenades and claymore mines to pop-tarts, air conditioners, and incoming groups of soldiers like us. By this point, things had gotten so bad that the Chinook pilots from Jalalabad were wary of flying into Keating for anything other than to deliver diesel fuel, food, and ammo. Even then, they would make their runs only during low illum, the portion of the month when there was little or no moonlight to paint a chopper into a fat target for the Taliban gunners. So it wasn't until May 27th that we had a night dark enough for them to bring in our advance party, a group that included me, Bunderman, and First Sergeant Burton, plus two of our medics and half a dozen other guys. By the time we hit the landing zone, it was well after midnight. We could barely see a thing as we helped shove crates out the back of the double-bladed bird. Then we were ushered up to the chow hall for a quick bite to eat. It was confusing in the dark, and despite our night vision goggles, we couldn't see much. Every major feature of what was about to become our home, the twenty-odd small buildings clustered haphazardly inside an area the size of a football field, was shrouded in shadow. As for the terrain beyond the wire, it was completely invisible. The soldiers who would be turning the place over to us didn't show us much that first night before we hit our racks and bedded down, mainly just the piss tubes and the latrines. And then, very first thing the next morning, we were under attack. We hadn't even awoken when the Taliban started blasting us with small arms fire from places in the surrounding slopes whose names would soon become way too familiar. The North Face, the Putting Green, the Diving Board, the Switchbacks. They also punched us with a couple of 84-millimeter explosive rounds from a B-10 recoilless rifle, rounds that came in with a whoosh and a roar that left us stunned. In the middle of this attack, a soldier who belonged to the unit we would be relieving ducked into the barracks and told us that one of their sergeants had just taken a nasty shot to the head. To prevent additional casualties, he said, it would probably be best if us new guys refrained from running around and instead stayed put inside the barracks. As he left, we all agreed that we were being offered an extremely useful gut check, the sort of reminder that drove home not only how dangerous this place was, but also how vulnerable we would be. A few minutes later, when the incoming fire died down, we stepped outside to take stock of our surroundings. That was when we got our real gut check. I leaned back and gasped in amazement as I gazed up at the mountains and ridgelines shooting into the sky in every direction, steep-sided escarpments studded with exposed granite and blanketed with trees that made the trails running through them completely invisible. Man, I said to myself, I'm going to build some strong neck muscles in this place over the next year. That was followed by a more sobering realization. The placement of the outpost not only made no sense, anyone could shoot into the perimeter from almost any position you'd care to imagine, but it violated everything I'd ever been taught. Almost without realizing it, I started running through a checklist of broken rules. A large, diffuse perimeter too big for defenders to man a sufficient number of guard posts? Check. 
Nowhere to hide, aside from a few low-slung buildings and a couple of armored Humvees? Yep. A helicopter landing zone on the far side of a river? Roger that. This is like being in a fishbowl, I muttered. Those fuckers can see everything we do. My final thought that morning was of Kirk and his warnings about what a terrible position this was. Kirk really liked to embellish things, so most of us, me included, had brushed him off. But now that I was here, I could see that for once, he hadn't been blowing smoke up our butts. Kirk, you bastard, you were right, I said. This place is a total shithole. That very first day, those of us in the advance party spent most of our time walking around the outpost in an effort to get a sense of how the place was laid out. The primary structures at Keating were fashioned from stone and wood, and most of them had plywood roofs reinforced with sandbags. The walls of the command post and those of the barracks for each platoon were more than a foot thick. The roofs of these structures were also reinforced with up to five inches of concrete, plus a layer of sandbags on top, which meant that they were capable of sustaining direct hits from rockets or mortars. The other location that enjoyed heavy protection was the mortar pit, a small niche tucked beneath an overhanging rock on the southwestern corner of the outpost. This is where the 120mm and 60mm mortars were located, along with a concrete barracks for the four-man crew who served those guns. But most of the other buildings inside the wire, including the latrines, the showers, and the chow hall, were much more vulnerable. Slapped together with plywood and two-by-sixes, they had no protection whatsoever from direct or indirect fire. The buildings were also arranged haphazardly, with little or no sense of a larger plan. There were narrow alleyways running between some of them, while others were connected by shallow trenches. A handful of them simply sat out in the open, with nothing to shield or protect them other than some camo netting and a few trees. There were also a total of 577 HESCOs, five-foot-high, seven-foot-wide wire mesh containers filled with dirt, which offered an effective shield against explosions and small-arms fire. The HESCOs were strung together to form Keating's outer walls on the east, north, and west sides of camp, plus one major wall that ran directly through the center of the outpost on a north-to-south axis. The southern perimeter was protected only by triple-strand concertina wire. To supplement those barriers, the camp maintained five main battle positions, from which we could lay down heavy defensive fire and hopefully stop an attack. Four of these were armored Humvees, each of which featured a gun turret on top of the cab. The fifth position was a tower built into a building that overlooked the front gate on the northwest side of camp. The weapon systems on the gun trucks and the tower included three 50 caliber machine guns, a pair of Mark 19 grenade launchers, and two M240 heavy machine guns. The tower and two of those trucks were also equipped with sophisticated but highly finicky electronic sensors that, in theory, would enable us to detect any enemy movements within the vicinity and lay target grids over them. Known as LRAS, which stood for Long Range Advanced Scout Surveillance System, these devices were rarely operative and therefore all but useless. 
To really get a sense of what surrounded the outpost, you had to actually get outside the wire on patrol. When we did that on our second day, I was able to start familiarizing myself with the geographic features that would dominate life at Keating. Keating was nestled on the south side of the Daria Kushtaz River and situated at the base of two mountains. On the southwestern side, at the rear of the outpost and directly behind you if you were facing the river, a huge escarpment rose more than a thousand feet. A zigzagging trail, known as the Switchbacks, ascended that escarpment from our outer perimeter all the way up to the ridge, which stretched in an unbroken line to the southeast, where a massive rock, which was known as the Diving Board, protruded into the sky. The flanks of this massif were approximately sixty degrees steep, and the ridge line offered superb cover for enemy gunners to look and shoot directly into camp. On the opposite side of the river, which was spanned by a small footbridge that marked the spot where Captain Yeskus, Keating's former commander, was assassinated, an even larger hulk directly faced the outpost. This feature, which was known as the North Face, was so steep that in places it approached dead vertical, which is why one of the previous units had placed ropes along it. The only way to reach the top was by old-school Batman-style moves, going hand over hand directly up the cliff. In the most vulnerable spots, a single slip or gunshot could send you straight to the bottom, 1,500 feet below. In addition to the northern and southern walls, there was a third significant feature. Directly to the west, and looming over the little village of Urmul, was a massive 1,500-foot-high spur known as the Putting Green. Like the northern and southern walls, this terrain was steep, heavily vegetated with thick trees and shrubs, and boasted numerous crevices and rocky outcroppings. Together, these walls and ridgelines virtually ringed the outpost, while providing superb cover and concealment for the forces that were watching over us. All of this would have been disturbing enough by itself. But what truly rattled me, Bunderman, and the rest of our advance party was the placement of our observation post. Most firebases like Keating are protected by a small, heavily fortified encampment that is separate from the main outpost. Known as an observation post, or OP, it is typically perched on the highest ground and has a direct line of sight to the main base, so that the tiny group of soldiers who are stationed inside it can provide defensive cover with their machine guns and mortars. Thanks to the surrounding mountains, however, the highest ground at Keating sat back beyond the ridge lines running across the top of the switchbacks. This meant that our observation post, which was known as Fritchy, and was manned by a single platoon of roughly twenty-five men, had no direct line of sight linking it to Keating. Fritchie was crucial to Keating's security because the OP was armed with 60 and 120 millimeter mortars that were capable of bringing some serious hurt down on any enemy position for which we could provide ten-digit grid coordinates. So long as we had radio contact, and as long as Fritchie's guns were operational, the chances of the 50 Americans inside the wire down at Keating surviving an all-out assault were significantly increased. But there was also a zone of dead space between Fritchie and Keating, inside of which we simply could not see a damn thing. Within this blind spot, which was immense, the enemy could move anywhere they wanted, 
any time they wanted without our knowledge. It was yet another tactical weakness that the enemy understood perfectly and knew exactly how to exploit. To say that this terrain was disorienting would be an understatement. Even Larson, who was one of the best scouts I've ever known, never felt as if he truly had a firm grasp on direction and was continuously confusing east and west. As absurd as it may sound, there was something about being at the bottom rather than the top of those mountains that made it exceptionally difficult for us to keep our compass points straight. Eventually, most of us would orient ourselves off of the north face and use it as a kind of running cheat sheet because the direction was embedded in the name itself. In addition to all of this, there was also the tactical and strategic pièce de résistance on the Keating smorgasbord, which was our helicopter landing zone, or LZ. One of the details that we'd missed when the Chinook dropped us down in the middle of the night was that the LZ, which was nothing more than a flat stretch of dirt about the size of a basketball court, was located at the end of a concrete bridge on the far side of the Daria Kushtaz River which ran along the western side of the outpost outside our wire. This meant that every time a helicopter was preparing to touch down, we would be required, in effect, to retake our own LZ. This posed an enormous security risk, while making our logistics challenges immensely harder. Everything that came into that LZ would need to be carried by us across the bridge and through our front gate while exposed to enemy gunners. Even worse, if we found ourselves under siege and unable to secure the landing zone, it would be impossible for a helicopter to bring in supplies or ammunition or evacuate our wounded. We didn't know it at the time, but this would emerge as a critical issue during the battle that awaited us, imposing limitations that would ultimately prevent us from helping one of our wounded in a way that would haunt Keating's survivors for the rest of our lives. But that is getting ahead of the story. Keating's liabilities were glaring enough that we were able to spot most of them within the very first day. But there was one more vulnerability that wasn't quite so obvious, at least not at first glance. The main entry point to the outpost consisted of a swing-leaf gate, which was located at the point where the road that ran along the bottom of the river valley passed by the northwest corner of the outpost. The flimsy protection afforded by that metal gate arm, which you were supposed to raise to allow vehicles to pass into the camp, was further compromised by the fact that its hinges had long since broken off. Fortunately, the entire entryway lay directly beneath the armored guard tower and a machine gun that was manned night and day, which meant that it would be difficult for the enemy to storm the gate. Keating's back door, however, was an entirely different matter. The center of camp was defined by a cluster of buildings that included, among other structures, our command post, barracks, aid station, and dining hall, plus small pieces of infrastructure like our tool shed and electric generators, as well as a mosque. Directly to the east of this area, and extending all the way to the perimeter, was a cluster of small shacks that housed our allies from the Afghan National Army, or ANA, who were supposed to provide additional manpower. These men were a real problem. They hailed from the 6th Kandak, a battalion-sized unit 
that had perhaps the worst reputation and performance record in the entire Afghan army. Created just one year earlier, the unit was poorly disciplined and badly led, and in addition to that, they refused to allow themselves to be integrated into our command structure. Although they were supposed to number around 40 men, it was impossible to know how many Afghan soldiers were inside Keating at any given time, because they tended to disappear on unauthorized leave whenever they felt the need to go home, especially during the month of Ramadan at the end of the summer. These men had almost no interest in training with us, and they often refused to join us on patrol, preferring instead to huddle within their living area taking naps and smoking hashish. We viewed them as lazy and incompetent, but what made them truly dangerous was that they refused to use the main latrines, which would have entailed walking an extra fifty yards to the west. Instead, they trampled down the concertina wire on the east side of Keating's perimeter, enabling them to duck into and out of camp whenever they needed to relieve themselves. So in addition to the front gate, which featured security procedures and ID checks beneath the watchful eye of whoever was on the heavy machine gun in the guard tower, the camp also had a rear entry through which anyone could come and go any time he pleased. As bad as the Afghan army soldiers were, at least they had one thing going for them, which was a pair of highly experienced NATO soldiers from Latvia who'd been assigned to train and keep tabs on them. The Latvians were competent, resilient, and did everything they could to boost the Afghans' discipline and skills. This meant that despite their many faults, the ANA were marginally better than two other groups of locals, a small contingent of Afghan security guards, ASG, who were supposed to help guard the front gate, and a team of Afghan National Police, ANP, who maintained a tiny checkpoint on the road just outside of it. These two groups could not be counted on for anything whatsoever, aside from falling asleep at their posts in the middle of the day. The ANA, the ASG, the ANP. We never really understood how this confusing array of groups was supposed to link into our larger mission. And a giant part of that confusion stemmed from the fact that the larger mission was itself something of a mystery, at least to us. If I had to explain why we'd been sent to Keating and what we were supposed to accomplish there, what it apparently boiled down to was that we were helping the Afghan government beef up security just enough to kickstart commerce in the region. This would enable local people to start making money, which they could then use to buy a bunch of DVD players and toasters and other sweet stuff for themselves and their families, thereby magically transforming Nuristan into a hub of vibrant economic development. At this point, the government could hold elections, which would enable folks to race off to the ballot box and vote to shut down the Taliban, whereupon everybody could kick back in front of their new TV sets, break out some cocktails, and enjoy themselves. Needless to say, this is a poor representation of the U.S. military's strategy at the time, which was to use Keating and other remote combat outposts to tie up the insurgents' resources in the hopes of preventing them from attacking larger towns and cities to the south. But this is what we thought we were being asked to do as the remaining members of Black Knight Troop were shuttled into the landing zone over the next week. It's also probably worth noting that we didn't spend a lot of time and energy thinking about the bigger picture, because we were focused on smaller but far more urgent challenges— 
the main one being to figure out how the hell we were going to survive until it came time to shut this place down. That was pretty much the first question that ran through the minds of the new arrivals over the next several days as they stepped out of the Chinook. You could see the dismay playing across their faces during those initial moments when they took it all in and realized just how stuck we were. By the end of that week, the last members of Red Platoon arrived in a group that included Jones and Copus. When they landed, it was so dark that they had to hold on to each other and blindly feel their way through the little maze around the barracks. The next morning, when I took them on a field trip to introduce them to the outpost, Jones summed up their reaction with his usual eloquence. Oh yeah, absolutely, he muttered to himself while hitting Copus with a knowing look. We are so fucked. Chapter 4 Inside the Fishbowl When we finally completed our handoff with the unit we were replacing, Black Knight had three frontline platoons at Keating, blue, white, and red. We also had a headquarters platoon on station that included our commanding officers, medics, forward observers, and radio operators, along with our mortar crew, plus a cluster of mechanics, cooks, and other support personnel. The plan was that HQ platoon would stay inside the perimeter while each of the three frontline platoons rotated through Fritchie for stints of about a month at a time, providing overwatch for the rest of us down inside the perimeter. These tours at Fritchie were highly coveted because there was so little supervision at the observation post. Once a platoon was up there, they pretty much got to run their own show. Blue was lucky enough to get the first stint, and Red would have loved to have been ordered to replace them when they came down. The job was given to White, however, because Captain Melvin Porter, Keating's commander, didn't really trust me and my guys in Red. This was understandable, because we were the most arrogant and unruly platoon in the entire troop, and therefore the biggest pain in the ass. As Captain Porter grudgingly admitted, however, we also qualified, by a significant margin, as the best trained and the most aggressive soldiers under his command. That mindset was reflected in the eagerness with which we flung ourselves into the self-appointed mission of correcting Keating's many security vulnerabilities, an effort to which Porter did not respond well at all. By the end of our first two weeks, we had drawn up a long list of improvements that we wanted to make. This included everything from repairing the front gate to replacing the Claymore mines buried just outside the concertina wire on the southern perimeter. Porter responded by issuing denials on almost every one of our requests. That was frustrating, but what we found even harder to swallow was his refusal to go on the offensive. He continuously berated us for using up too much ammunition when we were attacked, and he gave the go-ahead for our mortar pit to fire rounds so infrequently that we started calling him no mortar porter. Porter's behavior, which amounted in our view to a failure to grasp the severity of our situation, struck many of us as outrageous. And on some levels, I suppose it was. But it's worth mentioning that, as in most combat situations, the picture was far more complicated than it may seem from the outside. Porter was balancing directives from his superiors that we didn't even know about. 
directives that included orders to avoid devoting too many resources to an outpost that was slated to be dismantled, and not to antagonize the local Afghan population by saturating the sector with overly aggressive patrols or unnecessary gunfire. On top of those demands, Porter himself was now on his third deployment and burned out far beyond his limits. In retrospect, although I found him a poor commander, I must acknowledge that many of the decisions he was forced to make during our time in Nuristan probably stemmed from far larger problems, including an army that was depleted and exhausted by two wars, multiple deployments, and inadequate resources. Nevertheless, we still had to deal with the fact that we were stuck inside a poorly placed outpost surrounded by an enemy bent on killing us, a situation that me and my guys counteracted by the only means at our disposal. At the slightest hint of provocation, we would burn through entire cases of ammo, unleashing the heavy machine guns and grenade launchers for longer and more sustained bursts than all the other platoons combined, until we finally received a direct order from Porter to cease fire. In the end, however, that didn't stop the Taliban from doing pretty much exactly what they wanted. From June through September, the enemy attacked relentlessly, nailing us at least every other day, sometimes for multiple sessions in the same day. At the time, it seemed as if their main purpose behind these strikes was simply to screw with us. Occasionally, for example, they'd hit us early in the morning with no more than a single burst of small arms fire, the kind of spray and prey that appeared devoid of any tactical or strategic purpose other than harassment. More often than not, however, these attacks were serious, a sustained barrage from the boulder looming over our mortar pit that we had dubbed RPG Rock, or a well-placed round from their Russian B-10 recoilless rifle, which was hidden somewhere high in the slopes off to the east in a place that we couldn't ever seem to pinpoint. That B-10 was a crude piece of junk, a two-wheeled Soviet-era cannon with an explosive shell whose design had barely changed since World War II. It said something about the Taliban, though, that they were able to get results from it. When they fired the thing off, it sounded like a freight train was dropping down on top of us, and the damage it could inflict was fearsome. Just a few days after we arrived, Jeff Jacobs, the platoon sergeant and therefore the senior enlisted officer in white platoon, caught a couple of pieces of shrapnel in the face. It broke his jaw, shattered most of his teeth, and got him a plane ticket to Walter Reed, where the doctors had to patch up the hole in his right cheek with a metal plate. It said something about us, I suppose, that before the end of that year, Jacobs would be back in Afghanistan. Eventually, we would come to understand that the Taliban's primary aim with these attacks was to suck up information. Each time they provoked a response from us, they were able to refine their analysis by observing our patterns of movement and teasing out our weaknesses. Sometimes their small arms fire or a single round from B-10 recoilless rifle would be concentrated in the east. Then, all of a sudden, a bunch of RPGs would erupt from the switchbacks to the west. Each attack gave them a better understanding of our defensive capabilities on the perimeter and helped them determine where they could put down the most effective fire when they finally decided to throw the kitchen sink at us. 
During the lulls between those attacks, life at Keating was still no picnic. The two frontline platoons at the main outpost were responsible for force protection, which was a fancy term for standing guard, and they traded this duty back and forth every seven days. During the week when your platoon was on guard, you and your guys were responsible for manning all five main battle positions, the front gates and our quartet of heavily armed Humvees, for two-hour stretches, twenty-four hours a day, without any let-up. When we came under attack, the number of battle positions that needed to be manned would double. This would have been difficult enough on its own, but our security challenges were made considerably more complicated by the number of local Afghans who were inside the post. Odd as it may sound, a kind of symbiosis had evolved between us and the local people who lived in a handful of small villages that lay within a half-day's walk of Keating, despite the fact that almost all of those villages were also supplying fighters to the Taliban. Many of the residents were sympathetic to the insurgents, even if they were not actually Taliban themselves. At the same time, they were desperately poor, and we provided a much-needed source of income, which is why a lot of these folks were only too happy to take on construction work and other tasks that we needed help with. This gave rise to a rather bizarre arrangement. Each morning, a parade of Afghans filed into the outpost through our broken front gate. Every night, just before dusk, they filed back out again and returned to their homes. This meant that on most days, Keating's interior played host to a colorful population of locals. Most of them hung out in what we called the Haji Shop, a closet-sized building wedged into one of the Hesco walls just a few steps from our ammunition depot. The shop was run by a thin man with a hardened look about him, whom we called John Deere because of the baseball cap he always wore. He kept the place stocked with terrible cigarettes, cheap T-shirts emblazoned with the Afghanistan flag and the words Afghan Commando, which all the ANA soldiers wore, and Boom Booms, a knockoff energy drink that tasted like Smarties, and that a lot of my guys thought was actually pretty good. John Deere, who was also in charge of the Afghan security guards who manned the checkpoint at the front gate, lived inside the store, which he had accessorized with a couch and a television set. On any given morning, the Haji shop would draw a crowd of Afghan regulars who gathered to guzzle tea, banter, and hang out. Many of these men were distinctive enough that we assigned them nicknames like Sugar Man, the Snitch, and the Midget. There was an uncharacteristically aggressive Afghan National Army soldier who wanted to kill the Taliban so badly that sometimes he would get up and fire his rockets at night. We dubbed him RPG Guy. Another Afghan soldier preferred to park himself at the front gate, where he would laugh and chuckle all day long. He was so genuinely nice that most of my soldiers didn't have the heart to deny him permission to sit inside our guard truck, even though his eyes were perpetually bloodshot and he reeked of cannabis, which grew all around the outpost. We called him Bong Water. And finally, there was Ron Jeremy, a short, pudgy Afghan with exceptionally hairy features, who bore a remarkable resemblance to the hedgehog-like porn star. He was supposed to be our main interpreter, but we were rarely able to use him effectively because although he was fluent in Pashto, he didn't speak a word of Nuristani, 
In some ways, these characters provided a much-needed diversion from the drudgery of our routine. In other ways, they were a source of constant irritation and concern. Jones, who often pulled guard duty in the tower that loomed above the front gate, couldn't stand most of the Afghan army soldiers because they were so undisciplined and apathetic. Another thing that bothered him was the way that John Deere's security guards, who ran their checkpoint in the shadow of his machine gun, would allow women in burqas to waltz blithely through the gate without ever bothering to question them. Hey, search that lady! She's got some of the hairiest damn feet I've ever seen in my life! Jones would yell down from the tower as a figure in a blue and black burqa floated past. Will somebody please ask that bitch a question? This would draw no response whatsoever. As the guards placidly took another hit of cannabis or folded their arms and resumed their naps, Jones would throw his arms up in disgust and wave. Well, there goes the Taliban, he'd call out plaintively. See you later. Thanks for dropping by. Ceaseless vigilance in the face of such cartoonish apathy from our Afghan allies, combined with never being able to sleep for more than two hours at a time, was brutally draining on the men. Within the first month, things had gotten so bad that me and the rest of Red's leadership quietly started breaking rules and allowing our guys four hours of sleep during the weeks when we were pulling security. But even the seven-day breaks when we traded off with blue or white platoon didn't afford much relief. If we weren't on guard duty, we were sending patrols out beyond the wire almost every day in order to perform recon and try to spot infiltration. During these ventures, which we referred to as nature walks, each man hauled more than 60 pounds of gear, plus his weapons and ammo. The physical demands of moving up and down steep terrain with that much weight were intensely unpleasant. But if nothing else, these outings did expose us to the beauty of our surroundings. Even though Nuristan was wedged inside a country ravaged by thirty years of uninterrupted war and was home to God only knew how many millions of unexploded landmines, not to mention a traumatized population, it was about as close to paradise as any of us had ever seen. At almost every turn, we were greeted with another exquisite view. High above, the mountains with their caps of snow glistened in the sunlight against the hard blue sky. Far below, the streams tumbled along the valley floor, laden with bluish glacial silt. And everywhere in between lay a lush emerald green carpet of vegetation on the east and north-facing slopes, while the more arid south- and west-facing slopes were adorned with desert shrubs and outcroppings of muted orange rock, which, early in the morning and late in the afternoon, looked as if it had been dipped in molten gold. Not far from the mortar pit, there was even a waterfall cascading down through a section of gray stones and surrounded by a grove of ancient, twisted trees. In a word, the place was gorgeous. Yet even as we remarked that it reminded us of Colorado's Rocky Mountain National Park, we never forgot that we were outsiders and that this place did not welcome our presence. In more ways than we could count, that hostility was reflected not only in the land itself, but also in the things that flourished there. You couldn't place your hand on a single surface 
without getting a fistful of barbs, because there were thorns everywhere. Each plant or tree seemed armed with spikes or claws, and the same was true of the wild creatures. All along the slopes of the mountains were enormous porcupines, larger than dogs with quills to match, and ill-tempered bands of monkeys that would perch on the cliffs and pelt us with rocks as we shuffled past. What was truly freaky, however, were the insects. There was a type of black ant that had legs like those of a spider. They could move so fast that if you sat down near a cluster of them while you were on patrol, they would swarm all over you. We couldn't find them listed in any book, so we called them crack ants. As for the actual spiders, they were enormous, with yellow-gray bodies the size of hot dogs that looked big enough to kill and eat birds. We couldn't find any references to them either, so we dubbed them vomit spiders. And when we were bored, we would place one of them in a coffee can together with a scorpion and watch them battle each other to the death. There were plenty of other creatures, too. Snakes that had horns coming out of their heads. Giant prehistoric-looking lizards with forked tongues and sharp claws. And a mysterious creature that only showed up on our surveillance system at night as it ghosted through the forest, and that Jonesy was convinced was a snow leopard, although none of us believed him. As unnerving as all of that was, what made these nature walks most disturbing was that when we were out on patrol, we finally got a bird's-eye view of just how vulnerable we were. You'd be shuffling along a stretch of ridgeline, somewhere up by the diving board or the switchbacks or the north face, and suddenly you'd gaze down at the outpost and realize just how many places there were, right there, from which to hide and shoot. To confirm that, you'd carefully raise your weapon and look through your scope down at the base, and then whistle softly to yourself. Damn, you'd say. They could do some real damage from here. Then you'd walk a hundred yards away, or maybe just fifty feet, then stop and stare through your scope again. Jesus, you'd murmur. This spot's even better than the last. But the creepiest thing of all, by far, the thing that messed with our minds more than the crack ants and the vomit spiders, more than the rock-throwing monkeys or the imaginary sniper posts, was when we'd stumble across a little patch of matted-down grass, an area that was maybe littered with one or two wrappers from Afghan candy bars, and you could tell that someone had been there, looking down on us through the scope of their own weapon, drawing the same conclusions that we had, and making note of it all. In between guard duty and going out on patrol, we were responsible for an endless range of chores that ran the gamut from unloading the Chinooks and resupplying the battle positions with ammo to rounding up all the garbage in camp and hauling it to the burn pit, a shallow hole that was on the far western side of the camp. The burn pit was continuously smoldering. Its fires never seemed to go out. Sometimes, it seemed like you would go up there and look in and see the same piece of trash that had been burning for weeks. And there were several Afghan guys hanging out there all the time because that's where they kept their stash of porn magazines. They had a bench to sit on, and they had their own umbrella. We envied those guys greatly, not just because of their quality porn and their leisure time, but also because they never seemed to get shot at. 
which was something that happened to us pretty much every time one of us went up there. We also got shot at when we went to get water, which we started having to do multiple times a day after Kirk took out the camp's water delivery system one afternoon when he tossed a hand grenade and accidentally hit the pipe about ten yards beyond the wire. From that point on, we had to send one of the junior guys, like Mace or Davidson or Gregory, out to the river just beyond the front gate, where he would fill up two plastic five-gallon buckets in which the fuel had been delivered, haul them back, and then return for more. The Taliban had so much fun shooting at the water guy that we had to establish two-man teams so that one guy could carry the water and the other guy could return fire. When it was hot and everybody was thirsty, they would schlep water all day long. As unpleasant as that was, however, it couldn't hold a candle to the most unpleasant chore of all, which was servicing the latrines. The shitter, as we called it, was a small shed fastened from cinder blocks that sat on an open stretch of ground about 150 feet from our shower trailer. Inside, there were plywood benches running along both walls, each of which featured a row of six holes with its own plastic toilet seat and a green and blue privacy curtain that never closed all the way, except for one, which was obviously the choice stall. The worst seat was the second one in on the right side, which had a curtain no bigger than a beach towel, which meant that you gave everyone a looky-loo. There was also one open hole, which was used by the Afghan security guards and the laborers, who preferred to squat rather than sit. Underneath each of the holes was an oil drum that had been cut in half with an acetylene torch, which would collect whatever fell into it. The bottom of the building was open so that the drums could be pulled out and the contents upended into a large metal barrel, a duty that fell to whichever of the lower enlisted guys happened to be pissing off me and the other sergeants the most. Once all the drums had been emptied, the boys on the burn detail would then douse the barrel with jet fuel and toss in a match. It sounds simple enough, but if you just stood there and watched it burn, the flames would incinerate only the top layer inside the barrel. So it was necessary to get a C-wire post, a metal fence post used to support the concertina wire we strung around the perimeter of camp, and vigorously stir the contents of the barrel while smoke from the aviation fuel and burning particles of poo wafted up into your face. This process could easily take as long as three hours, although it was accelerated somewhat if you tossed in a couple of charges, which were packets of explosives that we used to increase the distance of a mortar round by giving it an extra boost. When the mortar guys were willing to part with a few charges, the guys on the shitter detail would fling them with great satisfaction. We're such badasses, Copus used to brag, talking about Red Platoon that we even bring the fight to the poo cans. Even with the charges, however, latrine duty was still a horrible experience. The smell alone was enough to make you want to throw up. Worse, you could spend the better part of an afternoon incinerating an entire drum of poo, only to discover that at the end of it, there were still kernels of corn lurking at the bottom of the burn barrel. Which is the reason why you never wanted to burn shit if corn had been served for dinner the night before. It was amazing to me that the younger guys, especially Copus and Mace and Jones, somehow found a way to make all of that fun. They told themselves that at least they were mostly burning American feces 
rather than Afghan feces, and that this made all the difference. And they tried not to think about the fact that while they were standing in hundred-degree heat, being coated with poo goo, the rest of the platoon was inside the barracks napping or playing Call of Duty on the Xbox. Most of the buildings at Keating were windowless, tin-roofed cubes that had been cobbled together from stacks of rocks and plywood, then reinforced with sandbags, which meant that from June through August, they basically functioned like saunas. Despite the oppressive heat, we had to spend almost all of our downtime indoors, thanks to the fact that virtually every square inch of the outpost was visible from the surrounding hills. There were no football or volleyball games, no relaxation of any kind in the open. If we stepped outside for any reason, to walk to the shed that housed the phones to call home, to use the piss tubes or the latrines, whatever respite we might have felt from the great heat indoors was negated by our full battle-rattle, almost thirty pounds of ceramic armor and Kevlar. Wearing armor was mandatory any time we were outside or on the move, so we were continuously drenched in our own sweat, which didn't help our ongoing odor problems. Thanks to a series of intractable glitches with the power generator and the water pump, we were lucky to get a shower once a week. Before too long, we were holding competitions to see who could build up the most impressive stink. Ryan Wilson, a private who was unmemorable in pretty much every other respect, was the undisputed champion when it came to B.O. When we weren't sleeping or on patrol, life during our downtime could become almost unbearably dull. To pass the hours, we played endless rounds of hearts and spades, and the Xbox was in constant rotation. Some of the guys also flung themselves heavily into fitness by going to the gym, a ten-foot-by-twelve-foot room located above headquarters platoon's barracks that was equipped with a Stairmaster, a treadmill, assorted dumbbells, and a broken bowflex. The regular workout crew included Kirk and Gallegos, plus Daniel Rodriguez and Kevin Thompson, who were part of the gun crew in our mortar pit. Thompson, a bear of a man who was extremely quiet and deeply fond of smoking weed, had developed a weight problem and was constantly logging time on the treadmill in an effort to shed some pounds. Mace often showed up too, although he concentrated exclusively on doing curls in order to beef up his biceps, in the hopes that his huge guns together with the effects of the extends he was taking, would impress the ladies when he went home on leave in September. By the middle of the summer, Kirk and Gallegos had gotten so fixated on bulking up that they were working out twice a day while pumping themselves full of bodybuilding supplements. The products they were ingesting, NO Explode, creatine powder, and whey protein, made them so gassy that they farted pretty much continuously filling the air with noxious fumes. Excessive flatulence might have presented a problem in the dining hall or the barracks, except for two things. Because at least one RPG had already gone through the roof of the chow hall and taken out the big screen TV, we almost never ate or hung out there. Instead, we preferred to bring our meals over to our barracks building, which was already so disgusting that some additional cheese cutting had no impact whatsoever. In addition to a pungent, nostril-clinging stink that featured a layered mix of corn chips, body funk, and ass, Red's barracks was also infested with fleas. 
the insects had established themselves so firmly that nothing could get rid of them. Despite that we all wore flea collars around our ankles and wrists, and that we'd managed to fly in a pest control team, they left in disgust. Each of us had flea bites all over our bodies. Nevertheless, we did our best to make the barracks feel like home. If you entered through the west door, walked down the hall, and peeked into the little sleeping cubicles known as hooches, most of which featured a single set of bunk beds that accommodated a pair of roommates, you could almost always spot a detail or two which revealed something about the personality of the occupants. Kirk and Gallegos's zone was relatively clean, reasonably well-ordered, and absolutely chock-full of ammunition. While it was true that we all liked to stash what Jones called a little something-something in our bunks in case the base was attacked while we were asleep, Kirk and Gallegos took this practice to the extreme. In addition to an impressive assortment of guns, Gallegos had ammo belts hanging from virtually every surface. Kirk, meanwhile, had pulled several raids on our ammo supply depot and managed to snatch up five AT-4s and something like 18 Claymore mines. Together, they were probably hoarding the most impressive stash of munitions and weapons outside of the arms room. A few feet down the hall was the hooch where Larson and Raz slept. If the curtain wasn't closed, it was best to avert one's eyes, because Raz, who detested wearing clothing except when it was absolutely necessary, was almost always naked, a situation that Larson accepted, as he did most things, with his trademark silence. Just beyond was the cubicle where Jones roomed with Kyle Knight, a specialist from Michigan, who was so messy that trash was literally rolling out of his bunk, onto the floor, and into the hall, a state of affairs that earned both Knight, who fully deserved it, and Jones, who was deemed guilty by proximity, the distinction of being the Dirty Birds. Finally, there was the little space that Hart shared with Mace, who won himself both envy and derision for the impressive collection of tasty snack goodies that his family kept sending him in care packages. When Mace let it be known that his packets of beef jerky and his cans of Chef Boyardee stew were off-limits to anybody who wasn't willing to at least ask before scarfing them down, Kirk, who prided himself on never letting anyone tell him what to do or not do, made a point of barging inside whenever Mace wasn't around, selecting something to eat, and ostentatiously leaving the wrapper behind, just to let Mace know that he'd stopped by. Later on, when Mace would return and spot whatever Kirk had left behind, he'd pad down the hall, peel back the curtain to Kirk and Gallegos's hooch, and retaliate by farting into their cubicle. Given how much gas the occupants were already putting out, this gesture was both pointless and ineffective. But it seemed to offer Mace some satisfaction, because he always returned to his bunk with a canary-eating grin. Given how close we were living inside those barracks, it didn't take much for us to get on one another's nerves. To relieve some of that tension, me and the other sergeants were constantly offering miniature training seminars, in everything from land navigation and radio operation to emergency medicine. We also held what we called Family Night, in which the entire platoon would gather around a tiny table in the entryway of the barracks so that we could all watch a movie together. Those things certainly helped. But to fully relax, it was necessary to step outside the barracks and head over to perhaps the only place in Keating where everyone, 
regardless of rank or seniority, truly felt at ease. Which was odd, because it was also the place where we gathered our wounded and dead. Chapter 5 Everybody Dies Although our medical facility was tucked up against the wall of Heskos, at the periphery of camp, it nevertheless served as the center of the outpost, the place, more than any other, that was the heart and soul of Keating. It wasn't much bigger than a kitchen in a modest suburban house, and there were no windows, just a plywood door that the medics propped open whenever we got into a firefight, so the wounded could be brought directly inside. The floor was an ugly blue linoleum. The walls were bare and gray. And above the rafters was a storage area that held large quantities of curlix for staunching arterial wounds, plus plenty of extra saline and drugs. Toward the back were two sets of bunks for the medics, Chris Cordova and Shane Corville, each of whom slept with a pair of fragmentation grenades next to him in his bed. Cordova, a captain, was a former X-ray technician from the Washington, D.C. area, who had become a physician's assistant before joining the Army. In addition to being a fitness addict who was deeply into triathlons and CrossFit training, he had the most extensive medical training of anybody at Keating. Corville, a staff sergeant who served as his assistant, was from a town in Vermont so small that he'd had 13 people in his high school graduating class. In addition to a previous stint in Afghanistan, he'd done two halls in Iraq, where he'd seen some horrific wounds inflicted on soldiers who were stationed inside the insurgents' haven between Mamadia, Yusufia, and Latafia, an area that was known as the Triangle of Death. This would be his fourth deployment. Corville's time in Iraq was important because it had exposed him to so much trauma. By the time he got to Keating, he had dealt with somewhere around 1,500 injuries, a mixture of Americans and Iraqis with the balance tipped toward the Iraqis. From the perspective of a medic, however, there was one thing that made Afghanistan fundamentally different from Iraq, which was that you couldn't simply staunch a wounded man's bleeding and expect that a helicopter would appear from out of nowhere to whisk your patient off to a hospital. The battle theaters of Afghanistan were too remote for that. Instead, many medics would have had to wait, on average, at least an hour and a half for a chopper to fly out their casualties. At Keating, it could take far longer, which is why Corville and Cordova knew that they needed not simply to offer effective triage treatment, but also to keep their patients alive long enough for the Helivac to show up. The aid station was set up to handle three wounded men at a time. The worst case would be taken directly inside, where there was a wooden frame designed to hold a stretcher at waist height. The other two casualties would typically be carried out to the cafe a wooden deck extending off the west wall of the building. This area was partially covered by a tin roof and camo netting, and it was further protected by a double-stacked wall of sandbags, about four and a half feet high. The medics had oxygen tanks, a ventilator, and a defibrillator that we never used. To administer saline and intravenous drugs, they would suspend bags from nails on the rafters in the ceiling. The walls also featured two whiteboards, the one by the litter frame kept track of the patient's vital signs. The other board was supposed to display the phone numbers of other buildings, such as the command post and the mortar pit. 
but instead we used it to run Keating's daily, incoming fire betting pool. The betting board kept track of the daily wagers everyone placed on when and where we were going to get hit next. The majority of those bets were logged on Fridays and Saturdays, because those were the days the Taliban most liked to nail us. The board also kept track of side bets on more nuanced wagers, like, for example, whether the attack would involve small arms fire or the B-10, or which gun trucks would get hit, and how many times. There was never money riding on these bets, because most of us didn't have any cash, so the stakes usually involved cigarettes or brass 50 caliber machine gun cartridges, which could be used as currency to purchase cigarettes. The aid station was pretty sweet for a number of important reasons, starting with the fact that the medics almost always had electricity, because they were connected into the command post's backup generator. This meant that they not only had air conditioning, but also their own phone as well as internet with a DSN line, which meant that you could call back home to the States or set up a Skype chat on the computer. Cordova and Corville were extremely generous with both the phone and the computer, and the guys who were married tended to lean on that generosity pretty heavily, even though, in a reflection of how much stress we were all under, their calls home would often lead to absurd and pointless arguments. One night, one of them found himself in a furious dust-up with his wife about the placement of a chandelier. Later, another dude got into a screaming match over where his wife had left the remote control to the TV. Jesus, muttered Copus, who had inadvertently overheard part of that call. Please tell me you are not fighting with your old lady about where she left the clicker. From Afghanistan. Despite those minor unpleasantries, the aid station offered an escape to which anyone who wanted could retreat to bullshit, hang out, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, and tell stories. Sometimes Corville and Cordova would prop the computer on the litter frame so that everyone could sit around and watch shows like The Wire or The Office. At other times, Corville would give classes on basic medicine or on how to use PowerPoint, while Cordova, who was deeply into stocks and investing, would offer many seminars on financial planning. But as nice as all of those things were, what really drew us into the aid station was the tone and vibe of the place. Because it was neutral ground, and because the medics floated inside a bubble that belonged neither to the world of the enlisted ranks nor to the realm of the officers, the aid station served, in effect, as Keating's de facto therapy shack. This was where NCOs like me would come in order to bitch to Corville about the dumb moves that our officers were trying to pull, and we knew that he'd listen with a willing and sympathetic ear. Those same officers, in turn, would come talk to Cordova about whatever it was that bothered them about the NCOs. In essence, the medics provided a one-stop shop for both physical and emotional treatment. And, of course, the other draw of the aid station was that it was where we kept perhaps the most important item in the entire outpost, aside from the poster featuring a Hooters waitress from back in Colorado Springs, the pair of lace panties that had belonged to the Russian tennis star. Her name was Maria Kirilenko, and that summer she would make it to the second round of Wimbledon before later going on to win a bronze medal at the 2012 London Olympics. Even more noteworthy, she had appeared in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition with two other female tennis players 
in a pictorial titled Volley of the Dolls. Our connection to Maria was first formed when a member of Red Platoon, who must remain nameless, sent her an email whose message more or less said, You might be able to kick my ass in tennis, but I could whip your ass in ping pong, along with the comment about being stuck in the mountains of Afghanistan, which you Russians should know all about. A few days later, a reply showed up that read, If you guys ever need someone to talk to, you know I'm always here. We ignored that, presuming it was either fake or had been sent by one of her handlers. But then a couple of weeks later, a package showed up in the mail whose return address was a house outside of London where female professional tennis players were supposed to live. Inside was a pair of white lace panties, carefully folded into a Ziploc bag. There was also a signed photo. The arrival of these two objects provoked a massive amount of Googling in an effort to confirm the address and authenticate the signature on the back of the photo. When we concluded that, to the best of our knowledge, the items were legit, we affixed the Ziploc bag to the whiteboard and established a policy that everyone agreed was fair. Anybody who wanted could come by at any time, open up the bag, and take a sniff, as long as he didn't touch the panties with his fingers and was careful to reseal the plastic. Those panties had the most amazing smell, a perfume that was, to us, as beguiling as it was mysterious and unknowable. As it would turn out, years later and through a strange twist of fate stemming directly from the outcome of the battle that we were about to fight, we would eventually track down and confirm the name of that scent. But this, too, is getting ahead of the story. As we approached the end of the summer, the Taliban attacks slowly increased, to the point where Keating was in total lockdown, except for the helicopters that were flying in diesel fuel and ammo. When those supplies arrived, the pace could be intense. The Chinooks would land in the middle of the night and dump their loads as fast as possible before dusting off. We'd bring the forklift or the bobcat across the bridge and onto the landing zone to haul the heaviest items back into camp but the rest of the stuff would have to be carried by hand, which could take hours. Then the bird would return, and we'd load it up with whatever we were sending out. There were plenty of times when we got done unloading a shipment just as the sun was about to come up and decided that there was no point in even going to sleep because we'd have to head out on patrol within the hour. But what we found even more frustrating than the lost sleep was that we weren't getting our mail. Sometime in August, after a delay of almost an entire month, we finally did receive one mail pouch. But the helicopter crew was in such a rush to dump the package that they accidentally dropped the thing in the river. After scrambling around in the dark, we managed to retrieve it, but the soaking upset some of the guys enough that a bunch of us decided that it was time to send a message out to the Chinook pilots. Submitting a formal complaint would have done nothing. So instead, we tromped into the aid station, fired up the computer, and found a website called poopsenders.com. For a modest fee, they would deliver to any address in the world a quart or gallon-sized package of dung from a variety of animals, including deer, rabbit, moose, cow, gorillas, and elephants, while keeping the identity of the sender anonymous. 
After much discussion, we decided to go with elephant dung, which would be delivered to the Chinook's home base in Jalalabad. We never quite managed to pull the trigger on actually placing that order. But the idea of responding to the shit we'd been taking from these pilots by sending them a consignment of actual honest-to-God shit struck us as brilliant and hilarious. At the time, we had absolutely no idea how ignorant we were about what was really going on, how brave those men were, the challenges that they were up against, or how important they would be to our survival. The helicopter pilots of Jalalabad were far more than just airborne delivery boys. They also flew attack helicopters, armed with a fearsome array of missiles, machine guns, and cannonry, with which they could, quite literally, drench the enemy in hellfire from virtually any position. These men and women were game-changers, the undisputed knights of the air. Without them, we would have been sitting ducks. Those pilots were led by Jimmy Blackman, a lieutenant colonel from Georgia, who had an impressive armada of choppers on the tarmac just beyond his headquarters at Jalalabad Airfield. Task Force Pale Horse, which Blackman was in charge of, consisted of 16 Kiowas, 6 Apaches, 6 Blackhawks, 4 Chinooks, and 3 Medivac helicopters, plus a trio of Hunter unarmed aerial vehicles for surveillance. The task force was staffed by almost 600 soldiers, and on any given week, the demands that were placed on them would be difficult for a civilian to comprehend. Each night, regardless of weather or moonlight, Blackman's pilots were moving people, equipment, and munitions around the battlefields along the Kamdesh, Korangal, and Kunar valleys. This meant that there was a finite limit on resources, and the decisions about how that limit was managed stemmed entirely from our brigade's priorities. If the brigade's commanders wanted to stage an air assault at Restrepo, one of the most vulnerable outposts in the Korangal, this meant that half a dozen other outposts might not get resupplied for 48 hours. When the resupply was finally carried out, the first priority would be ammunition, mortars, small arms, and 50 cal rounds. After that would come water and fuel. Rations for the men was bumped behind those things, and all the way at the tail end of the line was mail, the item that, as it turns out, has the greatest influence on soldiers' morale. The reality, which I didn't appreciate until years later, was that this constantly shifting alignment of priorities played havoc with the intricate task of sequencing a small number of aircraft beset by an endlessly exploding array of demands and flown by pilots who accepted appalling dangers. For a fully loaded Chinook that was carrying 10,000 pounds of cargo, there was one way in and one way out of Keating and it was right down the Kamdesh Valley, where the Taliban, fully aware of this necessity, made a point of shooting up the helicopters. On almost every mission the pilots launched, they found themselves in the airborne equivalent of a knife fight. All of this was more than enough for Blackman and his team to juggle, so receiving a shipment of elephant feces from a bunch of ground pounders at Keating would not have been appreciated. But late in the summer a series of events in eastern Afghanistan pushed Pale Horse even further into the red zone in a way that would have made our little prank totally unacceptable. From the first day that we arrived in Afghanistan, 
our superiors, Colonel Randy George, the brigade commander, and Lieutenant Colonel Robert Brad Brown, our squadron commander, had been pushing aggressively to have Keating shut down as quickly as possible. By midsummer, a plan to dismantle not only Keating, but also a few other exceptionally vulnerable outposts, had been signed off on by General Stanley McChrystal, who was in charge of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan, and there were hopes that we might be pulled out in the early autumn. Unfortunately, those plans were shoved to the back burner in the middle of the summer, when hundreds of insurgents and foreign fighters tried to seize a remote village just to the north of Keating. The place was called Barji Matal, and at the request of the Afghan government, which was afraid not only of losing its foothold in the area, but also of losing the upcoming elections, the U.S. Army started sending in troops and equipment. That drew off most of the air support we would need in order to dismantle Keating and evacuate, so our departure dates kept getting pushed further and further back. Meanwhile, Colonel Blackman juggled his four Chinooks to deliver what they needed to the American soldiers at Barji Matal, while simultaneously continuing to supply all the American outposts in the Camdash Valley. When he ran out of aircraft, he somehow managed to keep both missions going by borrowing extra helicopters from Bagram Airfield. By this point, however, yet another wrench had been thrown into the works. Sometime after midnight on June 30th, 2009, a young American soldier from Haley, Idaho, named Robert Bo Bergdahl, slipped off the remote outpost called Mest Malak in Paktika province, on the border with Pakistan. Bergdahl left behind his body armor, weapons, and a note saying he had become disillusioned with the army and was leaving to start a new life. Several hours later, when he was discovered to be missing, soldiers began a frantic search using drones, helicopters, and tracking dogs. When word arrived that Bergdahl had been seized by the Taliban and that his captors were going to try to move him to Pakistan, orders came down for a full court press to find and recover the missing American. The mission went to Task Force Attack, an aviation unit stationed at Salerno, a forward operating base in the southeastern part of Afghanistan. Throughout July and August, Attack was banging four and five targets a night, running down intel leads on where Bergdahl might be in the hopes of pulling him out. And that effort sucked up every last Chinook and Apache that Blackman had borrowed from Bagram. For me and the rest of Black Knight Troop, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. The army simply didn't have the resources to do more than handle Barji Matal and Bergdahl, so Colonel George's hope of shutting down our outpost and enabling us to get out of Keating was put on ice. For the time being, we were stuck. One could say that this boiled down to a cause-and-effect chain of lousy ideas, poor decisions, and flawed thinking. When it's laid out that way, the logic of this argument seems to hold water. But most soldiers who have experienced combat understand that armchair quarterbacking is shallow and often misguided. It's easy to second-guess decisions based on their ramifications and then to assign blame. Considerably harder is accepting that in combat, things can and will often go wrong, not because of bad decisions, but despite even the best decisions. That is the nature of war. Of course, none of this changes the fact that for those of us at Keating, things were about to truly 
go to hell. Toward the end of the summer, the heat began to abate, which was a welcome change for everyone. As the weather cooled off, a few of the guys in the platoon got on Amazon and started ordering up hoodies. Pretty soon, everybody had one. The logo on the one that Copus selected was Zoo York, the old-school skateboard-inspired brand that he imagined imbued him with a gritty, urban hip-hop vibe. Most of the other guys opted for their favorite colleges. When we'd get back from a patrol, we'd throw on our hoodies and settle in for another round on the Xbox. As evidenced by the smiles and the selfies we took, morale seemed to be improving. In some ways, this was an outward manifestation of an inward trend. Despite the difficulties and challenges, we were finally hitting the point in the deployment where we felt marginally comfortable. Partly, this was because we now had a routine firmly in place. But the larger reason was that we were really starting to gel as a platoon in the field. Thanks to the patrols and the gym, we were all in the best shape of our lives. With a few exceptions, most of us liked one another and got along. Finally, we'd honed an impressive skill set at both the individual and the collective levels, which enabled us to function together like a smooth, well-oiled machine. If we had a major problem at this point, aside from our lingering security worries, it was keeping ourselves occupied. We were so bored when we were off-duty that we were running out of things to say to one another. One afternoon, mostly to avoid just sitting around in silence, we got into an argument about waterboarding, which had been authorized as a legitimate interrogation technique by the Bush administration during our stints in Iraq, but was now off-limits. Was it torture or not, we wondered. To settle the matter, we decided to try it on four of our own guys. While I poured the water, one of the other sergeants held a shirt over their faces. No one lasted past four seconds, except for Copus, who made it to eight. After it was over, everyone agreed that it was definitely torture. In the end, however, what we did more than anything else, the thing that pushed the Xbox and the gym, the silly tricks, and the endless bullshitting to the back seat, was to try to get inside the heads of the guys on the other side of the wire and figure out how they were going to attempt to destroy us. Many an evening, me and the rest of Red Platoon's leadership, a cast of about five guys that included Gallegos, Kirk, Larson, and Hart, would gather at the cafe, the protected well just in front of our barracks, light up our cigarettes, and talk about how we'd planned for it to go down if we were staring into Keating from the ridge lines. We all agreed that you'd want to come in just before dawn and start off by suppressing our mortar pit while simultaneously hitting O.P. Fritchie, which would silence our biggest guns. Then you'd lay down an impenetrable barrage of fire on all four of the armored Humvees, Truck 1, Truck 2, LRAS 1, and LRAS 2, with the goal of knocking out our 50 caliber machine guns and our Mark 19s, which would otherwise stop your assault cold you'd also want to be certain to put an incredibly heavy volume of fire into the ammunition depot to make it impossible for us to resupply the gunners in those Humvees, who would then get picked off one by one as their ammo ran out. Right after that, you'd start sending successive waves of men down the switchbacks and directly at the Afghan army barracks, getting as close as possible to our perimeter so that we'd be forced to hold off calling in our F-15s for fear of getting taken out by our own ordnance. 
Your first wave of fighters would absorb the claymores below the switchbacks and the machine gun fire from the Afghan soldiers. But your second or your third wave would make it all the way to the wire and breach our perimeter. Once your guys were inside, it would be a turkey shoot. They could sweep through the entire camp, moving from hooch to hooch, eliminating us one pocket at a time down to the last man, whoever that might be. We ran through variations on this scenario endlessly. When we'd strike, what we'd hit, how we'd coordinate. And no matter how hard we tried to come up with a solid plan to defend Keating, the outcome was always the same. We'd get overrun, and everybody would die. Little did we realize how accurate those predictions would be when the Taliban decided that it was finally time to pull the trigger. After dinner on the evening of the first Friday in October, Corville went up to the gym to work out with Kirk, Gallegos, and Larson. As they moved through their session, everyone noticed that Kirk, who was almost always a total loudmouth, was extremely quiet. Corville was bothered enough by his silence that just before he left, he turned to Gallegos. Is he all right? he asked, nodding in Kirk's direction. Yeah, replied Gallegos, as far as I know. Is everything okay with him at home? continued Corville. Yeah, as far as I know. Well, okay then, said Corville. Stepping through the door, he walked downhill to the aid station. When he got there, he headed straight for his bunk, popped an Ambien because he hadn't been sleeping well, and went to bed. Meanwhile, Gallegos was on his way back to our barracks, where Bunderman was preparing for bed with the knowledge that his responsibilities over the next few days would be heavier than normal. Less than a month earlier, the widely disliked Captain Porter had finally been relieved of his command and sent home. His replacement, Stony Portis, was a hard-charging captain from Texas, who displayed promising signs of the aggressiveness and hands-on management that we had found so visibly lacking in his predecessor. As an example of that behavior, the previous morning, Portis had hopped aboard a helicopter to catch a lift up to Fritchie, where he was hoping to meet with a group of Afghan elders from the neighboring village of Kamdesh. He'd planned on returning later in the afternoon, but on the flight to Fritchie, an insurgent had fired on the chopper, scoring a direct hit on the bird's fuel line and forcing the pilot to divert to Bostick for repairs. This meant that until Portis could catch another helicopter ride back to Keating, Bunderman was in charge, the de facto commander of Keating. While Bunderman racked out for the night, Gallegos padded down the hall in search of Raz, who was supposed to sit for a promotion board exam the following morning at nine. The exam would determine if Raz moved up to the rank of sergeant, something he very much wanted, which was why he'd asked for help from Gallegos, who had already passed. The two men studied together until well past midnight, at which point most of the guys in the barracks were fast asleep. By the time they finally went to bed, it was approaching 1 a.m. By 2 a.m., the only guys inside Keating who weren't asleep were those on guard duty. One of these was Armando Avalos, our forward observer, who was stationed inside El Raz 1, the gun truck just outside Blue Barracks. As he stared through his thermal optics from the turret of the Humvee, Avalos saw nothing out of the ordinary. There was no sign of any movement, nor was there any sound whatsoever. 
the night was as silent and as calm as one could wish. Unbeknownst to Avalos or to anyone else inside Keating, however, a lot was happening along the slopes and ridge lines that ringed the outpost. Somewhere out there, concealed by the terrain and cloaked in darkness, roughly three hundred Taliban fighters were moving into position around Keating, while another hundred or so fighters climbed the slopes beyond the southern ridge lines to converge on Fritchie. Many of those men were from the surrounding villages, places that had names like Kamdesh and Agassi, Mandigal and Agro, Jui and Jalala. Their numbers were reinforced by a smaller group of seasoned Afghan fighters who had been brought in from outside of Nuristan. It's also likely that there were a handful of foreigners from places like Saudi Arabia and Chechnya. Around 3 a.m., a group of these insurgents entered the little village of Urmul on the opposite side of the river. They ordered the residents to pack their things, vacate their homes, and leave the area. Then they split up and began occupying the buildings, setting up machine guns in windows and doorways that would enable them to shoot directly into Keating. Two hours later, when their entire force was in position, the insurgents settled behind their weapons and patiently waited for dawn to arrive. Part 2 Going Cyclic Chapter 6 Let's go kill some people. At five in the morning, the only frontline soldier at Keating who was awake, but not on duty, was Daniel Rodriguez, who was part of the four-man crew at the mortar pit. D-Rod, as we called him, had been drawn out of the pit by the chance to snatch a few minutes of online time at the aid station computer so that he could check his Facebook page and polish off the application papers for his upcoming leave in November which he intended to spend surfing off the Gold Coast of Australia. It was still dark as Rodriguez clomped down the metal set of stairs, fashioned from empty steel ammo cans, that led from the mortar pit and stepped onto the patch of high ground between the mechanics bay and the trash pit. As he started skirting past El Raz II, the gun truck on the far western end of camp, he caught the glow of a cigarette coming from inside the turret of the armored Humvee, and stopped to exchange a few words with Mace, who was counting down the remaining minutes of his guard shift until Larson showed up. When Rodriguez left Mace, he headed across the long stretch of open ground leading toward the main cluster of buildings at the center of camp. Upon reaching the aid station, he padded through the dark room as quietly as possible to avoid waking up Corville and Cordova, who were asleep in their bunks, and spent the final minutes before dawn tapping away at the keyboard. At 5.49 a.m., the sun rose. By this point, a few of the guards on the battle trucks were starting to move. Ed Faulkner, who had been on Truck 1's gunner's turret for more than an hour, wouldn't be going anywhere for almost another two hours. The same was true of Truck 2, where a forward observer from Blue Platoon named Jonathan Adams was sitting quietly watching the first rays of light illuminate the putting green and the switchbacks high above Urmul. But down at El Raz 1, Hart had already radioed for relief so that he could dash off to the latrines, and in response, Copus was shuffling out with his copy of Sports Pro stuffed into the go-to zone beneath his armor, anticipating a hot breakfast delivery as soon as Hart finished taking his morning dump. 
Out at the Shura building, Nicholas Davidson and Justin Gregory were preparing a similar handoff inside the gun turret overlooking the front gate. Meanwhile, out at the western end of camp, Larson had just finished zipping up his fly and was retrieving his helmet and carbine from the hood of his Humvee before climbing into the cab of Elraz II. The first rays of light were streaming off the tops of the mountains and into the valley when, at 5.50 a.m., Ron Jeremy, one of our Afghan interpreters, approached the front door of the command post to relay some disturbing news. Shamsullah, the commander of the Afghan National Police Station on the far side of the river just in front of Ermul, had sent word that enemy forces had moved into the village. In the middle of the night, according to Ron, the Taliban had begun ordering all the residents to vacate their homes and leave while small groups of fighters had moved in. At 5.53 a.m., Sergeant Jason Souter, who was with HQ Platoon, passed this info along to James Stanley, my other section sergeant in Red Platoon, who had just relieved Gallegos as sergeant of the guard and was standing out near the center of camp. Glancing around to see if he could spot anything strange, Stanley immediately caught sight of the commander of the Afghan security guards, a man who was normally armed with nothing more than a 9mm pistol. The guy was now carrying an AK-47 and several extra mags. As Stanley made his way over to the command post to report what he'd seen and find out if he could learn more, he radioed the gun trucks to let the guys on guard know what was up. Chatter echoed across the net as, one by one, everyone on the perimeter began acknowledging. Up inside the gun turret overlooking the front gate, Davidson was about to key his radio when he glanced toward Ermul, which was just emerging in the morning light, and noticed that dozens of armed men were dashing in and out of buildings all around the village. Then he looked down, spotted the ASG commander with the AK-47 and the rack of extra ammo, and had the same thought as Stanley. Weird. It was 5.58 a.m., and Davidson was pressing the button on his radio transmitter when a loud bang sounded off to the west and an arrow-shaped missile came hurling toward the outpost with the distinctive trajectory of an RPG. As the rocket approached, Davidson could see a plume of gray vapor that revealed the location of the shooter on the putting green, high on the spine overlooking Ermul. He lined up the M240's gun sights on the point from which the smoke trail originated, and was about to trigger a burst of return fire when, as if on cue, the mountains surrounding Keating erupted in flames. Along the ridge lines and across the hillsides, concealed behind rocks and trees, as well as the buildings of Ermul, roughly three hundred insurgents opened up with everything they had. RPGs and AK-47s, B-10 recoilless rifles, Russian 82mm mortars, sniper rifles, and the powerful anti-aircraft machine guns known as Dishkas. Whatever arms the Taliban recruits had managed to scrounge from the surrounding villages, purchase on the black markets of Nuristan, or haul in across the mountain passes from Pakistan, were now being brought to bear, with shocking effect, directly on Keating. To say that the initial seconds of the attack were too much for a normal mind to process would be an understatement. From his vantage in the turret of El Raz One, it seemed to Copus as if someone had seized hold of a fold in the sky, ripped a hole in the thing, and was now dumping all the ordnance and munitions in eastern Afghanistan directly on top of his head.
As Copus scanned the eastern and southern ridge lines in front of him, he spotted orange-colored muzzle flashes in every direction. There were so many starbursts that he found it impossible to concentrate on firing back at one or two and then moving on to the others. The flickering of gunfire and the cumulative impact that it was having all over the outpost overwhelmed his senses and forced him to respond by instinct. The rounds were now coming in so fast that at first Copus didn't even have a chance to key his radio and report what was going on. It was all he could do to concentrate on a few discreet flashes of light and try to get some grenades heading toward them. The same was true sixty yards uphill, where, inside the gun turret of Truck 1, Faulkner was hurling burst after burst from his fifty cal over the center of camp and across the river into the north face. Like Copus, Faulkner was confused. Although he could see the smoke signatures of the incoming RPGs from within the tree line, there was no way for him to pinpoint the positions of the machine gunners and snipers who had him in their crosshairs, and who were concealed by the rocks and vegetation. All he really knew was that it was his job to respond. And so, like Copus, he furiously raked his gun across his sectors of fire, hoping that some of those rounds would find a target. With the guys on all four gun trucks fully engaged, Keating's outgoing was making a serious bid at keeping up with the Taliban's incoming. Granted, we weren't exactly matching the enemy shot for shot, and unlike the Taliban, we didn't have the luxury of being able to concentrate all of our fire in more or less the same place. Nevertheless, every heavy weapons system inside the outpost was immediately hot and rolling through ammo hard. In addition to Faulkner and Copus, Davidson had fully opened up from the turret above the front gate, and each of their guns had a distinctive sound. The sharp, piercing percussion of the M240 was underlaid with the bass growl of the slower and heavier 50 cal. Beneath all that, you could also hear the chug, 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 coming from the open area out near the latrines and the showers, where Adams, assisted now by Hart, was launching a storm of grenades toward the switchbacks and the north face from the Mark 19 on Truck 2. Even amid all of that clatter, however, there was one sound that registered more distinctively than any other. It was the return fire coming from our most exposed battle position, as well as the one that was farthest from the command post. The gun truck on the far western end of camp that housed Keating's second 50 caliber machine gun, the Ma Deuce on the turret of Elraz 2. Judging by the sound of that gun, which was a noise that resembled a chainsaw tearing through sheet metal, Brad Larson, a man who less than a minute earlier had been standing helmetless in front of the truck with his weasel in his hand, had clawed his way into the turret, thrown back the charging handle, and gone absolutely batshit. Ma Deuce is the nickname for an M250 caliber machine gun, and the working end of the weapon features a pair of grips known as spade handles, each of which has a V-shaped trigger that's called a butterfly. If a gunner pulls down on the butterflies with his thumbs and keeps the gun on full auto, a well-maintained 50 cal is capable, in theory, of punching out almost 600 rounds a minute. This is known as going cyclic, and it's something you generally want to avoid, except in the most extreme situations. If a gunner maxes out his rate of fire in this manner, it's likely he'll ream out the bore on his weapon within a belt or two. But long before that, the rounds he's sending through the breach can build up enough heat 
to literally melt the barrel. This is also an excellent way to jam your gun, creating the sort of problem that can be fixed only by climbing out of the turret, standing on the hood of the truck with your rear end exposed to whoever is trying to shoot you, and viciously kicking the loading arm until the thing finally decides to come unstuck, all the while hoping that you don't get drilled in the ass. For this reason, if you're doing things by the book, you want to keep your cool and let off brief, accurate three-to-five-round bursts. That's the way to maintain good fire discipline and let the weapon do the work. All of which was, more or less, what Faulkner was doing over at Truck One. Well, fuck that, thought Larson, who at this particular moment couldn't have given a rat's ass what the book said, much less what Faulkner was up to. The only thing Larson wanted was to establish some fire superiority, and the only prayer he had of making that happen was to start dumping as many rounds downrange as he possibly could right now. Going cyclic, in his estimation, was the sanest and most effective response to the tsunami of shit that was being hurled in his face. Larson's gun truck had three separate sectors of fire that covered a 120-degree arc facing directly west. At the center of that arc lay Ermul, just 150 yards away on the other side of the Daria Kushtaz, whose tight cluster of flat-roofed, mud-walled buildings were nestled at the bottom of the massive V-shaped declivity created by the switchbacks to the left and the putting green to the right. By Larson's best guess, and it was a pretty decent guess because, unlike Copus and Faulkner, he was meticulously counting muzzle flashes, he was now being targeted by no fewer than twelve separate weapon systems spread across the field of fire in front of him. He could see smoke trails from several RPG teams high in the switchbacks, the putting green, the waterfall area, and the north side of RPG Rock. He was also facing off against at least three machine gun crews, one firing from the waterfall, another working from somewhere up on the ridge line directly above the switchbacks, and a third from somewhere deep inside the mosque. Scattered throughout the school and several houses on the near side of Ermul, there were also dozens of guys spraying him with AK-47s. And in addition to all of that, he was sitting directly in the crosshairs of several snipers, each armed with a Russian-made Dragunov that fired a 7.62-millimeter round capable of blowing through Kevlar body armor as if it were made from the working end of a squeegee mop. Those snipers were a particular problem for Larson, because their rounds were so disturbingly accurate and so menacingly close. They thudded into the bulletproof windshield in front of his knees. They ricocheted around inside the turret that shielded his torso and chest. A bunch of them were even splintering off the plywood shade cover of the 50 cal itself. But what shook Larson more than how close those snipers were to drilling him through the forehead a job they probably should have taken care of when he was still taking a piss, and more than the proximity of the enemy, he could now see dozens of them moving brazenly inside the village and along the river, more rattling than even the feeling that he simply could not shoot fast enough. The guys he was facing off against were freaking everywhere. The thing that Larson found most sobering was the simple realization of how terribly alone he was in that moment. To the west, north, and south were a couple hundred Afghans wearing turbans and Chinese sneakers. Inside the gun truck, one lone dude from Nebraska. A dude who was now kicking himself 
for having neglected to bring his chest rack out on guard duty with him that morning, an omission which meant that when Larson finished burning through his machine gun rounds, or when the fifty cal finally decided to lock up, whichever came first, he would have only his M4 assault rifle and seven thirty-round magazines worth of bullets, with which to defend not just himself, but the entire western sector of Keating. Damn, he thought. I kinda need some help out here. This was no time to call for help, though, nor was it the time to ring up the command post and deliver a crisply worded sit-rep on precisely how much crap was flying through the air. No, this was the time for only one thing, which was to rock the Ma Deuce to her outer limits, and then see what she'd do when he took her past that point. And so Larson rammed down the butterflies and sent an entire belt of three hundred rounds running through the gun while working the barrel back and forth in the hope that even if he wasn't being completely accurate, which is to say, even if the spray and prey he was putting out didn't find a single viable target, perhaps the demonic manner in which he was riding his gun on full auto would give the enemy a few seconds pause before they decided to bum-rush the Humvee. He figured he had about fifteen hundred rounds, and as he neared the end of his first belt and found himself starting to ponder the question, which was an interesting one, of how the hell he was going to survive a reload, he also took note of the odd fact that there didn't seem to be any return fire whatsoever coming from the mortar pit. As Big John Breeding never tired of pointing out to anyone who would listen, the pair of guns in his pit, the 60mm and 120mm mortars, qualified as serious rainmakers. They were, by far, the heaviest casualty-producing assets that Keating had. What's more, those guns were always laid onto specific targets, where we knew the enemy liked to set up shop, and the mortar crew had someone awake and on radio watch 24 hours a day, so that if called upon, they could start hanging rounds immediately. The response time for Breeding's crew to start getting rounds in the air should, in theory, add up to about two and a half nanoseconds, which meant that by now, Breeding and his guys should already have started putting a deluge of hurt down on the enemy fighters who were trying to obliterate Keating. Where the fuck are those mortars? Larson wondered. Right about then, he caught sight of something moving off to his left. It was Rodriguez, clad in nothing but a t-shirt and vest, gym shorts and tennis shoes, running for the mortar pit as if his life depended on it. Which, at that moment, it most definitely did. When D-Rod, sitting in front of the computer inside the aid station, had heard the first wave of rockets start to drop, he immediately started clipping on his vest while cursing himself for having failed to bring his carbine. What's up? asked Corville, who had just emerged from his bunk in the rear of the building. Gotta run, Doc, replied Rodriguez as he shot out the door. Wish me luck. Without his gear to slow him down, Rodriguez moved fast, zigzagging past the showers, the laundry trailer, and the piss tubes toward the western end of the outpost. Taking the open slope beyond at a dead sprint, he started to fire his 9mm handgun toward the switchbacks, where half a dozen enemy gunners were doing their best to nail him with their AK-47s. Bullets were kicking up small stones and bits of dirt around his feet, but the gunners couldn't get a bead on him. Then, as he drew near Larson's gun truck, he heard bullets clanging off the armor 
and called out a warning. Mace! Mace! he yelled, not realizing that Mace had been replaced by Larson. Friendly coming! Rodriguez was planning to take a pause beside the Humvee before making his final push across the open stretch of ground leading to the ammo can staircase. But just as he was about to veer over, the truck took a direct hit from an RPG. The rocket plowed into the fender just above one of the tires, exploding with enough force to knock Rodriguez to the ground while sending flames all along the south side of the Humvee. Mace! he screamed as the figure behind the gun, which was actually Larson, flopped backward and disappeared inside the turret. Getting no reply, Rodriguez got back on his feet and resumed his race for the pit. When he hit the bottom of the stairs, he emptied the rest of the 15-round magazine on his handgun. Right then, nothing was more important to D-Rod than getting those mortars up. As Rodriguez approached the top of the stairs, Breeding had just extracted himself from his fart sack, which was what he liked to call his sleeping bag, and was punching the keys on the laptop that cranked out the grid coordinates he'd need to lay the guns on a new set of targets. Meanwhile, Kevin Thompson was already geared up. He'd been monitoring the radios all night while playing a video game on the PlayStation and racing out the door, weapon in hand, into the pit. His aim was to get to the 60-millimeter gun tube and put out some suppressive fire with his assault rifle, while Breeding determined what charges they would need to place on the rounds. The mortar pit was protected by a single M240 Bravo machine gun that was mounted on a steel fence post with a pintle on top that cradled the gun while permitting it to swing. The mortar team liked to keep that gun covered with a poncho to protect it from rain and dust and as Rodriguez came off the top of the stairs and into the pit, he grabbed hold of the poncho and yanked it to the side. RPG rock! yelled Thompson, shorthand to let Rodriguez know that the pit was taking fire from a massive boulder about 200 feet above them that looked directly down into camp from the far corner of one of the switchbacks, and that D-Rod needed to lay some fire on it immediately. Rodriguez seized the gun and was bringing it on target when Thompson, who was standing an arm's length away, let out a soft grunt as a Dragunov sniper round, fired from somewhere up in the switchbacks, slammed straight into his face. It's an indication of the extreme angle of the Taliban's plunging fire from the ridgeline surrounding us that the bullet pinholed through Thompson's right cheek, then blew an exit hole beside his left shoulder blade. Along the way, it destroyed his jaw, his tongue, and two of his cervical vertebrae, along with a bunch of the soft tissue at the base of his neck. Without uttering another sound, the big man with the quiet smile, who loved to smoke weed, crumpled to the ground, bleeding from the face and head like a steer fell to the floor of a slaughter chute. Rodriguez, who watched the whole thing unfold in front of him, had already seen death dished out in any number of horrible ways during his time in Iraq. He'd been on the cleanup team of an armored Humvee that had been blown up by an IED one morning in 2007, scrambling and cooking the contents so badly that the remains of the three American soldiers inside formed what he had described as a human stew. Unlike those guys in the Humvee back in Baghdad, however, Thompson was Rodriguez's closest friend and seeing him cut down, 
from less than two feet away, cracked open a door in D-Rod's mind that led to a stash of cold rage he didn't even know was there. Without a word, he put his shoulder into the gun, squeezed the trigger, and didn't let off until he'd put more than 300 rounds into the switchbacks, where the shot that killed Thompson had come from. As he fired, the casings from his spent cartridges tumbled from the breech and partially buried the body of Thompson under a blanket of hot brass. If you don't let off, a 240 Bravo takes about 30 seconds to chew through 300 rounds. As Rodriguez completed his payback fusillade, the sound of his weapon merged with the baseline soundtrack of the surrounding battle to form the thunderous, full-throated symphonic fury that is the audible signature of no quarters combat. 150 yards downhill to the northeast, inside the tight little cluster of stone and plywood barracks buildings at the very center of camp, that sound was now rousing me and the rest of Black Knight Troop from our bunks. As I came out of my rack in the third hooch from the south end of Red Barracks and threw on my battle kit, I could hear that we were taking fire from every sector. What's more, I could tell that the intensity was on a new and different order of magnitude from anything we'd yet encountered. Something about the way those rounds were coming in, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but we all heard it, signaled that this wasn't just serious, but nothing like we've ever seen before serious. This was no mere hit-and-run, guerrilla-style skirmish. And that awareness, the fact that the Taliban was meeting us in direct toe-to-toe combat, an all-out assault into which they were funneling everything they could muster to wipe our presence off the map of Nuristan, brought every man to his feet, knowing that we needed to throw every gun we had into this fight. From every hooch, guys were strapping on gear and moving down the hall toward the weapons rack to grab their guns. At the first cubicle from the north end, Kirk was snatching up his vest as he turned to Avalos at the far end of the hallway. They're starting up early today, said Kirk, stepping into the hall. Let's go kill some people. By this point in our deployment, we'd been attacked enough that most of us, especially the staff sergeants and the team leaders, knew exactly where they needed to be. Some of the younger guys, however, paused before heading out the door to take a quick look at the whiteboard to confirm which position they were supposed to man. Danily, you're with me, yelled Jones as he pulled one of his Mark 48 machine guns off the weapons rack, shoved it into Danily's hands, and started draping hundred-round belts of ammo over his shoulders. According to the battle roster, Jones and Danily were responsible for getting that machine gun out to support Copus at his Humvee. As both men headed toward the north door of the barracks, Jones almost collided with Kirk. Hey, what time is it? demanded Kirk. It's 6.01, replied Jones. The battle for Cop Keating was exactly three minutes old. Thompson was already dead. Larson had just gotten smoked. And those nine words that Kirk and Jones had just exchanged? That would be the last thing those two dudes ever said to each other. Chapter 7 Heavy Contact when I switched on my handheld radio, reports were rolling in from every point along our perimeter defenses, 
and from those sitreps it was clear that each one of our battle positions was overwhelmed with fire from every possible direction. Because Red Platoon was already on guard duty, it would be our job to man the heavy weapon systems and try to stop the assault. White Platoon would play no part in this effort, because they were all up at Fritchie. But it was Blue Platoon's job to support us by delivering ammo, a task that a few of them had already stepped up to by snatching up extra bags of ammo that had been stashed in their barracks and running them out to the gun trucks. The bulk of Blue, however, was now gathering in their barracks with the two sergeants who were their section leaders, Eric Harder and John Francis, and preparing to make a coordinated push out of the ammo supply point, the two rooms built into the HESCO wall on the east side of the Shura building that contained our primary stash of munitions. Because Sergeant First Class Frank Guerrero was back in the States on leave, I was the acting platoon sergeant for Red. This meant that instead of jumping into the fight, my first job was to figure out where every man in the platoon was and find out what he needed, starting with my four team leaders, Hart and Larson for Alpha Section, Kirk and Gallegos for Bravo. One way of getting a head count is simply to monitor your radio and try to piece together an assessment based on what you're hearing from the various sectors of the battlefield. But a more comprehensive picture of how a fight is shaping up can be gleaned by stepping into the command post. So that's where I headed first. While bullets snapped at the walls and plowed along the ground, I dashed across the 15-foot gap that separated Red Barracks from our tactical operations center, yanked on the plywood door on the west side of the building, and flung myself inside. The interior of our command post was unapologetically functional and spartan. The lights were six-foot-long fluorescent tubes, and the place was devoid of any of the frills that you'd see in other buildings. There were no posters like the ones at the gym, no outdated Christmas and Fourth of July decorations like the stuff hanging from the walls of the chow hall, and certainly no Ziploc baggies with tennis star panties. The windowless room was dominated by a pair of eight-foot-long tables fashioned from two-by-sixes and plywood, which ran almost the entire length of the room. The first table held several laptop computers, including one reserved for the commander. The second, which also supported several computers, sat directly in front of a bank of half a dozen flat-screen TV monitors mounted on the east wall. Several of those monitors displayed maps of Keating and the surrounding mountains. On the west wall, just a few feet from the door, hung another map that pinpointed the location of every major weapon system inside the outpost, along with its sectors of fire. The first thing to catch my eye were a bunch of guys attached to headquarters platoon, most of whom were sitting on metal folding chairs and hunched over their laptops at one of the two tables. Glaring into the biggest of the flat-screen computers were Private Jordan Wong, our radio operator, and Sergeant Ryan Schultz, our intelligence analyst. Standing behind them were Lieutenant Kaysen Schrode and Sergeant Jason Souter, who were in charge of coordinating artillery and air support, along with First Sergeant Burton. In all, at least ten guys were jammed into the command post and each of them was doing several things at once. Standing at the center of this mess was Bunderman, who was clad in a brown t-shirt, black shorts, and a pair of plastic Adidas flip-flops, an ensemble that made him look like he was getting ready for a game of beach volleyball. He had no helmet, no weapon, and no chest rack. Far more problematic in his view, he also did not have his can of chewing tobacco. 
The second that Bunderman had been awakened by the torrent of incoming fire, he'd leaped from his rack and sprinted over to the command post without bothering to grab a single piece of his battle kit. But the fact that he was now so wildly out of uniform reflected something larger than an understandable lapse of attentiveness regarding his gear, which was that he wasn't really supposed to be inside the command post at all. As the lieutenant in charge of Red Platoon, Bunderman's normal battle position, the place to which he was accustomed to going, and, in fact, the place where he felt that he truly belonged, was the LRAS-2 gun truck. This was his go-to spot, the destination to which he'd raced at the start of virtually every engagement since the first day we'd arrived at Keating. LRAS-2 was also where Bunderman preferred to be, because, among other reasons, he was convinced that this was where we would win or lose a major battle like the one that was now unfolding. But like it or not, with Captain Portis still stranded at Bostick, the command post was where he belonged. From this moment forward, every tactical decision, where we funneled our remaining resources, which areas we defended and which sectors we ceded to the enemy, how we coordinated the assets we still had with those that were, hopefully, on their way, all of that responsibility, all of that burden, rested directly on Bunderman's shoulders. He had neither asked for nor aspired to this role. But nevertheless, it was now his show. And the way that show played out would be determined in large part by how Bunderman handled the most potent and far-reaching weapons system at his fingertips. Keating's primary means of communication with the world outside the wire involved a military internet relay chat system that was known by its acronym, MERC. In essence, Merck functioned like an instant messaging app on a cell phone, except that multiple users could hop onto and off of the net at the same time. During the heat of battle, this form of tactical chatting, or tac chat, was more efficient than phone lines or even radios. Inside the command post, the way the tac chat worked was that Bunderman would instruct Wong, his radio man, what to type under the call sign of Keating's commander, which was Two Black Knight. As Wong pecked away at his keyboard, other members of HQ Platoon, Schultz, Schrode, Souter, and Bunderman himself, would also be weighing into the system under their own call signs. While that was happening, the system was also logging a stream of responses, orders, and questions from command posts at other bases that would be scrambling to get us help. This included not just Bostik, but also Jalalabad, Kandahar, and Bagram. The network even extended as far away as Ramstein, Germany, where a satellite relay station enabled Air Force specialists in Nevada and New Mexico to communicate, using the same TAC chat network, with armed Predator and Reaper drones that were patrolling the skies directly above Keating. If this instant messaging system went down for any reason, we had SATCOM as a backup, which was essentially a phone with a satellite uplink. This was reliable, but unlike the TAC chat, there was a limit to how many people could be on the SATCOM line at the same time. So we tended to lean most heavily on TAC chat, a fact that was now evident on the 42-inch flat screen on the east wall of the command post. Looking up at that monitor as I walked in, I could see the messages scrolling onto the screen as they were being logged. This provided a running record of the battle, starting with our initial call for help and including the first response we were just now receiving from Task Force Destroyer the call sign of our immediate superiors in Bostick. 6.02 a.m. 
two Black Knight talk. Keating in heavy contact. We have mortars pinned down and fire coming from everywhere. We need something. 6.02 a.m., Task Force Destroyer, Battle Captain. We are working to get rotary wing and close air support. While Bunderman juggled these external communications with Bostik, Jalalabad, and beyond, he was also receiving a steady stream of reports from, and issuing orders to, the American soldiers inside the wire at Keating. To do that, he had five radio channels, or nets, each keyed to a separate frequency that was reserved for a particular group of soldiers. The Force Pro net, for example, connected Bunderman to his section leaders within each of the platoons inside Keating's perimeter, while the platoon net was restricted to platoon leaders such as myself and Jonathan Hill, who ran blue. If Bunderman wanted to speak to anyone up at Fritchie, he had to switch over to the troop net, while the fire's net was reserved for Keating's mortar pit. Finally, there was a separate channel, the CAG net, which stood for Combat Applications Group. This would patch him through to aircraft flying overhead, enabling him to speak directly to the pilots of any fixed-wing aircraft or helicopters that were within communication range of Keating. What made this especially challenging was that while Bunderman managed all of this internal and external talk, he was also making decisions, in many cases, split-second decisions, that would help to determine who among us survived and who did not. When I burst into the command post and slammed the door, Bunderman was standing in front of the target overlay map, which depicted the sectors of fire that corresponded to Keating's defensive battle positions. He was holding a radio to one ear, his gaze was locked onto the map, and he was speaking into the SATCOM mic, which he held in his other hand. His remaining ear was cocked to a green speaker mounted on the east wall, which was broadcasting all the radio traffic coming across the Force Pro net. It wasn't easy to make sense of the Force Pro net, because everyone was trying to talk at once. Reports were tumbling in from all four gun trucks and the front gate, as well as from various other men who were on the move. Red 5. Truck 1 is almost black on ammo. Red 5 Delta. The ECP is taking heavy, accurate fire from the North Face, the Putting Green, the ANP station, and north up the LOC. Red 6. Calling for immediate suppression on targets 4525 and 4526. Those voices on the radio were laid on top of the sounds of battle reverberating through the walls of the command post. The volume of fire and the varying pitches of the different weapons, the incoming PKM machine guns and RPGs, the outgoing M4s and Mark 48s, all of it rose to a level of intensity that to a civilian would have sounded like total chaos. But to Bunderman's ear and mine, that multi-layered cacophony made sense on several levels. The concussions that were rattling the walls and roof of the command post told us that we were taking fire from every cardinal point of the compass, and that although the RPGs were coming in at a rate of roughly one every 15 seconds, the machine gun and small arms fire was pretty much continuous. At the same time, the radio traffic was letting us know that Copus's truck was being hit by a torrent of fire, that Faulkner needed an immediate resupply of 50 cal ammo in order to keep his gun in action, and that Davidson's turret above the front gate was now engulfed in smoke, and thus in danger of being overrun. 
When those two streams of information merged, the rockets and bullets slamming into the outside of the building, the increasingly agitated voices coming across the Force Pro net, it was evident that our return fire wasn't having much effect, because the enemy was able to continue pouring it on without pause. The upshot was clear. If we didn't get some help soon, we weren't going to last much longer, which was why Bunderman was now ordering Wong to send out a series of requests for help, starting with an immediate call for air support. He wanted both fixed-wing jets and attack helicopters. In short, anything that Army Aviation in Jalalabad and the Air Force in Kandahar and Bagram were willing to send us. The urgency of those requests was reflected in the messages that were being logged into the system. 6.03 a.m. Two Black Knight talk. We need air ASAP. We need air assets. Heavy contact. While awaiting a response from Bostick, Bunderman turned to the next order of business. Big John Breeding was calling in on the fire's net with a report from the mortar pit. I got one KIA, declared Breeding from his position inside the mortar team's bunker, which was directly adjacent to the pit. Thompson's dead. Roger, Bunderman replied. Can you get out to the pit and get your guns up? Negative, we're taking too much fire, said Breeding. The pit cannot come up. Okay, B, said Bunderman, invoking his nickname for Breeding. Stand by. Another call was coming in on the Force Pro net, this time from Gallegos, who was standing out by the latrines on a piece of higher ground that gave him a good overview of what was happening at El Raz 2, where Larson had popped back up in the turret after the RPG hit that Rodriguez had witnessed. As it turned out, Larson had been struck in the neck, shoulder, and bicep by bullet fragments that had spalled off the top of the truck, but the turret shield had protected him from the worst of the blast. While Gallegos watched, Larson was now attempting to reload the 50 cal, an awkward process that involved leaning forward to pry open the cover of the machine gun, feed in a new belt of ammo, and then close the cover, moves that left him dangerously exposed. Gallegos could see that if Larson didn't get some help and get the gun working quickly, his gun truck was in danger of being overwhelmed. He also understood that in the absence of air support, the best way to assist Larson was by bringing the mortar pit's guns up and targeting them on the switchbacks, which was exactly what he was now demanding on the radio from Bunderman. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a catch-22 in meeting this request, because if the mortar pit was pinned down the only gun truck that was positioned to provide suppressive fire to free up the mortars was, as luck would have it, El Raz II. In a nutshell, the mortar pit and Larson's gun truck worked in tandem, sort of like the wings of an airplane. If one was taken out of action, the whole deal pretty much fell apart. Right now, each of the two battle positions required the very thing that the other could not provide. In response to Gallegos' requests, which were getting more insistent with every second, Bunderman jumped back on the fire's net to find out if, by some miracle, anything had changed on Breeding's end. Hey, B, can you get to your guns? he asked. Breeding glanced out the doorway into the pit. The incoming fire was so intense that Rodriguez, who was now inside the bunker with Breeding, couldn't even pull Thompson's body out of the field of fire and drag it into the mortar team's hooch. Each attempt he made 
triggered a massive barrage of fire from RPG rock. The entire pit was now a kill zone. Sir, we are straight up pinned down, replied Breeding. Everything is exploding inside the pit. The only way I can get out there and get those guns up is if you ask me to kill everybody else up here. It can't be done without us dying. As Breeding spoke, Rodriguez was scrambling outside for one more attempt to retrieve Thompson. As he seized his friend's legs, an RPG smashed into the top of the 120-millimeter mortar shack. The concussion caught D-Rod and hurled him through the air and straight through the open doorway of the hooch, where he crashed to the floor. I want to help, sir, Breeding said to Bunderman, but I can't do it without killing the rest of my men. Roger that, said Bunderman. Hold tight. By this point, I'd learned as much as I could from inside the command post about where my guys were and how the battle was shaping up. It was now time for me to get outside. As I slipped out the door, Wong was still sending out pleas for help through the TAC chat. 6.04 a.m. Two black night talk. Still taking heavy contact. Need something. Our mortars can't get up. We are taking casualties. Get something up. There was no mistaking those requests. But given how rapidly things seemed to be spinning out of control, Bunderman wanted to convey the seriousness of our situation directly to our superiors. And the best way to do that, it seemed to him, was by speaking one-on-one -on -one to Captain Portis at Bostick. Keying the mic on the SATCOM, he put a call through to the radio telephone operator in Bostick's command post. Upon hearing the request, the operator asked him to hold the line, explaining that Portis had just been woken up and would be there in a few seconds. As Bunderman waited, the line suddenly went dead. Outside the walls of the command post, the Taliban commanders had been directing a portion of their RPGs and their B-10 shells at our electrical generators, knowing that without those units, we had no power, and that without power, we had no communications. It was a smart plan, conforming almost to the letter to the way we'd imagined the first phase of an all-out attack like this would play out. And now that strategy was paying some rich dividends. An RPG had just landed a direct hit on our 100-kilowatt generator, which sat next to the mosque and powered pretty much everything at Keating that ran on electricity, including almost every piece of equipment in the command post. First the big screens on the walls, the maps of the outposts and the tack chat dialogue, winked out and went dark. Next, the video screens from the motion-sending cameras on the southern perimeter started blanking out, one by one. Finally, we lost the lights, the radios, and the coffee pot. Although we still had our battery-powered communications inside the outpost, we were now cut off from the outside. Up at the mortar pit, Breeding and his remaining men had taken up defensive positions just inside their hooch, with their M4s pointed out the two doors, their eyes peeled for any sign of movement that would signal a Taliban assault. Hey, Rodriguez whispered to Breeding and Sergeant Jan Patrick Baroga, the third member of their crew. I think I hear something. From above the concrete roof of their hooch, there were definite signs of movement. It sounded as if a group of enemy fighters was approaching the outer wire from the south, 
most likely from a large boulder directly behind the mortar pit. Then the men in the pit started hearing voices. As the enemy passed by, no more than fifteen or twenty feet from the pit, pushing east toward the mechanics bay and the shower trailers, they were laughing and cheering one another on. Judging by those voices, Breeding figured that there were probably two dozen men, far too many for the mortar crew to fight in close quarters. Breeding did, however, have one thing up his sleeve, the mines that were seated at the edge of the wire about fifty yards away. Those claymores could pack enough of a wallop to blow some holes in the line of attackers before they reached the concertina wire that formed the southern perimeter of the outpost. The only catch was that the mines had not been tested or replaced in more than a year, despite our repeated appeals to Captain Porter to let us do exactly that. Moving quietly, Breeding reached for the clacker, an electronic triggering device that would detonate both mines, squeezed it together like the handles on a set of pliers, and... nothing. Neither of the claymores blew. As Breeding seethed at the incompetency of our former commander, Baroga, who had arrived at Keating only two days earlier and who had never before been in combat, turned to him with a question. Hey, Sergeant, Baroga asked, are these attacks always this bad? No, dude, not at all, Breeding declared emphatically. They have never been this bad. Well, is everything going to be okay? asked Baroga unable to connect the dots. In his eighteen years in the army, John Breeding had never been a dispenser of bullshit. He saw no need to change now. I don't know if we're going to get out of this one, he replied, looking Baroga in the eye. All I can tell you is that if we go, we're taking some of these motherfuckers with us. Chapter 8 Combat Kirk to say that Josh Kirk found the prospect of a let's-take-the-motherfuckers-with-us gunfight less than intimidating would not, perhaps, be entirely accurate, because this was precisely the sort of standoff, desperate, outmatched, furious, that Kirk lived for. It was the thing that lit his fuse like nothing else. As far as Kirk was concerned, we were finally getting a taste of the real deal, and as such, this moment marked the arrival of the kind of test that no true soldier could fail to embrace, which is why Kirk's primary aim, aside from venting the impulse to get the hell out of Red Barracks as quickly as possible so that he could start returning some fire, was to race directly to one of the most vulnerable points in camp. It's hard to imagine anywhere more important to Keating's defense than the Shura building. While the east wall of that structure formed the ammo supply point, where all of our munitions and explosives were stored, the Shura's roof housed the machine gun turret from which Davidson was desperately trying to protect the front gate. The building had already taken the brunt of the very first wave of RPGs. It was here Kirk knew that his particular brand of aggression was most needed now. As it happened, the battle roster indicated that Gregory and Knight were also supposed to be heading to the Shura building. But as all three men clustered at the front door of the barracks, and Gregory, who was first in line, started to push the thing open, he was greeted with a storm of gunfire that raked the stairs, the roof, and the ground directly in front of him. Leaping back, 
Gregory collided against Kirk. We gotta find another way out, barked Kirk, heading for the back door on the east side of the building. He peeked through the door to make sure it was clear, then turned to his team. Gregory, grab that AT-4, he ordered, as they headed out. The three of them clattered down the alley in front of the command post, hooked a sharp left at the corner of the barracks, and squeezed past a bobcat, a small front loader that had been abandoned on the corner of our ammunition supply shed, partially blocking the path to the aid station. Then they moved along the wall of Hesco's that formed the northern perimeter of the outpost and turned toward the Shura building, roughly ten yards away. Instead of a flat-out sprint, they bounded, each man moving forward in turns while the others covered him. With every pause, Kirk shoved another round into the breech of his 203 and pumped a grenade across the river toward the north face while simultaneously letting loose with his M4. It took less than two minutes for them to complete their maneuver. When they came through the back door on the east side of the Shura building, they couldn't see more than a few feet ahead because the air inside was filled with the dust created by the RPG rounds that were pounding into the outer walls. As Kirk approached the ladder on the west wall, leading to the entrance to the turret where Davidson was manning the M240 machine gun, he peered through the haze and spotted an Afghan security guard who had abandoned his fighting position just beyond the front gate and was now taking shelter in the turret entrance. Get out of there, you fucking coward, yelled Kirk as he grabbed the Afghan and shoved him out of the way. Then Kirk stepped to the side of the doorway and ordered Gregory to cover him while he punched around from the AT-4 up into the putting green. Both men stepped into the open doorway, and Kirk raised the barrel of the single-shot rocket launcher to his shoulder. As he took aim and prepared to fire, an RPG plowed into the side of the building and exploded, spraying shrapnel everywhere. The concussion, which was immense, hurled Gregory into the wall while slapping Kirk to the ground. As Kirk went down, a Taliban sniper somehow managed to put a round straight through his face. Horrified, Gregory and Davidson, who had climbed down the ladder to help, seized Kirk's vest and dragged him inside. As Kirk's head slid along the ground, the dust was smeared with a streak of crimson. Meanwhile, Knight clawed his way up into the turret with the intention of getting the machine gun back in action. When he reached the top of the ladder, Knight seized the pistol grip on the M240 and raised himself up to take a look down the barrel. As his head cleared the top of the turret, hundreds of rounds began slamming the turret shield from several directions at once, fragmenting off the steel flanges and generating a shower of sparks and tiny shards of metal that struck him in the face like a shovel full of gravel. Stunned by the intensity of the fire, Knight withdrew from the turret and scrambled back down the ladder. When he reached the opening at the bottom, he was pulled up short by the sight of Kirk's feet, which were stretched out on the floor and the alarmed voice of Davidson, who had snatched Kirk's radio from his combat vest and was now putting out the call for help. Over at the aid station, Corville was listening to the combat radio, which was tuned to the Force Pro net, while he peeked out the door and observed continuous muzzle flashes flickering up and down the switchbacks and across the entire North Face. Bro, it's fucking bad out there. Corville reported to Cordova, who was standing with the phone in his hand, having just had his connection to the aid station at Bostic, 
where he was trying to warn the medical team to prepare for mass casualties, severed by the destroyed generator. The second they realized that someone had been hit in the Shura building and needed help, Cordova seized the trauma bag, which was reserved for grab-and-go emergencies, and flung the thing straight at Corville. Corville, who was already halfway to the door, caught the bag on the run and was gone in a flash. He was moving so fast that he didn't even think to grab his gun. Instead of proceeding cautiously as Knight, Gregory, and Kirk had done just a few minutes earlier, Corville flung himself into a headlong dash toward the Shura building. As he ran, bullets pounded into the dirt around his feet. When he reached his destination, he spotted Kirk lying on his stomach directly inside the front door. Corville rolled him onto his back and gently shook his shoulders. Kirk! Kirk! he yelled. Dude, can you hear me? Kirk's eyes were closed, and he made no response. The sniper's bullet had smashed through the cheekbone directly under his left eye, drilled through his head, and exited through the base of his skull. On the floor next to his head were small chunks of brain matter, lying inside a shallow pool of dark, frothy-looking blood. He was bleeding profusely from his nose, as well as from the wound at the back of his neck. And yet, remarkably, his lungs were still working. Every few seconds his chest would heave, forcing out a short, choppy breath that sounded labored and wet. Kirk was still alive. The trauma bag that Corville had hauled with him was jammed with enough medical supplies, combat gauze, pressure dressings, needles, and airway openers, to set up what we called a mass casualty center inside the Shura building. The idea was that we would best be able to protect our wounded and our medical team by spreading them between two locations rather than concentrating everyone in the aid station. That was the theory. But when Corville took a look around the room he was in, it was clear that the notion of collecting and treating patients in this space was ludicrous. The ceiling was made of plywood, and it already had several bullet holes through it. Given that the enemy could fire almost directly down on the roof, no patient would be safe lying in the center of the room. Even worse, now that the machine gun turret that was supposed to be protecting the front gate had been abandoned, Corville knew that there was no way we could hold and defend this position. So he decided, right there on the spot, that there would be no secondary trauma center. Instead, he would have to get Kirk back to the aid station, which meant a reversal of the gauntlet he had just run. But this time, he and three other men would have to haul, at full speed, the unconscious body of the second biggest soldier at Keating. Corville didn't hesitate. Hey, Davidson, can you run back to the aid station? He called out as he unfurled a thick roll of gauze, tucked a few pieces of Kirk's brain back into the exit wound, and began wrapping his patient's head. We're gonna need a stretcher. While Davidson set off, I was trying to prevent some additional casualties from happening about 200 yards to the east. After leaving the command post, my first goal was to get to Copus's gun truck, LRAS-1, which was still being targeted by some incredibly intense fire from the diving board. It was a distance of only 60 feet, and I arrived to find that Jones and Danley were already there, crouched in front of the gun truck and firing their M240 toward the diving board. That was a bit strange. The front of Copus's gun truck was pointed south so that he could shoot directly up at the diving board and the waterfall, 
which meant that his back was exposed to the north face. So Jones and Danley's job was to set up their machine gun behind the truck and start laying down fire on any snipers or RPG teams to the north that tried to shoot Copus from the rear. As it turned out, that's exactly where they'd posted up when they'd first reached Copus's truck. But the Taliban, who had done their homework, had been waiting for this exact moment, because about 30 seconds after Jones and Danley got in position, a massive barrage of rocket and small arms fire started hitting the ground around them. Dude, this is not good, exclaimed Danley, who was manning the gun while Jones fed him ammo. We need to move now. As they muscled the gun to the front of the Humvee and prepared to resume laying down fire on the north face, an RPG from the diving board plowed into the patch of dirt that they had just vacated and exploded. If they'd stayed there, it would have pureed them both. A half second later, Jones looked to his northeast and caught sight of a second RPG. It was heading directly toward a guard tower on the near corner of the Afghan National Army side of camp, less than 15 yards away. That tower, which was made of two-by-sixes and plywood, sat six feet above the ground and looked like a rickety gazebo. Perched on a chair inside the tower was one of the many ANA soldiers whose apathy and indifference had so infuriated Jones during the previous four months. Oddly enough, that man's demeanor didn't seem to have changed, despite that we were now facing an all-out assault. Kicking back in a casual pose and staring placidly away from the direction in which the RPG was arrowing, he displayed the kind of vapid stare that made Jones wonder if the man wasn't stoned out of his mind. If so, it was probably a blessing. When the rocket slammed into the guard tower with a ferocious pawoosh, the entire structure, along with the soldier inside, was blown to pieces. Jones had no chance to even register the horror of that moment, because a second later another rocket exploded directly in front of him, sending a jagged piece of shrapnel into Danley's helmet and a second one into Jones's leg. Both men were knocked to the ground, and Jones, who was now writhing in pain, screamed, My knee! My knee! Keep your heads down! yelled Copus from the turret, where he was launching one grenade after another toward the diving board, while sniper rounds from the north face struck the back of the turret and bounced around inside the gun shield, sending frags of hot lead into his hands. That was when I showed up. As I posted up along the west side of the gun truck by the hood, I could see that neither Jones nor Danley had any cover whatsoever. And although Copas was working his Mark 19 for all it was worth, he wasn't stopping the incoming fire that was targeting those two guys. There was so much RPG and B-10 fire coming down on them from the diving board that a cloud of flying dirt and moon dust completely surrounded the front of the Humvee. In another minute or two, they'd both be dead. You and Danley, displace back to the barracks right now, I ordered Jones, whose knee was tormenting him but still intact. Wait there until we can develop the situation a little better and figure out where we're going to flex you guys to next. As they grabbed their machine gun and took off, yet another RPG drilled into the top of Blue Platoon's barracks and dropped a piece of the roof directly onto Jones, crumpling him to the ground. Jones! screamed Copus, who had caught the whole thing out of the corner of his eye 
and was sure that Jones was down for good this time. But a second later, Jonesy was back on his feet and staggering behind Danily through a shallow trench that ran along the north side of Blue's barracks. Pushing Jones and Danily back to the barracks seemed like the right move. I assumed that if we were going to suffer a massive breach in our perimeter, it would probably take place on the western side of camp at either the front gate or out at the furthermost gun truck, where I could still hear Larson's lone fifty cal hammering away. If that happened, we'd need to send most of our extra men, including Jones and Danley, into that sector. What this meant, however, was that I was about to leave Copus all by himself, which I hated to do in the middle of such an intense firefight. Sometimes there are no good choices in combat. Just before I followed Jones and Danley, I reminded Copus that he was only thirty feet from the command post, and that the guys inside Blue Barracks were even closer. I confirmed that his truck was fully stocked with ammo, and that there was a Kevlar blanket on the rear of the turret, which was designed to protect him from getting shot in the back. Finally, I told him that the Afghan National Army troops were holding up the eastern side of the camp, so he had friendlies in the area. Sorry I pulled your machine gun team off of you, I said, looking up at him in the turret one last time before I made my run for Red Barracks. As I took off, I could hear Jim Stanley over the radio letting Corville know that a stretcher was on the way to the Shura building to assist with moving Kirk. The moment word got out that Kirk needed help, several of our guys, including Stanley, Raz, and Francis, had all converged on the aid station to help form a litter team and make the run. As Davidson laid the stretcher next to him, Corville and Raz started cutting off Kirk's gear leaving nothing but his T-shirt and his underpants. They stripped his boots, his vest, and his chest rack, setting those items next to his weapons and his helmet, which had been blown off his head when he was shot. While they did this, the enemy continued pounding the Shura building relentlessly, hammering at the walls with RPGs and bullets and blowing more holes in the roof. The reverberations made the air so thick with dust that they could taste it. One of the unwritten rules of combat is that you don't get to reflect on loss until it's over. So as Corville and his team completed preparations for what they would do next, none of them paused to consider just how outrageous this was or how unthinkable they found it that Josh Kirk, one of the toughest and most fearless soldiers any of them had ever known, a man who was universally regarded by everyone with whom he had served as all but indestructible, lay gasping in a pool of his own blood. And yet Raz, being Raz, which is to say, being a man who combined brutality and empathy in a way that we all found odd and endearing in equal measure, what Raz did in that moment was to permit himself a few seconds of reflection that boiled down, in essence, to a wish. A wish that the fucker who had just drilled Kirk in the face with a single shot and who was probably still wedged between some rocks somewhere up there on the north face, had killed Kirk instantly, so that those who cared most deeply about him, those who loved him best, did not have to watch him struggle to breathe as they hefted his body from the floor of the Shura building and loaded it onto a stretcher while chunks of his brain lay marinating in the dirt. When they finished prepping their patient and got him loaded on the litter, Raz and Francis stepped outside with their guns 
and hurled out a curtain of suppressive fire from an overwatch along the Hescos that the Afghan security guards had abandoned. Then the rest of the guys grabbed onto the handles and headed through the door with Kirk. When you're running with a stretcher, it's generally a lousy idea to weave or zigzag or to try anything fancy. Moves like that are an excellent way to dump your patient onto the ground. What you want to do is to chart the simplest, most direct line to where you need to get him, and then haul ass at a dead-out sprint. Which was pretty much exactly what they did. There were four men on the stretcher, and as they ran, the bullets of the enemy gunners who were trying to take them out thudded into nearby walls and kicked up small clods of dirt around their feet. Corville, who was berating himself for having failed to bring his weapon, held on to one of the front straps, and the entire way he recited a little one-word prayer that he made up, right there on the spot, in the hopes of keeping them all safe. It went like this. Fuck, 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 Kirk's body was facing forward as they ran, with his shattered head lying at the front of the litter. He was completely limp, and the jostling of the litter team caused his arms and legs to flop over the sides of the stretcher and bounce crazily as they made a sharp left-hand turn and passed in front of the ammo supply point, then broke to the right to cross in front of John Deere's room, then ran down the alley with the wall of Hesco's off their left shoulders, and abruptly came up on the abandoned bobcat. With the bobcat in the way, the passage was too narrow to allow two men to run through it abreast. So Knight, who was on the front right handle, was forced to let go, almost dumping Kirk onto the ground, Somehow, Stanley seized the empty handle and took that corner of the stretcher the rest of the way in, past the west door of Red Barracks, past the cafe, and straight through the front door of the aid station. It offered a telling reflection of how the first few minutes of this battle were shaping up, that when Kirk's little team arrived, there was already a cluster of half a dozen wounded men on the porch in front of the aid station, with another half dozen or so inside. Doc Cordova was juggling several injured Afghan soldiers, plus a handful of Americans, all of whom had some combination of gunshot or shrapnel wounds to the head, chest, abdomen, or extremities. The sheer number of casualties was pretty startling. But what shocked Corville even more was that everyone who wasn't laid out on the floor seemed to be crouched on their knees. What the fuck is wrong with you guys? he exclaimed as Kirk's stretcher cleared the doorway. We just got hit, explained Cody Floyd, the medic for Blue Platoon. I got one in the armpit. Stone's leg is pretty cut up. Hobbs has got shrapnel in his neck and his chest, and somehow he got himself nailed in the ear, too. Specialist Andrew Stone was one of the mechanics, and Sergeant Jeffrey Hobbs was the medic for headquarters platoon. As it turned out, Shortly after Corville had departed for the Shura building, an RPG had slammed into the aid station's door jam, sending shrapnel spraying throughout the interior. Although the entire medical team except for Cordova had been hit, none of them was injured seriously, which was sort of hard to believe, given that a piece of the RPG had whacked Stone's combat vest with enough force to snap two of his magazines in half. 
As Corville helped move Kirk to the middle of the room so that they could start working on him, he realized that most of the blast had been concentrated on the metal box on which Corville typically sat whenever they were waiting out an engagement. That was enough to make Corville pause for a moment. If he had been sitting there, his face would have been taken off by that blast. In a very real sense, Kirk had probably saved his life. Now it was time to try and return the favor. When Doc Cordova performed his initial assessment, he could see that the sniper's bullet had caused multiple fractures along the right side of the base of Kirk's skull. Thanks to the RPG that had slammed into the wall of the Shura building, Kirk also had multiple ballistic impact points on his right arm and the right side of his chest. Because his brain wasn't getting enough oxygen, he was experiencing a form of respiratory distress known as agonal breathing, which would require one of the medics to respirate for him using a bag valve mask to perform the work that his lungs no longer could. Finally, noted Cordova, Kirk was bleeding like a stuck pig. While Corville worked to control the bleeding, Cordova was trying to get an IV into one of his veins. After several failed attempts, he turned to a device called a Fast One, which is designed to access a patient's vascular system by driving a line directly into his sternum. The Fast One, which looks like a flashlight, has ten needles protruding from the business end. When it is slammed home, the central needle punches all the way into the marrow of the chest bone. It's a fairly brutal procedure, but once Cordova rammed the line through, the medics were able to start getting saline solution, blood expanders, and other fluids into Kirk's body. Then they jammed a tube down his throat so they could get him on oxygen, and started chest compressions in an effort to keep blood moving through his body. While all of this unfolded, Kirk's eyes, which were now open, remained glazed and fixed on the ceiling, while lungs continued to emit labored, gasping breaths. Corville had no time to take any of this in, because more wounded men were already pouring through the door. Almost all of these were Afghans, and one or two of them involved some horrific casualties, the worst being a soldier who no longer had his eyes. He appeared to have taken a blast directly to the face from either a hand grenade or an RPG. His right eyeball was dangling from its socket, still attached to a whitish-looking nerve. The other orb had been punctured, and its contents, a clear, gel-like fluid, were smeared down the side of the man's face. Even with all of the butchery he'd witnessed in Iraq, Corville had never seen anything quite like this. He didn't even try to put the eyeball back in its socket, deciding instead to cup it gently in a bandage and then wrapped the man's head in gauze. While he completed the job, a few more Afghans rolled in, men who, unlike the blind soldier, appeared to be suffering from only minor cuts and scratches, or faking more serious injuries. Their aim, it seemed, was to take shelter in the aid station and hide from the enemy. Corville and the rest of the medical team had no way of knowing that this onrush of frightened Afghans had been set in motion by a defensive collapse among our allies on opposite sides of Keating. Nor did the medics realize that in addition to sending some of those soldiers running for the aid station, this collapse had resulted in two groups of panicked men who were now racing across the camp in different directions. Those human wave trains were about to come together within direct view of Zack Copus, who, 
thanks to the fact that I'd pulled away his machine gun team, was now all by himself. On the morning of the attack, there were 36 Afghan National Army soldiers at Keating, including a platoon sergeant who was serving as the unit's commander. When the ANA guard tower was blown to smithereens in front of Jones, that marked the moment that every one of these men ceased fighting and abandoned their posts on the east end of the camp. We would not discover until much later that a number of these soldiers, somewhere between ten and fifteen, had thrown down their weapons and actually run through the breach in the concertina wire toward their attackers, presumably in the hopes of surrendering. Most of them were gunned down on the spot, although a few were captured or managed to disappear into the trees. Meanwhile, a larger group turned tail and started running as fast as they could toward the center of camp, with the aim of seeking cover in whichever building looked most inviting, the barracks, the aid station, the command post. At the same time that this route was unfolding, the Afghan security guards who were responsible for holding the front gate on the opposite side of Keating also abandoned their post en masse and were now engaged in a similar stampede. While a handful of these men sought shelter in the buildings on the west side of the outpost, the mosque, the latrines, the showers, the bulk of them decided to run in the direction of the ANA encampment, having no clue that the defense of this entire sector had just collapsed. Neither of these events came as a huge surprise to me or the rest of my guys. Not one of us believed the ANA or the ASG possessed either the will or the ability to hold and defend their ground. But no one had ever imagined that they might all bail out at the same time, then set off running toward one another, which was the spectacle that was now about to unfold before Copus. A couple of yards in front of his gun truck, these two groups of Afghans, the soldiers running from the east and the security guards sprinting from the west, approached one another, converged, and kept right on going. It was one of the strangest things Copus had ever witnessed. Neither group of soldiers seemed to have the slightest effect on their counterparts. The two bands of men simply ran through each other like herds of cattle stampeding in opposite directions each convinced that it was headed away from danger and toward a safer place. As Copus watched this cross-tracking, he realized two things, that the eastern side of camp was now wide open, and that therefore the defense of that entire sector now consisted pretty much of himself and the Mark 19. There was nobody else. As bad as that was, Copus was no less disturbed by what seemed to be taking place within the abandoned ANA compound to his left. The half-dozen barracks buildings inside that compound had already absorbed some tremendous blows from the RPGs and B-10 rounds that had been raining down from the diving board. Most of those buildings, which were spaced close together and separated only by narrow footpaths, were composed of little more than sheets of plywood and scrap lumber. Inside this warren, the incoming ordnance now appeared to have ignited several fires, and flames were licking greedily at the wood and canvas. According to a report published after the assault, the attackers employed gas-filled RPGs, with the specific aim of setting Keating on fire. It wasn't a conflagration, at least not yet. But it was gaining strength, and it seemed to be headed in Copus's direction. 
As for me, the moment I'd left Cobus, I headed directly for Red Barracks, because I'd heard that Kirk's prognosis wasn't looking good, and I knew that I'd need to provide his blood type in order to call for a medevac and get him headed toward the military hospital at Bagram, which was the only place that could handle his wounds. As I darted through the alley between the gun truck and the barracks, I juked left and right in the hopes of throwing off the gunners who were trying to nail me. The entire way, I could hear Bunderman going back and forth on the radio with Gallegos, who was now preparing to make a run from the latrines in the hope of assisting Larson. We need mortars, air support, anything, Gallegos was yelling, or we're going to die here. Gallegos was the kind of man who almost never lost his cool on the radio. So this could mean only one thing. My best friend, Brad Larson, who was still stuck by himself out at the most vulnerable position in the entire battle space, was in big trouble. Chapter 9 Luck By now, Larson should have been dead several times over. Against some appalling odds, he'd managed to survive a fusillade of machine gun fire, several snipers, at least one direct RPG hit, and perhaps most amazing of all, two reloads of the 50 cal. But as he started running through his third and final belt of linked machine gun ammo, things seemed to be getting worse. While there was still no sign that our mortars were up, the enemy fire was growing more intense and more accurate. The combined effect of it all was enough to make him think that his luck had finally turned and was now heading downhill in earnest, when two things happened that made him reconsider. First, Mace showed up. About twenty seconds after that, Gallegos did too. The front of Larson's Humvee was shielded by a four-foot-high wall of gray and blue plastic sandbags. Tucked directly between this bulwark and the hood of the gun truck was an M240 machine gun mounted atop a piece of steel pipe just like the one up at the mortar pit. When Mace arrived, a bit breathless from his run from the area near the latrines, he grabbed the machine gun and was racking back the charging handle when Gallegos, who had seniority, pulled him off and took his place. Peering over the sandbags, Gallegos now had a direct view into Ermul, where he could see dozens and dozens of muzzle flashes exploding from the top of the mosque and the school as well as from numerous windows and doorways in the houses along the near side of the village. Although Larson had already been firing into the village for more than ten minutes, Gallegos was a bit hesitant to start machine-gunning what he presumed to be the residents, Afghan civilians, without getting a green light from Bunderman. We're getting attacked from the village, he shouted into his ICOM radio. Do I have permission to fire back? Absolutely, replied Bunderman. Light it up. With that, Gallego started pouring the 240's entire 300-round belt directly into Ermul, while Mace took aim with his M4 at the fighters who were concentrated inside the Afghan National Police Station, which was just outside the village and opposite our helicopter landing zone. Adding two more guns to the fight certainly helped. With the extra firepower, Larson was able to focus more carefully on the individual RPG and machine gun teams. But with no more than 2,000 rounds for the 240, Gallegos knew that he could sustain fire for only another four minutes or so, and that Mace's 730-round magazines wouldn't last any longer. 
After that, their guns would be useless. We need ammo right now, he yelled into his radio. This is no bullshit! As he spoke, you could hear explosion after explosion after explosion in the background. It sounded horrific and unrelenting. Although there were a handful of ammo bags scattered in various different buildings around Keating, almost all of our munitions were stored in the Ammo Supply Point, or ASP. This was actually two separate structures, both located on the east side of the Shura building. Each was made out of HESCOs arranged in the shape of a rectangle about 12 feet deep and 20 feet wide. Both rooms were protected by a roof made of heavy beams and plywood topped by three or four feet of sandbags, all covered by blue tarps for waterproofing. The building on the north housed hard-case munitions that were fairly stable and therefore unlikely to blow up. This included all the ammo for our machine guns, as well as the bullets for our carbines and sidearms. The more volatile stuff, grenades, AT-4s, and claymores, along with our entire stash of TNT and C4 explosives, was warehoused in the building next door. Inside both structures, crates were stacked to shoulder height and sat atop wooden pallets running along each wall, which left a pathway running down the middle of each room. In many ways, these two buildings were the linchpin to Keating's defense because they contained everything we needed to stay in the fight. If they were to fall into the enemy's hands, our guns would soon go silent, at which point the battle would devolve into a hand-to-hand affair as the Taliban moved from building to building, shooting us down point-blank until there was no one left. When the radio calls for ammo started coming in from the perimeter, the section leaders of Blue Platoon gathered their men to form a team whose mission was to get out to the ammo supply point, grab whatever was required, then fan out to the battle positions that needed resupply. Sergeant Eric Harder and Sergeant John Francis were poised to lead this group, which numbered seven guys, including themselves. And from the second they burst through the west door of Blue Barracks and started their run, they started taking contact from every direction, both small arms fire and RPGs. Harder was in the lead, followed by Francis and then the rest of the team. They covered the distance quickly, and thanks to the fact that a good portion of the route was partially concealed by leafy tree branches or camouflage netting strung between the buildings, they didn't absorb a real hit until they took their first pause, between the command post and Red Platoon's barracks. As Harder peeked around a corner formed by the Hescos to confirm that the rest of the route was clear, an RPG exploded directly in front of him. Although the concussion was powerful enough to knock Harder to the ground, the shrapnel missed him. Francis picked him up, and together they completed the final twenty-five yards of their rush and stacked up in a line along the wall of Hesco's bisecting the camp. It was here that they ran into Ty Carter, a specialist from Blue Platoon, who had arrived just a few seconds earlier and was preparing to enter the southern building. Both structures had a plywood door framed with two-by-fours anchored into the Hesco's. Each door was fronted with a crude wooden handle and a small metal clasp, onto which one could place a lock. For the bulk of our stay at Keating, those doors had been unlocked. But just a few days earlier, First Sergeant Burton had ordered the locks fastened as part of the general effort to corral all of the weapons in camp prior to Keating's impending shutdown. This wasn't a popular move, 
and when Harder and Francis reached the ammo supply point, the reasons became obvious. No one had thought to bring the keys, which were kept back at the command post. Fortunately, the handles and metal clasps on the doors were flimsy enough that when Harder grabbed hold, he had no problem ripping the doors open with his bare hands. As he pulled the lock off the door to the north building, yet another RPG hit the Hesco wall directly across from him and exploded, blowing Francis into the wall while flinging Harder through the open doorway, in the process peppering one of his legs with shrapnel. A bit stunned, both men picked themselves up and got to work tearing into the crates and handing their contents off to the men behind them. Along with instructions to return to Blue's barracks after he'd completed his run, each soldier was told what he was being given and where it needed to go. Here's 2,000 rounds of 7.62 for the Mark 48. Get this to the Shura building. Go! Here's a case of Mark 19 for Coppice. Get this to Elraz 2 now. Carter, here's a crate of linked 7.62 for the 240. Get this out to Gallegos. Go, go, go! When Francis and Harder finished passing out what was needed, they retraced their run back to the barracks. Once again, they found themselves under fire the entire way. Although neither man was hit, the fact that bullets and rocks were kicking up so close to their feet left them convinced that the enemy had taken note of their initial run and anticipated their move. Next time they were ordered out to the ammo shed and the gun trucks, they might not be so lucky. As bad as it was in the center of camp, however, things were even worse out at Elraz, too. One oddity of Larson's fifty cal machine gun was that it wasn't anchored securely to the turret of his gun truck. The weapon rested inside a steel yoke, which had a two-inch pin protruding from the bottom that fit loosely into a hole in the turret. As Larson got down to the last five linked rounds in his third belt of ammo, the drawbacks of this system were revealed when another well-aimed RPG came torpedoing in from Ermul, slammed into the sandbags in front of the truck, and exploded with enough force to lift the 84-pound gun into the air and fling it off its mount, while destroying its receiver housing and feed tray. As an added bonus, the same RPG sent shards of metal into Larson's right armpit. By this point, the Taliban snipers were so fixated on Larson that it was impossible for him to lean out of the turret and retrieve the gun. As he took a final glance at it before ducking down into the Humvee, he saw a sniper's bullet strike one of the last five rounds hanging from the breech and cleanly take the head off the bullet's casing. Dropping from the turret and settling into the driver's seat, Larson couldn't help but feel like someone had just punched him in the gut. The loss of the fifty cal was a heavy blow, possibly even a game-changer. But his run of bad luck was just getting started. At this point, Gallegos, who was still standing outside behind the M240 and firing for all he was worth, now became the focal point for much of the enemy's attention, as Taliban snipers, machine gunners, and RPG teams from inside Urmul, up in the waterfall area, and behind RPG Rock, all began homing in on him. As the density of their fire increased, rounds from several snipers and AK-47 shooters punched past the sandbags shielding his gun. At least one of these scored a direct hit on the M240's feed tray and foregrip, instantly rendering the weapon inoperable 
which meant that Gallegos and Mace had no choice but to abandon their position in front of the Humvee and join Larson inside the truck. Elraz, too, had now lost both of its primary weapon systems, and the men inside had only their carbines to fight with. This they tried to do, lowering their windows just enough to accommodate the barrels of their M4s and taking careful aim at their attackers. But when the snipers realized what was happening, they started placing rounds through the two-inch gaps at the tops of the windows, forcing the three men to pull their weapons back inside and close the windows up tight. The Taliban snipers then continued shooting directly into the bulletproof glass. The heavy 7.62 rounds from their Dragonoffs couldn't penetrate the three-inch thick glass, but they left indentations the size of baseballs and created dozens of starburst patterns that made the windows almost impossible to see through. Holy shit, there's a lot of them out there, remarked Gallegos. As they tried to take stock of where things stood and decide what to do next, the passenger door on the right side of the truck swung open to reveal Ty Carter, who had just made the 75-yard sprint from the ammo supply point and was now standing there holding two bags of ammo for the inoperable M240. I got your ammo, Carter announced. He was surprised that no one was outside manning the machine guns. Either get in and shut the door or get the hell out of here, yelled Gallegos. As Carter climbed in and shut the door, Larson asked if he had any M4 rounds. Carter was handing over his extra mags when the door swung open again. It was Vernon Martin, a sergeant attached to HQ platoon, who was Keating's chief mechanic, responsible for every motor-driven machine on the outpost. I heard you guys need ammo, said Martin. Get in or get the hell out of here, Gallegos yelled again. Martin handed in the bags of ammo he'd been lugging, then climbed in straight over Carter and squeezed himself into the gunner's platform underneath the turret, whose hatch was jammed open by the damaged fifty cal. Mace was in the process of divvying up the magazines from Martin's M4 when an RPG slammed directly into the turret, sending flames and shrapnel through the open hatch. Martin absorbed most of it. Hot, jagged pieces of metal penetrated his legs and hips in numerous places. While Martin screamed in pain, Gallegos keyed the pork chop, the handheld mic that controlled communications through the truck's radio to let Bunderman know that the mainspring defense on the entire western side of Keating was useless, and that the men inside his gun truck were now sitting ducks. Although the heavy weapon systems on El Raz II were out of action, the remaining battle trucks were still in the fight. But all three of those gunners, Faulkner, Coppice, and Hart, were about to go black on ammo, which meant they were out and were issuing urgent radio calls for a resupply. To the section leaders of Blue Platoon, whose men had only just returned to the barracks, it was clear that they needed to make another push to the ammo station. With that in mind, Harder and Francis started forming up a second team. First on deck to go through the door were two young specialists, Michael Scusa, followed by Jeremy Frunk. As with many of the younger soldiers in Blue Platoon, who had spent the first month and a half of our deployment up at Fritchie, I knew little about Scusa, other than the occasional remark one of my own guys dropped. If there was anything about him that stood out, it was that he seemed the opposite of what one imagines a warrior should look like. 
With his glasses and the awkward, boyish smile that he wore, a lot of the guys said that Skusa looked like someone from the cast of Revenge of the Nerds. Although Coppice, who had strong opinions about things like this, argued that he was instead a dead ringer for Ralphie Parker, the goofy nine-year-old kid in the movie A Christmas Story. Regardless, the two points on which everyone agreed were that Skusa cared deeply about his wife and that nothing could make him stop talking about their young son. It didn't matter whether he was on guard duty, standing in line for chow, or burning poop out of the latrines. If you were there with Skusa, it was pretty much a guarantee that you'd be treated to a lengthy and excruciatingly detailed update on every aspect of his little boy's world. How many naps he was taking each day. How far he'd been able to crawl. What he'd eaten for breakfast every morning since last Tuesday. These lectures could get so tedious that many of the guys had started making jokes behind Skusa's back, and sometimes even to his face. But it said something about both them and about what they really thought of Skusa, that although the teasing was often vulgar, it was never mean or cruel. Unlike the rest of us, he seemed too decent for that. Despite his gentle vibe, however, Skusa was a competent soldier, which was why he didn't hesitate when Hill ordered him to make a push through the west door and get to the ammo station for another resupply. He was running the second he got outside, and he was moving fast enough that he got five steps down the alley before the Taliban sniper who was hidden somewhere along the north face and who had that doorway lined up in his crosshairs managed to shoot him down. It happened right in front of El Raz 1, where Coppice, who caught the whole thing, heard only a single sound, a sharp little expression of surprise that came out like, huh, as Skusa went to the ground hard. The bullet, which had pierced the right side of his neck, severed his jugular vein and the brachiocephalic artery, then cut his spinal cord in two before blowing an exit hole in his back. Frunk, who was only a step or two behind, was preparing to grab Skusa, when a series of three separate shots were fired from the same location along the north face. The first round clipped the nylon sling on Frunk's assault rifle. As he sensed the weapon starting to fall and lunged to catch it, the second shot passed directly over his neck and plowed into the wall behind his head. That sent him diving to the ground, where fragments of the third bullet drove into his arm and leg after clanging off the side of Copus's gun truck. Frunk crawled back to the door, arriving just as Harder and Francis were about to head out. Scusa shot in the face, reported Frunk, as they dragged him inside. With that, Harder and Francis each seized a smoke grenade, pulled the pin, and popped it into the alley, one in front of Scusa and the other behind. When the grayish-white smoke was dense enough to cloak their movements, the two sergeants dashed outside, scooped Scusa's body off the ground, and ran him to the aid station. For the moment, there would be no more resupply runs going out to Hart, Copus, Faulkner, or the five men out at El Raz too. They would all have to make do with whatever they had left. Although Gallegos was the sort of man who was driven by the darker forces at the center of his soul, he also had a sense of humor. A lot of the younger guys initially found this surprising, but it was true. More than any of us, I think, 
He had a flair for staring misery and fear straight in the face and laughing. This was more than just an expression of Gallegos's defiance, although that was surely another signature aspect of his character. Instead, the laughter arose directly from Gallegos's appreciation for the way that the world can sometimes smash horror and levity together with such force that you can't even tell them apart. And a good example of how that worked was right now, because as Gallegos took stock of how thoroughly and utterly fucked he and his four companions were, he found that he couldn't stop giggling. Ho, 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 he chuckled, as another sniper round tried to punch through the glass right next to his head. Whoa, damn, that was close. In some ways, this was helpful. It lowered the tension inside the truck by a notch or two, especially perhaps for Martin, who was grimacing with pain as he pulled a piece of dressing from his aid pouch and tried to bind the shrapnel wounds on his leg. But it didn't do a thing to change the fact that they were trapped inside an undrivable Humvee, whose armor had been scalded by dozens of rockets, whose turret was wedged open by a useless machine gun, and whose windows were so smashed up that one could barely see out. But perhaps the most intolerable aspect of their plight was that there was absolutely nothing they could do other than sit there and listen to the Force Pro net, which was blaring over the speaker mounted up in the turret. Although they had piled into the truck in no particular order, they were positioned in a manner that roughly reflected their relative authority. Gallegos, the senior soldier, was in the front passenger seat that's typically reserved for the tactical commander, and was holding the pork chop. Larson was in the driver's seat, and in the back seats were the two junior specialists, Mace behind Gallegos and Carter behind Larson, with Martin, the mechanic, wedged between them. In a testament to the importance of luck in combat, the places where each man was sitting would soon seal his fate, although they had no way of knowing this. All they really understood was that together they were confronting one of a soldier's hardest and most frustrating predicaments, which was being forced to sit back passively while hoping that somebody was putting together a plan to pull their chestnuts out of the fire. As it turned out, I was working on something along those lines. The only problem was that, given the way the odds had been stacked, I wasn't sure that it had a prayer of working. Chapter 10 Tunnel Vision If you think of combat in terms of football, which is not a bad analogy, then the role played by a platoon sergeant is closest to an offensive coordinator, a guy who is in the game but not on the field. Instead, his job is to stand back, watch closely, and make sure his team has everything it needs to keep moving the ball toward the end zone. Up to this point in the battle, that's pretty much exactly what I was doing. My task was to figure out where my guys were, what they needed, and how to deliver those resources to them. This meant that despite all the running around I was doing, I wasn't engaged in any actual fighting, much less figuring out how to stage a counterattack. Instead, I was simply monitoring the radio in an effort to get accountability, a headcount and location for every member of the platoon. Which is why, during the twenty minutes that followed the initial attack, I never even fired my weapon. One of the many ways in which combat is not like football, however, is that if things start heading downhill fast, 
A platoon leader needs to come off the sidelines, jump onto the field behind the center, and make a throw. This doesn't happen often, and if it does, there's no manual for when and how it occurs. More than anything else, it boils down to a gut instinct, an innate understanding that it's time to transition out of one role and into another. And perhaps that's why, looking back on that morning now, I have no memory of making a conscious decision to set aside my responsibilities as a platoon sergeant and take direct action. There wasn't really any thought involved at all, nor, for that matter, was there any hesitation or second-guessing. All I can say for certain is that after leaving Copus at his gun truck and dashing through the alley toward the back door of our barracks, something about what I was hearing on the radio, in particular the increasingly strident requests for help coming from Gallegos, convinced me that I had to try to make something happen. When I stepped inside the barracks, the first person I spotted was Gregory, who was standing in the center of the room holding a Mark 48. Although the Mark 48 is classified as a light machine gun, it's heavy enough that its nickname among the guys who have to carry the thing is the Pig. It's a devastating weapon, capable of putting out 800 rounds per minute with extreme accuracy. Hey, give me that, I said, reaching over and grabbing the gun. How much ammo have you got? About 200 rounds, Gregory mumbled. His face displayed the kind of blank, dull-eyed expression, which suggested that events were happening too swiftly for him to process. Two hundred rounds wasn't even close to what I needed. And although Gregory was a perfectly nice young guy, he was about as far from A-team material as you could get and still be in Red Platoon. But the Mark 48 was the right tool for what I had in mind, which was to throw out a lifeline to the guys who were trapped with Gallegos and that was the only thing that mattered right then. The rest would just have to sort itself out. All right, I said to Gregory. Follow me. We went out the same door I had just come in, which looks directly onto the rear door of the command post. We were both running, so I had only a split second to absorb what was going on, but as Gregory and I hooked a sharp right and raced south toward the gym and the mosque, I could hear enraged shouts. Get back to your positions and defend your country! As I turned to look, the door of the command post opened and the body of an ANA soldier was hurled into the alley. Inside, I could see Yanis Lakis, the enormous Latvian first sergeant who was in charge of training the Afghan army soldiers, seizing hold of a second Afghan and flinging him outside, where he sprawled in the dirt next to his companion. Where are your weapons? Lakis yelled in an accent that made him sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Get out and fight for your country! Jesus, I wondered. What the hell's going on in there? The answer to that question was something I was able to piece together only later, and understanding it requires knowing a bit about what had been taking place inside the command post since I'd left. During the fifteen minutes that had elapsed since Keating's main generator had been taken out, Andrew Bunderman had found himself dealing with a cascade of crises, each bigger and more unsolvable than its predecessor. As soon as the command post had lost power, First Sergeant Burton scrambled to get the SATCOM back up and running by switching the system over to battery power. 
Then he brought the TAC chat system back online by shunting it through the feed to our satellite antenna. These moves had restored our external communications. But right around this time, the fire's net had gone down as another antenna, one that was positioned on top of the mortar pit, was obliterated by an RPG. Without any way of speaking to the men at our mortar pit, Bunderman had no idea whether Big John Breeding and his team were simply cut off or if their position had been overrun and they were now dead. Fortunately, the radio connection between the command post and Fritchie still worked, so Bunderman contacted Lieutenant Jordan Bellamy, his counterpart at White Platoon. Bellamy was now the acting commander at Fritchie, which was equipped with a pair of mortars exactly like those at Keating. What Bunderman didn't yet know, however, was that the men at Fritchie had been subjected to an assault no less vicious than the one that had been unfolding at Keating. Just like us, they'd been awoken by a massive bombardment of rockets and machine gun fire coming from all directions. And like us, they immediately understood that this was no mere hit and run, but a sustained effort to overwhelm them. As Bellamy now explained to Bunderman, his post was being hit from all directions with massive fire, much of which was concentrated on the mortar pit in order to prevent Fritchie's biggest guns from coming up to support Keating. The attackers, who were now within 75 yards of Fritchie's perimeter, almost at the edge of their wire, had the pit under such intense fire that Bellamy's men couldn't even get within 30 feet of their mortar tubes. Once again, the Taliban were coordinating their attack in a manner that neatly conformed to what we all had anticipated, and the strategy was proving every bit as effective as we'd feared it would. 6.17 a.m. Keating 2 Ops Fritchie and Keating taking heavy contact. It's coming from everywhere. The switchbacks from Ermool, the diving board, and North Face at Keating. Fritchie is surrounded as well. With Fritchie's mortars neutralized, at least for the moment, the enemy had not only robbed us of our most effective weapon system, but also cut off our Plan B. All of that was bad enough, but just as disturbing, from Bunderman's perspective, was that his initial requests for air support had yet to yield any results. When the attack broke out, the nearest Apache helicopters were on the tarmac in Jalalabad, their crews were responding as fast as possible. Indeed, the first sortie would be in the air within the next three minutes. But those aircraft, which were the Army's most effective tools for dealing with a crisis like this, would take almost an hour to reach us. While the choppers were scrambling to get airborne, Bunderman's request for air support was relayed to Bagram Airfield just outside Kabul. A pair of the Air Force's F-15E Strike Eagles were sitting at the end of the runway and preparing to launch when they were notified by satellite radio that their current mission had been scrapped. Proceed directly to Cop Keating, said the call. It's being overrun. As this pair of Bagram-based planes got airborne, two more F-15s that were just coming off of a night sortie, and thus already in the air, were also ordered to assist. All four of those fighters were armed with two 500-pound laser-guided bombs, three 500-pound GPS-guided bombs, and one 2,000-pound GPS-guided bomb, plus 20-millimeter machine guns. Those planes wouldn't be enough to stop the Taliban's attack in its tracks. But they could slow the enemy down and buy Bunderman some time to regroup. 
that was all good news. The bad news was that it would be at least another ten minutes, maybe even fifteen, before the first of those aircraft was on the scene, and thanks to some additional communications complications that occur whenever the Army and the Air Force are attempting to coordinate, it would take another five minutes to clear the airspace and provide positive ID on the targets before those fighters could drop their bombs or conduct a strafing run. That sounds like a short amount of time, and it is, unless you're about to be overrun, in which case it feels like forever. With both Keating's and Fritchie's mortar pits pinned down, with the first fighter jets still twenty minutes away, and with only two of our four battle trucks now returning fire, Bunderman knew that it was only a matter of minutes before the enemy breached the perimeter at Keating, and apparently the Afghan National Army soldiers, who by now had abandoned their positions on the eastern side of camp, understood that danger too, because it was right about then that nearly a dozen of these men burst through the door of the command post. Where are the helicopters? demanded the Afghan commander. We need to leave. At first, Bunderman was so shocked by the absurdity of this request that he didn't know how to respond. Uh, that's not going to happen, he finally stammered. You and your men need to get back out there and defend your side of the perimeter, immediately. At this point, the Afghan commander started acting in a manner that would later be described in the official after-action documentation as somewhat detrimental to the command and control of the troop. What this translated into was that the dude totally lost his shit, while Bunderman and the rest of the team inside the command post stared in amazement. In the midst of this rant, Lakis, the Latvian military advisor, burst through the door and urged the Afghan commander to get his men back into the positions that they had deserted. Hey, we need to get out of here and do our job, declared Lakis. Let's get outside and shoot some people. This had no effect whatsoever on the ANA commander, who continued to call for helicopters to evacuate him and his men. Finally, with a nod from Bunderman, Lakis seized the Afghan soldier standing next to him, opened the door with his shoulder, and hurled the man outside into the alley, just as Gregory and I were exiting the barracks with the machine gun. When I saw that man land in the dirt, I knew nothing of what had just taken place inside the command post. But it didn't take much for me to connect the dots and draw the obvious conclusion. If there was a way to turn this situation around in the next few minutes, no one not even our supposed allies, was going to help. Instead, we were going to have to figure things out for ourselves. With Gregory at my heels, I raced south, moving along the alley between our barracks and the command post before heading uphill toward the chow hall. As we ran, we kept close to the walls and did our best not to draw attention to ourselves, because I was hoping to sneak into a place and set up our machine gun without being spotted by the enemy. As we approached the chow hall, we made a sharp right turn and hooked around the side of the mosque, at the far corner of which lay a drainage ditch that was about four feet deep and two feet wide. On the opposite side of the ditch was a concrete slab on which sat a rectangular metal structure that was four feet high and painted lime green. This was the diesel-operated 100-kilowatt generator that had already been disabled by rocket fire. Because it was wedged right next to the mosque and our tool shed, 
the generator was somewhat concealed from the north, the south, and the east. From the top of the generator, however, you had an unobstructed view of the entire western side of camp, all the way out to the gun truck where Larson, Gallegos, and their teammates were trapped. There was also a direct line of sight to the switchbacks and the waterfall on the left, the putting green on the right, and wedged between them, the village of Ermool. It wasn't the perfect spot for a machine gun, but it was the best place I could think of, and hopefully it would fit the bill for what I had in mind. Gregory and I slithered on top of the generator and got busy setting up the Mark 48. As we worked to get the gun in place, I could hear Gallegos and Bunderman going back and forth on the radio, Gallegos still forcefully calling in his requests for mortar fire and close air support, Bunderman continuing to reply that the mortars at both Keating and Fritchie were suppressed, and that the fighter jets would not be on station for another ten minutes. When Gregory fed the first hundred-round belt of ammo into the left side of the gun's feed tray, I stared down the barrel and got my first good look at what we were facing. There were several RPG teams along the switchbacks and the putting green, along with at least one sniper team inside the Ermul Mosque. The enemy also had one machine gun concealed behind a clump of rocks at the waterfall area, another team tucked behind the foliage in the switchbacks above the mortar pit, a third one laying down fire from a house on the north side of Ermul, and a fourth team that was nestled behind a large boulder on the slope just above the sub-governor's house, the highest structure in the village, directly beneath the putting green. Every one of those positions was hurling as much fire as they possibly could at the LRAS-2 gun truck, which was being hit from so many directions that the Humvee was all but obscured by a haze of dust and smoke. As appalling as all of that was, however, what really took my breath away was just how many fighters there were moving around the hillsides. They were descending from the ridge lines in every direction, and as they moved through the rocks and the trees, clad in their loose-fitting robes and turbans and carrying their weapons, they looked like an army of ants coming down the mountain. There was so much noise coming from both the attackers and from our remaining two gun trucks, one explosion after another, that there was no need for me to keep my voice down as I keyed the mic on my radio to interrupt Bunderman and Gallegos. Hey, G, I sneaked into a place where I've got a machine gun on pretty much every sector you're taking fire from. I said. I'm going to open up and start suppressing, and if I can lay on enough fire to keep their heads down, you and your guys can make a run for it. Can you do that? It was clear to Gallegos and his team in El Raz too that they needed to find a way to break contact and make their way back to the Shura building. Their best chances of survival, as well as of keeping everybody else inside the wire alive, was to make a push to the Shura building, secure the ammunition stored next door, and then fight from there. The plan that Gallegos had come up with, and which he'd already thrown out to the rest of the group for their reaction, was based on where they were sitting. Since Gallegos and Mace were positioned on the north side of the truck, they would open their doors and, together with Martin, who would join them, they'd make a direct run for the latrines while Larson and Carter, shielded on the south side of the truck, would provide cover fire. Once Gallegos, Mace, and Martin were in position behind the latrines, they would then lay down cover fire to enable Larson and Carter to make the run. Then they would repeat the same set of moves to reach the safety of the Shura building. 
Right now, we're just taking too much fire to move, replied Gallegos. Okay, I'm going to open up with the Mark 48, I declared. Move when you can. I'm engaging now. With that, I took a deep breath, racked the bolt on the rear of the weapon, and opened up. Back in Carson during our battle drill training, one of the most important things I always tried to impress on my guys was that when you're facing an attack from several directions, it's important not to allow yourself to become locked on a single individual or group. Don't get tunnel vision, I'd tell them. Even though you'll be fighting against your instincts to finish the job, never allow yourselves to fixate on annihilating any one target. Send out an accurate burst toward each one, then move on to the next. Otherwise, you'll get hit by someone coming at you from a direction you're not even aware of. Doing my best to adhere to the advice that I'd dished out to others, I started on my left and began punching rounds into pockets of men throughout the switchbacks, then started working my way toward the village in the center and eventually swept to the putting green on the right. Then I moved back to Ermul, then returned to the putting green, then jumped over to the switchbacks. Ermul, putting green, waterfall, mosque, switchbacks. Ermul again, putting green, Ermul again. Some of this was effective. I was able to eliminate two machine gun teams, one high on the switchbacks, the other lower down on the slopes just above our mortar pit. But as fast as I suppressed fire from one pocket of insurgents, two or three others would resume, and with each new burst from the Mark 48, I was drawing more and more attention to myself. Also, there were so many targets, and so many additional fighters now taking aim at me, that there was no way for me to keep up. If I'd been able to put another gun in place and coordinate some crossfire, it might have been possible to shut them down hard. But one gun simply wasn't enough. As I burned through our first belt of ammo and Gregory was loading up the second, I could hear Gallegos calling me on the radio. You can't lay down enough fire for us. You're not being effective, he shouted. There's just too many. That wasn't at all the message I wanted to hear so I bore down tighter, focusing more intently with each additional burst, in the hopes that I could tear some permanent holes in the Taliban line. And in the process of doing that, I totally forgot the advice that I had pounded so relentlessly into my own guise, allowing myself to get zoned in too narrowly on a single target, a one-story mud house on the north side of Ermul, whose windows were bright with continuous muzzle flashes, while losing sight of the bigger picture until... BOWAM! To my far right, about forty yards downhill, a Taliban RPG team had made it to Keating's front gate, which was no longer protected by the machine gun turret atop the Shura building, unlimbered their weapon, and sent a rocket directly into the middle of the generator. The rocket hit the main motor housing just a few feet to my right, and the blast, which was ferocious, picked me up, hurled me into Gregory, and dumped both of us together with the machine gun off the far side. I picked Gregory off the ground and confirmed that he hadn't been hit. Get back to the barracks. Try to find some additional machine gun ammo and bring it back here, I ordered. Then I scrambled on top of the generator with the Mark 48, got the gun back in place, and started cranking through my final hundred rounds on the last belt of ammo. You're not bringing enough firepower to allow us to move, 
reported Gallegos. They have too many guys. We can't move. We just can't move. By now, the enemy gunners had a bead on me, and as I reached the end of my third burst, rockets and gunfire were striking the metal surface of the generator all around me. Hey, G, I can't hold this position any longer, I radioed as my final rounds were expended. I'm out of ammo. They know where I'm at, and I just can't cover you. I'm sorry. Roger that. Thanks for trying, he replied. I guess we'll just hang out here for a bit longer. As I climbed down from the generator, I had a horrible feeling that I'd just failed on two fronts. I'd been unable to deliver Gallegos, Larson, and the rest of their guys what I'd promised, while simultaneously doing absolutely nothing to relieve Bunderman and his team of the mess that they were trying to solve. A mess that, from what Bunderman could now see and hear back at the command post, only seemed to get worse with each passing second. Even before the Afghan National Army soldiers had been booted into the alley outside the command post, Bunderman was already searching for another way to get Keating some artillery support. The person he turned to was Kaysen Schrode, his square-built, 220-pound fire support officer. In addition to having been West Point's lead tackler during his senior year, Schrode was exceptionally good at the intricate and technical challenges of coordinating air support, artillery, and mortars. In essence, anything that might be moving through the air around or above Keating. Bunderman and Schrode both knew that the fastest way to get some relief for Keating was to find a way of freeing up Fritchie's mortar pit, and perhaps the best way of solving that problem was by turning to the massive gun emplacements at Bostick. Inside the center of Bostick were several howitzers, each of which was capable of hurling a 155-millimeter explosive shell well over ten miles. That was close enough to put a shell just outside the wire at Keating. But at that range, the margin of error for Bostick's artillery was 800 meters, which meant that any shell they fired was just as likely to obliterate us as to destroy whatever target we were asking them to hit. On the other hand, Fritchie was slightly closer to Bostick than Keating, and therefore within accurate range of those big guns, albeit just barely. So Schrode immediately started pulling up all the information we had on how to target Bostick's howitzers onto Fritchie's attackers. If the gun crew at Bostick could get some of their 155 shells close to those attackers, Fritchie's mortar team might be able to lay their guns onto targets like the putting green, the north face, the diving board, even Ermul itself, places from which we were getting hit the hardest, and thereby take some of the heat off Keating. While Schrode punched up the data and crunched the numbers, Bunderman turned to answer a series of calls that he'd been getting from the command post at Bostick, where Colonel George was monitoring the battle. Several minutes earlier, the colonel had awoken to the news that Keating was in danger of being overrun. When he stepped into the command post, his team already had a map of the outpost up on the board. Based on the information that was pouring in, they were filling in the sectors that the Taliban controlled with red markers. When George looked at the board, everything but the aid station, the command post, and Red Platoon's barracks was colored in. For the first several minutes, while George's battle captain and his second-in-command ran the fight, the colonel concentrated on ensuring that the requests for fixed-wing and rotary air support 
were given full priority as they went up the chain of command. Now, with a range of aircraft bearing down on Keating from several different directions, George took over the SATCOM to assure Bunderman that help was on the way, and then turned to the next item on his list of concerns. Do you have accountability? he asked. Accountability isn't necessarily the first priority during an attack, but the moment that things are under control, it's one of the first things that High Command wants to know. Even if they are wounded or dead, have you figured out where all your people are at? Unfortunately, when that request came in from Colonel George, things at Keating were very much not under control. And so Bunderman's first impulse, the thing that he most wanted to do, not only because it would have been the truth, but also because it might have helped convey some of the balls-to-the-wall urgency that the situation demanded, was to repeat the question back to Colonel George. Do I have accountability? And then explain that in light of the fact that our Afghan allies had just left two entire sectors of the outpost wide open to anyone who might want to waltz through the wire, and given that two of his key battle positions were now completely cut off, one of which, the mortar pit, he had no communication with whatsoever, while the other involved five guys who were wedged into a toasted piece of armor on the far side of camp, and furthermore, given that his command post had just been bum-rushed by a dozen Afghan dudes whose only interest lay in finding out when they were getting chauffeured out of the place by private helicopter, and also given that the enemy's fire was continuing to pour down from the ridgelines from every direction and that he just had three soldiers shot in the face— what Bunderman really wanted to tell George was that, hell no, he did not have accountability. Absolutely not. No accountability whatsoever. And furthermore, if accountability was something that George wanted him to provide, then the colonel needed to find a way of getting some fucking air support on station right now. That's what Bunderman wanted to say. His actual response was a simple no delivered in a manner that was controlled and professional. But despite his best efforts, Bunderman couldn't quite suppress the tone of his voice, which sounded increasingly desperate. Even if George had been the sort of commander who didn't tune into that sort of thing, Bunderman's rising anxiety would have been obvious to him from the messages that were scrolling on the tack chat system in front of his screen which were reaching a level of stridency that is not often seen except when men are facing extremists. 6.39 a.m. Black Knight talk. We need something. Trucks are pinned. RPGs are being taken every time we try something. Mortars can't do shit. We are taking indirect fire. We took another casualty. When the classified transcripts of these communications were eventually dumped onto the internet by WikiLeaks, the New York Times would describe them as a frightening record that depicted a group of young American soldiers isolated and overwhelmed on enemy turf. I suppose that's more or less true. What mattered at the time, however, was that the sense of desperation that is so clearly evident in those text messages was about to set off a chain of dominoes, the first of which was already toppling in my direction. I wasn't privy to any of Bunderman's communications with Colonel George, nor did I much care as I pulled the machine gun off the generator and told Gregory, who had returned with more ammunition, to take cover in the adjacent drainage trench. At that moment, 
I was primarily concerned with ensuring that Gregory could hold this position if the enemy started coming through the front gate and tried to cut us off from Gallegos and his crew out at El Raz too. And to do that, he'd need some additional help. I'm going to get some more guys, I said, handing off the gun. Then I took off, tracing the same route alongside the mosque, then past the command post back to the barracks. Just as I got to the east door of the barracks, I was spotted by Raz, who had finished helping to deliver Kirk to the aid station and was now headed back to the barracks for more orders. Ro, dude, you're hit! he exclaimed. One of the weirder aspects of combat is that it's quite possible to get shot and not have the faintest idea. You get so amped up on adrenaline that you tend to focus on everything but yourself. As if to underscore how true this was, I didn't have a clue what Raz was talking about until he pointed to my right arm, which had a hole on the outside of the forearm about the size of a silver dollar, courtesy of a piece of shrapnel from the rocket that had blown me off the generator. There didn't seem to be much blood, perhaps because the wound had already been cauterized by the heat of the metal. The edges were raised, and at the center was a small crater. It almost looked as if someone had taken a welding torch and shoved it into the skin. My main concern was assuaged when I wiggled my fingers to ensure that I still had the use of my hand. My second worry was relieved when I flipped my hand over, rotating the forearm, and saw that there wasn't any blood coming out the bottom, which meant that it wasn't a through and through. I was set to brush the whole thing off and keep moving, but Raz was insistent about wrapping it and had already reached into my aid pouch on the non-shooting side of my left hip, grabbed a dressing, and was now winding it around my arm as if he were cinching down the girth strap on a pony. It felt far too tight, but I had bigger things on my mind as I rolled through the door, stepped into the barracks, and spotted Jones standing by the west door awaiting orders. Jonesy, I need you to get up to the trench by the mosque and help out Gregory, I told him, knowing that Jones was a much better machine gunner than Gregory and would be far more effective at laying down suppressive fire. Get on the Mark 48, hold that position, and don't let them get any closer. Then my attention was pulled over to the west door by the sound of a heated argument. Stanley, our platoon's senior squad leader, was standing in a nose-to-nose face-off with Hart. From the tone and volume of their voices, they'd been going at it pretty hard. Hart looked angry, while Stanley appeared exasperated. When Stanley caught sight of me, he took a step back, and pointed in my direction. You need to go talk to Roe, he barked. Hoo boy, I muttered to myself, as Hart headed in my direction. What he laid on me in the next minute or two was an idea whose flawed assumptions and tactical misguidedness were exceeded only by the fact that it was so incredibly brave. Part 3 Overrun. Chapter 11. The Only Gun Left in the Fight. What Hart had in mind arose from his awareness that we had lost all momentum and initiative. Our force was now fragmenting, breaking into small, isolated pockets of resistance like the mortar pit, Gallegos's gun truck, and Fritchie, which could no longer support one another. But instead of reversing that downhill slide, it looked like we were now about to pull back further and give up even more ground. 
Before that happened, Hart was determined to go and get our guys at Elraz too. The key to his plan was Truck 1, where Faulkner was still manning the 50 cal from the gunner's turret. What Hart wanted was to start up the Humvee and drive the thing from its current location all the way over to the western end of camp, a distance of about 60 yards, in order to relieve Gallegos and his team. That's a bad idea. Truck 1 is almost out of ammo, I declared after he laid it out. We need to come up with a better plan than driving a Humvee that's almost black on ammo right into the middle of heavy contact. We just found some more 50 cal ammo, and I've got two guys coming with me, replied Hart, pushing back. We'll run the Humvee over there, and we'll either throw Gallegos and his guys in the truck, or they'll run alongside, and we'll give them cover that way as we bring them back. Part of the problem with arguing against this was that the idea actually had merit. If Hart could get Truck 1 all the way over to Gallegos, he'd place another heavy weapon system back into the fight at the far end of camp. At that point, he and Gallegos could decide if they wanted to stay there and use the 50 cal to lay fire on the switchbacks in the hopes of enabling Breeding and his crew, assuming they were still alive, to bring their guns back up at the mortar pit. Or Gallegos and his team would have the option of falling back to the Shura building under the protection of Truck 1. Either way, we'd be in a stronger position than where we were now. My concern wasn't the idea itself, but the way it would be executed. As Hart and his team made their way toward Gallegos, they would be partially protected on their left flank, where the Humvee would be screened by the trees and other vegetation along the southern perimeter of the outpost. His right flank, however, would be completely exposed to the enemy gunners on the north face plus any RPG teams that might be massing around the front gate. Hart's crew would have absolutely no protection from that sector, and even if his gunner on Truck 1's 50 cal was lightning fast, it would still be impossible for that shooter to focus on all the targets directly in front of him, the waterfall area and the putting green, while simultaneously swinging over to fend off an attack coming from his right. Finally, there was simply no way that I could put a machine gun in place to support Hart, because I had just been driven off the one spot from which we could do that. Look, I can't do anything to secure your right flank, I explained. The generator's the only place where we can do that, and me and Gregory just got blown off of the thing. It's a bad idea. As I laid this out, I caught something coming off of Hart. Partly a look, but also a vibe that told me it was pointless to keep pressing my case, because he had no intention of allowing himself to be talked out of his plan. He was determined to try something, anything, that might help Gallegos and his guys, and he wasn't going to let anything stand in his way, not even chain of command or a direct order. The only way for me to stop him from going would have been to cold-cock him to the ground. I also knew something else, something that, for lack of a better expression, boils down to what you might call the calculus of combat. I knew that despite the obvious risks, despite the very high likelihood that this would not end well, there was a slim chance that Hart might be able to pull it off. Under normal conditions, I would never have sanctioned something so sketchy. But right now, given how much we were up against and how close we were to being overrun, it was a chance we might have to take. Hart's best bet, I knew, would be to drive the truck along the backside of the mechanic's bay, which faced south, 
The building would shield him from the shooters along the north face, as well as anyone trying to come up at him through the front gate. So that's the message I tried to drive home. Look, if you're gonna do this, then you have to use the mechanics bay as your shield, I declared. Whatever else you do, do not take the truck between the mechanics bay and the shower trailers and put yourself in a position where your dick is out there flapping in the wind. Got it? Roger. Okay, I said. Do it. While Hart took off to get his team together, I took a second to weigh my options. I assumed that the Shura building and the front gate were still under our control, an assumption that I would soon discover was dead wrong. Not knowing that yet, however, I decided to use the next few minutes to dash over to the aid station to see how the medics were doing with Kirk. By this point, most of the Afghan soldiers who had sought admission to the aid station with fake injuries had been booted out of the building. The only exception that I could see as I came through the door was the ANA platoon sergeant, who was curled on the floor in the fetal position and refusing to move. Even without the malingerers, however, the place was still overflowing. Inside, there were seven Afghan patients who were suffering from a variety of gunshot wounds and lacerations, plus one man whose abdomen had been eviscerated. There were also several Americans with shrapnel or gunshot wounds. In fact, so many guys had been hit that the medics had started moving those with less severe injuries to other areas. The Americans who could still walk were being sent to the command post while the Afghan soldiers were being placed outside on the cafe, the small deck on the west side of the aid station that was partially surrounded by sandbags. The patients left inside the building were taking up every square inch of the blue linoleum floor, which was covered with blood. Most of those men were sitting or lying quietly, but one soldier in particular, the Afghan who had been blinded by the blast to the face, was making things difficult by continuously getting up from his chair, despite repeated requests by the medics to stay put. Eventually, Corville had grown so frustrated that he'd seized the guy by the shoulders and shoved him into his seat while telling him to sit the fuck down. In response, the man had hauled off and kicked Corville in the leg. It's a measure of how frustrated Corville was that he barely managed to restrain himself from punching the blind soldier in the face. Part of the reason Corville was so on edge was that the challenge of treating these patients was exacerbated by the fact that the medics didn't have their supplies on hand. Just a few days earlier, as part of the preparation for shutting down Keating, Doc Cordova and his team had been ordered to start dismantling their operation. They'd bundled whatever wasn't worth saving into trash bags, while packing anything of value inside more than a dozen plastic footlockers that could be loaded onto the Chinooks when the time came to evacuate. This meant that the shelves in the aid station were now all but empty, except for a cursory stash of the most essential supplies. Fortunately, the contents of each storage box had been carefully labeled. Those boxes, however, had all been stacked outside on the far side of the cafe. This meant that whenever the medics needed something, bandages, tourniquets, pressure dressings, Corville and Cordova would have to consult their list to figure out which box needed to be opened up, and then Corville would dash out the front door, race into the most exposed part of the cafe area, and frantically rummage through the correct box until he found what he was looking for, 
while praying that he didn't get picked off by a sniper or blown to pieces by an RPG. After Corville's third or fourth retrieval trip, he started calling these missions retard runs because they were so terrifying and so stupid. At one point, when Corville was rooting through a box, looking for more bandages, he heard an ominous thunk-thunk. Looking up, he spotted a grenade rolling toward him along the ground and flung himself through the door of the aid station. He landed directly on top of the Afghan soldier with the abdominal evisceration. In the midst of these challenges, about ten minutes earlier, Harder and Francis had burst through the door carrying Scusa. Cordova dropped what he was doing, examined the gunshot wound to Scusa's throat, and felt for a pulse or a heartbeat. Finding neither, he pronounced Scusa dead, the first time that he'd ever done such a thing, and with one of the other medics' help, took Scusa into the sleeping area, where they zipped him into a body bag and placed him next to Corville's bed. Meanwhile, as rockets continued striking the exterior of the aid station, the plastic smoke alarm on the wall blared incessantly, competing with the gunfire and all but drowning out the groans of the wounded. Eventually, things got bad enough that somebody had turned to Cordova and asked the inevitable. Hey, Doc, can we smoke in here? Only if you give me one, replied Cordova, in total violation of his strict no-smoking-in-here-ever policy. Hell yeah, Corville sighed in relief as he lit up a Marlboro Red and inhaled deeply. It was right about then that I came through the door and spotted Cordova, standing at the head of the litter frame on which Kirk was stretched out, lying on his back. When Cordova looked up and spotted me, I raised my right fist and made a thumbs-up, thumbs-down motion to ask how Kirk was. Shaking his head, Cordova gave me a thumbs-down. Then he and Corville hefted Kirk's body and staggered toward the sleeping quarters to get him into a body bag and place him next to Scusa. Under different circumstances, I might have been able to go up to Kirk's body and offer some sort of gesture, a hand on his shoulder, a word or two to bid him farewell. At that moment, however, such a thing didn't even cross my mind. Instead, I was fully attuned to the radio calls coming through on the Force Pro, where Hart was trying to report his movements to me. You don't need to be talking to me. You need to coordinate with the guy you're heading toward, I barked. Talk to Gallegos. Then I turned to the other radio call that was coming in for me, which demanded my immediate focus. Zach Kopis was in trouble. During the few minutes that had elapsed since I had taken away the machine gun team that was supposed to protect his gun truck, Copus had been hit with a lot. He had watched the exodus of fleeing Afghan soldiers running in opposite directions. He'd seen Skusa executed directly in front of him. He'd been subjected to unrelenting fire from the diving board throughout these events. And during this entire time, he'd been completely alone. He held up well to those challenges, in part because the Mark 19 was perhaps the ideal tool for dealing with his attackers, most of whom were hidden high above him behind rocks and trees, and moving like cats from one piece of cover to another. Thanks to that, it was especially challenging to shoot straight at them, which is what he would have been forced to do if the truck had been armed with a machine gun. With the grenade launcher, however, he'd been able to catapult his rounds over and behind the enemy. 
He was also helped by the killing burst radius of his grenades, which could do serious damage to anyone within fifteen yards of their blast. The other thing that Copus had going for him was plenty of ammo. The back of his Humvee was packed with boxes of Mark 19 grenades. He'd started out the morning with more than 600 rounds, and although he was working through them at a steady clip, he was still in better shape than any other gun truck. Unfortunately, though, a problem had cropped up that he had no way of solving. For the better part of the past 15 minutes, the sniper who had taken down Scusa had been doing his best to eliminate Copus. The shooter was tucked somewhere up inside the steep and densely vegetated slopes along the north face, directly behind Copus, and his aim was to fire through the foliage of a clump of ash trees located directly behind the truck in the hopes of drilling Copus in the back of the head. Although the rear of the turret was protected by a heavy piece of Kevlar tarp that was capable of absorbing shrapnel fragments and most small arms rounds, Copus had no way of turning around and returning fire. In addition to the fact that the turret of the Humvee could not rotate all the way to the rear, the lone tree directly behind him not only provided concealment, but also prevented him from seeing where the sniper was shooting from. What troubled Copus even more, however, was that the Kevlar tarp was coming to pieces. Each bullet that skipped off the top of the tarp would take another piece of the fabric while sending a tiny puff of air against the back of Copus's neck. That was disconcerting enough, but the rounds that struck the tarp directly were now leaving tiny holes, through which the sunlight was boring. With each additional shot, another beam of light shot through the Kevlar. Copus knew that it was only a matter of time before the sniper got lucky and put a bullet straight into his brain pan, and that the only way to turn the situation around was to get another sniper out to the gun truck. Catching Copus's message as I turned to exit the aid station, I glanced to my left and spotted the blind Afghan soldier who'd been giving Corville such problems. He was now slumped in a chair that had been placed right next to the door, and his entire head was covered in thick strips of gauze that Corville had wrapped around his face to support his ruined eyeballs. The blood running down his cheeks from his eye sockets had soaked through the gauze and formed crimson-colored lines that made it appear as if he was shedding tears of blood. The scene was horrifying enough to make one want to look away. But something about him made me pause on my way to the door. Resting in his lap was a leather bandolier lined with copper-tipped bullets, and leaning against the wall directly to his left was a Dragunov sniper rifle. Looking back on that moment now, I'd like to say that my heart went out to the wounded soldier. But in truth, the only thing I registered was that his weapon, for which he no longer had any use, was exactly the thing I needed. And then there was another thought, too. Cool. I've always wanted to shoot a dragon off. I plucked the ammo belt out of the man's lap, snatched hold of the sniper rifle, and headed out the door to make a run for Copus's truck. As I took off, I could hear Gallegos's voice on my radio. He sounded agitated, and he was now barking at heart. We do not need you. Get the hell out of here. It's a death trap. I had no idea what was taking place. But if Gallegos's words were anything to judge by, things were not going well out on the far side of camp.
To grasp the full measure of what was about to befall Hart and his team, it's necessary to pause and take a step back to the moment just before Hart and I got into our argument in the barracks, the moment when I ordered Chris Jones to head up to the trench by the mosque and lend a hand to Justin Gregory. As soon as Jones was given that command, he flung himself into a fifteen-yard uphill sprint toward the backside of the mosque, drawing fire the entire way. His run was interrupted by several rockets, one of which landed close enough to knock him on his butt. Greg, what's going on, man? He gasped as he'd finally arrived and slid into the shallow trench where Gregory was huddled. Where are they at? Although Gregory was a veteran with more than five years of experience, he'd spent most of his army stint in Fort Knox, Kentucky, where much of his non-duty time had been devoted to sharpening knives, which were something of an obsession with him. Unlike Jones, he was timid and often withdrawn. Prior to this deployment, he'd never even been shot at. And thanks to all of that, he wasn't responding well at all to his current predicament. In short, he was flat-out terrified. They're fucking everywhere, replied Gregory. Well, yeah, conceded Jones, who felt as if he'd stepped into the center of a circular firing squad. You know, they are pretty much everywhere. At that moment, an RPG slammed into the mosque, blowing out all the windows on the south side of the building and sending the pieces down on both men. The shower of shattered glass seemed to underscore just how cut off they were, and because neither of them had a radio, they didn't have the faintest clue what was happening elsewhere. To avoid the chaos that would be created by everyone attempting to communicate at once, we normally restricted radios to team leaders, who would communicate verbally with soldiers like Jones and Gregory. Unlike Gregory, Jones understood that it wasn't acceptable to simply keep their heads down and cower at the bottom of the trench in the hope that things would somehow improve. Whatever else might be happening, they needed to put up a fight and return some fire. All right, Greg, let's do this, said Jones, taking hold of the much heavier Mark 48, while Gregory switched to a squad automatic weapon, which we referred to as a saw. On the count of three, we're going to jump up and we're going to suppress. The plan was for Jones to concentrate on the switchbacks, while Gregory focused on the front gate and the north face. Jones jumped up, laid the Mark 48 along the top of the trench, and began spraying disciplined three to five round trigger bursts, taking aim at the myriad muzzle flashes he could see across the switchbacks and the waterfall area. As he fired, he also spotted something much closer at hand. Hart and Chris Griffin, a young specialist from Blue Platoon, seemed to be in the midst of an ammo run. Both men were carrying boxes of 50 cal bullets, and they were racing as fast as they could for truck one. Jones tried his best to lay down cover fire for the two runners, who made it safely into the truck. Within seconds, however, Jones could see that he had drawn the attention of several enemy gunners, who were now zeroed in on him. It was at this moment that he also realized, to his frustration, that he was all by himself. Gregory had never even bothered to stand up. Disgusted, Jones flung himself back into the trench. He lay there for a moment, staring up at the sky, and was wondering what his next move should be when suddenly Josh Danley's head appeared over the lip of the trench. 
Danny and two other guys from Blue and HQ platoons had been taking cover behind the tool shed, twenty yards away. Now they too were about to attempt to make a push up the hill to truck one. We're gonna run some ammo up to Faulkner, Danny yelled as rounds snapped the air on both sides of his face. We need you guys to cover us. To Jones, this seemed weird. Hadn't Hart and Griffin just pulled off that very job? Did Danley have a clue what the hell he was doing? Without a radio, there was no way to make sense of anything, so Jones figured it was best to do as he was told. When Danley and his guys started running for truck one, Jones popped back up with the machine gun, and this time, Gregory joined him. Because Gregory was facing in the direction of the front gate and the north face, he missed what happened next but Jones caught the whole thing. As Danley and his guys took off, they drew a ferocious amount of fire. By some miracle, none of them were hit. But within a few steps, they realized that truck one was no longer there. Baffled by the empty space, they turned in confusion, raced downhill, and piled back into the trench with Jones and Gregory. Jones had no idea why the guys in Truck 1 had pulled the vehicle out of its established battle position. He knew nothing about where they might have headed, or why. But he did know one thing, which is that Hart, Griffin, and Faulkner were now driving into the teeth of a ferocious shitstorm that had enveloped the entire western half of the outpost. Where did they go? he wondered, as he slammed himself back into the trench with Gregory. And what the hell are they trying to pull off? When Hart and Griffin tumbled into the cab of Truck 1, Hart took the front passenger seat while Faulkner dropped into the driver's seat. As Griffin climbed into the turret and got behind the machine gun, Faulkner turned the ignition key and threw the truck into gear. Hart ordered Faulkner to pull away from the side of the massive, potato-shaped boulder that protected the west flank of the gun truck and drive toward the showers by cutting along the north side of the mechanics bay. Significantly, this was exactly the route I'd urged him not to take. Instead of snaking along the back side of the mechanics bay, which would have shielded his movements, he would be out in the open and visible. The right side of his vehicle would be completely exposed to rockets and gunfire coming off of the north face, as well as from the direction of the front gate. I can't say anything about why Hart elected to take that route, except to speculate that he may have been lured by the desire to get to Gallegos and his team by the quickest and most direct line available. Regardless, the moment the gun truck left the protection of the rock and emerged into the open ground just beyond, which was now a kind of no-man's land, it became a fat target. All across the north face, the switchbacks, and the putting green, Taliban gunners started training their weapons on the truck and showering it with everything they had. As sniper rounds and sustained bursts of machine gun fire struck the windshield and the turret, Griffin did his best to return fire. But he was hampered by the need to swing the weapon in three directions. Within a minute, he found himself forced repeatedly to duck down inside the turret. When Gallegos, who was communicating with Hart on the radio, realized that the Humvee was moving along the most exposed and dangerous route, a new tone of stridency entered Gallegos's voice, as he ordered Hart to turn back before it was too late. And it was now that Hart's strengths as a soldier, 
his stubbornness, his resiliency, his refusal to back down without having finished what he had set out to do, started working against him. Ignoring Gallegos, he told Faulkner to keep rolling. They crept along at five miles an hour as Faulkner methodically threaded between obstacles that arose in his path. Despite the heavy incoming fire, the truck made steady progress. In less than ten minutes, the front of truck one had pulled to a stop about five yards behind the rear of El Raz II. There are so many blind spots from the cab of a fully up-armored Humvee that you can't really see anything that isn't directly in front or squarely off to the sides. So Gallegos had no way of observing Truck 1, even through his rearview mirror. Nevertheless, he knew exactly how much danger Hart and his team were in, which is why he started flat-out screaming into the radio. Get the fuck out of here! he yelled. Go now! Go, 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 go! As if to drive home Gallegos' order, an RPG scored a direct hit on the front windshield of Truck 1, engulfing the hood of the vehicle in a wall of flames while sending a torrent of shrapnel over the turret and into Griffin's face and chest. Now, finally, Hart fully understood that the firepower that was being brought to bear on this battle position was simply too intense to permit the men trapped inside El Raz II to withdraw safely. Sorry we couldn't help, Hart radioed to Gallegos as he ordered Faulkner to back up and get them out of there. We're leaving. Unfortunately, that wasn't going to be possible. Months earlier, the unit that was deployed at Keating prior to our arrival had begun erecting a new building directly to the west of the Mechanics Bay. The purpose of this structure had never been explained to any of us, and it didn't really matter, because the walls were only partially finished when orders came to halt construction. One of those walls, which was less than ten feet behind Hart's gun truck, had started coming apart under the impact of the dozens of rockets that had landed in the area, crumpling to form a mound of rocks and rubble. In his haste to get out of the kill zone, Faulkner now proceeded to reverse truck one directly into this berm, hitting the pile of debris with enough force that his vehicle shot all the way to the top of the mound before coming to an abrupt stop. Faulkner made repeated attempts to ram the truck backward and forward, but it wasn't going anywhere. The chassis of the Humvee was high-centered, and its wheels were no longer touching the ground. Firmly stuck, they were now little more than sitting ducks. Hey, we can't maneuver, Hart radioed to Gallegos. Hold on. Gallegos had been right. It was a death trap. Chapter 12 Charlie in the Wire The route that I took to get from the aid station to Copus's gun truck led directly across the dirt alleyway where Scusa had already been killed. I'm not sure why that same sniper didn't nail me, too. Perhaps some residual haze from the smoke grenades was still hanging over the roofs of the buildings. But regardless of the reason, I was able to dash across the fifteen-foot gap without incident and reached the side of Copus's Humvee. When I looked up, I could see that rounds were striking the turret and the doors from every direction. Hunched inside and trying to keep as low as possible, Copus looked absolutely miserable. Hey, dude, I called out, trying to sound as casual as possible. You doing okay? 
Not really, he replied. I've got this sniper at my back. From the sound of his voice, it was clear that Copus was deeply scared. Oh man, you don't need to worry about that, I joked. We're all gonna die today. The expression on Copus's face suggested that he was weighing the possibility that I might have lost my mind in the heat of combat. His impression of my sanity probably wasn't helped by the fact that while getting blown off the generator by the RPG blast, I had apparently taken a knock to the front of my face, and my teeth were now covered in blood. There was no point in trying to explain things, so I told him to just keep his head down and maintain his sector of fire while I got to work trying to weed out the sniper. I had only a crude knowledge of the weapon I'd pulled off the Afghan soldier, but my main concern was that its owner might not have zeroed in the scope, which meant that I couldn't be sure of its accuracy. However, the Dragunov 7.62 round was significantly heavier than what my M4 fired, so I could reach out a lot farther and, even if I only clipped my target, do considerably more damage to him. I started off on the back side of the truck. Standing next to the bumper, I scanned the north face through the scope, looking for spots that might conceal the sniper, mainly by trying to pick out positions that I knew I would use, while keeping an eye peeled for any sign of a muzzle flash. I picked a few areas where he might be hiding and placed a few rounds into those spots. Then I pulled back, moved to the front side of the truck, and repeated the process darting back and forth between the bumper and the area where the windshield met the hood. It was a strange game to play, and it was made doubly surreal because as I was conducting these moves, I could hear Gallegos still yelling at heart through the radio in my ear. Get out of there! Do not come! Turn around! Go back! It wasn't long before I caught the shooter's attention, and we found ourselves involved in a deadly, high-stakes game of peekaboo. I'd dash to the back of the Humvee and fire off a few rounds. Then I'd sprint to the front and throw a couple of head fakes without actually firing, before returning to the back and trying to pinpoint his location as he continued shooting at the place where I'd just been. My aim was to stay on the move, vary my pattern, keep him guessing. After several minutes of this hide-and-seek routine, I'd gotten a reasonable bead on where I thought he was. A stack of rocks— that was heavily concealed by foliage, and I put a series of seven shots directly into that spot. At no point did I see the sniper's profile in the scope of the Dragonoff, nor, after nailing those shots home, did I spot anything to indicate that I'd taken him out. All I can say for certain is that after unloading the better part of a magazine into the place where I thought he'd wedged himself, the gunfire subsided and Copus's tarp stopped absorbing rounds. With the job taken care of, at least for the moment, I looked up at Copus, who appeared grateful for the help, even if he was still wondering about my sanity. You good? I asked him. You got ammo? I'm good for now, he called down. Okay, dude, now listen to me, I said. The Afghan army guys have abandoned their positions, so there's just one thing blocking the Taliban from rolling in off the east side. Right now, you are the only gun in this fight, and the only guy who was watching our back door. Do you get that? As he confirmed that he understood, our exchange was interrupted by a series of sharp concussions, one after the other, coming from beyond the aid station toward the western side of camp, where Hart and his team were. 
My God, Hart, what have you done? I wondered as I peeled away from Copus's gun truck and started running west with the dragon off. When the enemy realized that Truck One was immobilized, they directed every ounce of fire they had at Hart's Humvee. As the body of the vehicle was struck from all sides, Hart realized that he and his team had very little time and almost zero options. Their best move, he decided, was that Faulkner and Griffin would make a run for it while he climbed into the turret and tried to lay down some cover fire for their escape. Hart was poised to get into the turret when Griffin opened the rear passenger door on the right side of the vehicle and jumped out. This exposed him to the enemy gunners, who were preparing to storm the front gate, and they were on him so fast that several of the rounds they were firing at him went into the Humvee before Hart could even shut the door. As with Michael Scusa and many of the other junior enlisted guys in Blue Platoon, I barely knew the first thing about Chris Griffin. We had probably spoken directly on less than a dozen occasions. What little I'd seen had impressed me. Unlike many of his peers, he didn't complain. He never seemed to get rattled, and he was always where he was supposed to be. But other than that, he was a bit of an enigma. Thanks to the predicament in which Griffin now found himself, neither I nor anyone else would ever be able to discover much about what happened during the final seconds of his life. But here's what I can say. Griffin's body wound up roughly a hundred yards away from where he stepped down from the truck, lying in an open spot of ground right outside the Shura building, which is the area where his killers were coming from, and therefore the last place toward which he should have been running. There's no way of knowing whether he was killed right next to the truck and then was dragged down toward the Shura building, or if he simply became so disoriented that he ended up running directly into the enemy. Those are details that we would never be able to assemble into anything that made sense. But we did piece together a picture of how he was killed. And by God, it was brutal. Griffin was shot twice in the face. The first bullet went through the left side of his temple, and the other punched through the left side of his jaw. Both caused extensive skull fractures, while tearing the inside of his brain into pieces. He took a third shot to his back, which shattered several of his ribs and blew out his liver. The fourth shot fractured his left forearm, while the fifth shattered his right femur. The sixth and seventh went through his left buttock, and the final round hit him in the left thigh. In all, he was shot eight separate times. It was a horrible and violent death, and perhaps its only note of grace is that it may have purchased a few additional seconds of breathing space for his two companions, although this is questionable, given that the main threat that Faulkner and Hart were now confronting was coming from the opposite side of the truck, where Faulkner had just spotted three Taliban by the laundry trailer. They were clad in Afghan security guard uniforms and one of them was taking aim with a rocket launcher. They're shooting at us, yelled Hart, as the rocket smacked directly into the driver's side windshield, penetrating the bulletproof glass and driving shards of shrapnel all along the left side of Faulkner's body, from his arm and shoulder blade down to his thigh. As Faulkner screamed in pain, Hart did his best to reassure him. You're good, you're good, he yelled. With the enemy now poised to swarm the truck, it was imperative that they evacuate. But there was no plan. 
other than the vague notion that Faulkner would exit on the driver's side, crouch down, then open the rear door on that side, which would shield him from fire while enabling Hart to get out. Instead, Faulkner, who was now so disoriented that he couldn't even figure out where his gun was, opened the door and simply started running. He had no idea where he was going. All he knew was that he needed to move as rapidly as he could, and that he wanted to get as far away from the Humvee as possible. Without even turning around to confirm whether Hart had made it out of the truck, he sprinted east as fast as his legs would carry him. It's hard now to imagine how Faulkner actually survived that mad dash, unarmed and blinded by pain, across the most exposed part of camp, around the mosque, down the alley between Red Barracks and the command post, and through the front door of the aid station. When he stumbled inside, he looked as if he'd just been dragged through hell on a chain. His face was lacerated and absolutely covered in blood. Even worse was his left arm, an arm that had already been flayed open two years earlier in a rock, and was now torn in the exact same places as before. They got me in the arm, he kept saying. They got me in my arm! While the medics set about patching him up, they tried to get Faulkner to share some information on what had happened, but he was so traumatized and confused that he wasn't able to share any details that made sense. He had no idea what had become of Griffin. He seemed to be under the vague impression that Hart might still be out there by himself, and perhaps still in the fight. But he couldn't offer a single coherent thought about where Hart might actually be. Nor could he provide any info on how the guys from Gallegos' team were faring. Suddenly, a voice could be heard coming over the radio. Holy fuck! cried Hart. Everyone in camp who was still alive and tuned to the Force Pro net heard what followed. They've got an RPG pointed right at me! Then the radio went dead. It's impossible to say whether the Taliban rocket team that Hart was staring at was part of the same group of men who had slaughtered Griffin just a few minutes earlier. It's also impossible to say whether Hart managed to get any shots of his own off before they unleashed their RPG. All we really know is that the rocket that they fired at him was an armor-defeating round, and that it punched through the rear door on the right side of the truck, spewing shrapnel everywhere. Somehow, Hart survived that blast and made it out of the truck, probably by scrambling through one of the two doors on the opposite side. Then he started running south in the direction of the maintenance shed, which was about five yards away from the truck. At some point during that desperate race, he was shot twice in the left side of his chest. One bullet passed through his left lung, diaphragm, and spleen before exiting his back, while the second shot shattered his first three ribs. He was also shot once in the left arm and once in the left leg. While all of those wounds caused extensive damage and blood loss, they probably didn't kill him. Instead, as we would later discover, he was finished off by three gunshots that were administered to the left side of his head. When I heard Hart's radio transmission, I knew nothing about what had happened to Griffin or Faulkner. My only goal as I raced away from Copus's gun truck, was to get to some place where I could see Hart and support him, and the best place to do that was the cafe, which afforded a view of the western end of camp 
and might enable me to get a sense of what was going on. When I posted up with the dragon off at the cafe's wall of sandbags, I could just barely see the back hatch of Elraz too, which looked like a scorched hunk of metal. There was no sign of any movement around it. As for Hart's gun truck, my line of sight to it was entirely blocked by a hippo, a huge water-holding tank that was located on the south side of the shower trailers. As I took in the scene, a movement in the foreground caught my eye. A trio of heavily armed Taliban fighters was emerging from around the back of Truck 2, the Humvee from which Jonathan Adams had been laying down fire with an M-19 grenade launcher during the first several minutes of the battle, before being forced to abandon his position. It was a three-man rocket team, and it was clear that they had come through the front gate and around the corner of the Shura building. The man in the front and the man in the rear both had chest rigs and were carrying AK-47s. The middle guy was toting an RPG on his shoulder, and he had a pack with his extra rounds strapped to his back. The RPG shooter was wearing a black headband with Arabic writing on it. As I took in these details, Yanis Lakis, the Latvian military advisor, moved into the cafe area and took a position by my left elbow. By this point, Lakis had abandoned his efforts to get the Afghan army soldiers under his supervision to help defend the camp. Instead, he'd concluded that the most effective thing he could do was link up with us and lend a hand. It was a decision that I welcomed, because, in addition to his skills and experience, he'd brought along his H&K G36 rifle, which was fitted with a 203 grenade launcher. Hey, Lakis, I asked softly. There's no way that these three guys could be your Afghan army dudes, is there? As Lakis shook his head, the man with the RPG rested his weapon on the back of the Humvee, leaned against the gun truck, and started making an adjustment to his headband. What shocked me even more than the presence of an enemy fighter standing directly in the center of camp was the casual manner in which he was behaving. He and his companions were stopping for a little tactical pause to catch their breath and regroup before continuing their advance. It was clear that they weren't expecting any resistance and that they had no idea they were being observed. Then it hit me. This was probably the team that had just taken out Hart. From where I was standing, the insurgents were roughly fifty yards away. Through the scope of the Dragonoff, however, the distance seemed to shrink to no more than about ten feet. The setup reminded me of what it used to be like at night back home on my dad's ranch when you shined a spotlight on some jackrabbits and they just froze and let you line up your shot. Damn, this is an absolute gimme, I thought, as I exhaled to steady the gun and curled my finger around the trigger. The man with the RPG had the biggest weapon, so my plan was to deal with him first, swing to the right to catch the second guy before he realized what was happening, then finish the job by picking off the third dude as he started his run. At such close range, the sniper rifle would probably fire a notch or two high. So as the RPG shooter finished messing with his headband and straightened up to present a full-on silhouette, I put the crosshairs of the scope at the bottom of his sternum, directly on the bony nub known as the xiphoid process, and touched off the shot. It turned out I was right. Instead of nailing the center of his thorax, the bullet tore through the man's left clavicle, just above his heart. 
as his two companions registered what was happening and exchanged an oh-shit look. I was already swinging right and dropping the front guy by punching him with two shots, one in the left lung and the second in the hip. As he went down, I swung left and tried to pop the third member of the team just as he bolted around to the back of the truck, where I could see him trying to hide between the wheels. Under normal circumstances, it would have been a simple matter to take him out by putting some rounds underneath the truck, which sat at least 18 inches off the ground. However, most of this clearance was obscured by a short terrace of stacked rocks that ran around the front of the truck. Knowing that I couldn't peg the insurgent with a straight shot, I started skipping rounds, aiming at the ground just a few feet in front of the truck in the hope that one of the bullets would bounce up into him. As I fired repeatedly, I could see the Taliban shooter making frantic motions along the ground with his hand, beckoning back toward the front gate, where it seemed likely that his companions were massing. Lakis, I called out. Hit him with your frickin' grenade! How far do you think? Lakis asked as he opened the breach and threw in a 203 round. Dunno. Can't be more than 50 meters. The grenade launcher gave off its distinctive dunk, and the snub-nosed projectile sailed across camp in a graceful little arc to land perfectly on the far side of the gun truck and detonate with a satisfying thump and crack. The Taliban soldier vanished. Fifty meters, exclaimed Lakis in his Schwarzenegger accent, nodding with approval. Yah. Looking back on that moment now, I suppose I should have been pleased at having taken out the guys who had probably nailed Hart. But at the time, I had more pressing things on my mind, chief among them the shocking realization that a team of enemy soldiers had just waltzed through our front gate. Up until that moment, I don't think I truly understood how compromised we were. The idea that we might be overrun was no longer just a dreadful possibility. It was actually happening. And what's more, the process had already started in earnest just uphill to my left, where an isolated little pocket of men that included Jones, Gregory, and Danily was struggling to hold the trench next to the mosque. This group included some of the youngest and least experienced soldiers in the outpost. Thanks to the fact that they didn't have a radio, they'd received no word of what was taking place elsewhere, including Hart's final transmission. And unbeknownst to me, they were about to confront an even bigger pack of Taliban. Part of the irony of Hart's failed rescue attempt is that his mission may have inadvertently triggered the very thing that he was trying to prevent, which was a concerted bid on the part of the enemy to breach the western part of our camp. Hart's high-centered Humvee had presented such a compelling target that it had encouraged several groups of fighters to pour through the wire from both the north and the south. With Truck One's team now taken out of the picture, those enemy fighters saw no reason not to keep pushing directly toward the center of camp, which put a group of them on a collision course with Jones's team in the trench. During the past ten minutes, the situation confronting Jones and his guys had gone from bad to worse. There were now almost half a dozen men inside the ditch, Jones and Gregory, plus Danley and his companions, and all of them were pinned down. The moment that one of them would raise his head or the barrel of his weapon above the lip of the trench, 
the enemy gunners along the ridge lines would direct a furious burst of fire in their direction. That was fearsome enough, but the grenades that had blown out the windows of the mosque next to them had also ignited a fire that was now consuming the building, and someone was evidently trapped inside. Jones and his companions had no idea who this might be, but judging from the wild, high-pitched screams that the man was emitting in either Pashto or Nuristani as he burned to death, he was an Afghan construction worker, an Afghan soldier, or perhaps even the imam himself. Despite the risks, Jones and his companions had been popping out of the trench every couple of minutes to return fire, usually selecting a different spot in order to confuse the enemy gunners. Okay, guys, Jones would say. Let's pop up real quick and see what's going on. No big deal. Up went their heads and their weapons. Sometimes they'd be able to put out some return fire. Other times they'd be driven back down by sniper fire before they could get off a shot. During one of these moments, Gregory spotted something. I see two dudes over by the showers, he exclaimed as he ducked down again. Jones had caught sight of them too. They were no more than fifteen feet away. Both men were clad in the brown man-jam robes that were standard-issue garb among civilians. Jones's first assumption was that they were Afghan workers who had somehow gotten trapped within the outpost. But they were so close that not only could he hear their voices, he could also detect the distinctive click-pop as they pulled the pins on the grenades they were preparing to throw. Holy shit, those are Taliban! he thought, inside our wire. With that, Jones, Gregory, and Danley popped up in unison, weapons raised, and took them down. Gregory fired almost fifty rounds from his saw, emptying an entire belt of ammo. A beat of relief quickly gave way to the realization that there surely must be more, a fact that was confirmed by the arrival of Kenny Days, a soldier with HQ platoon, who breathlessly slid into the trench with Kyle Knight. We've got guys on the cop, Days reported breathlessly. Days had just come from the Shura building after failing to hold his position there and being forced to fall back. On the way up to the trench leading to the mosque, he had met and locked eyes with a bearded Taliban fighter clad in a dirty overshirt and a white turban who was carrying an AK-47. The man was no more than 75 feet away. Both he and Days had raised their weapons to fire, but the Taliban's gun had jammed, while Days was too slow and didn't get off a shot until his target ducked back around the corner. Dude, of course we've got guys on the cop, thought Jones. Tell me something I don't know. That wasn't the only news Days had, however. Kirk didn't make it. He's dead, he reported. Then Days reached for his radio, keyed the mic, and said something that none of us had ever expected to hear, except maybe in a movie. Charlie in the wire, he yelled. Charlie in the wire! All over the outpost, guys on the Force Pro net found themselves doing a double take, and, despite the fact that the current state of battle represented a kind of nadir of direness, cracked a smile and shook their heads. Staff Sergeant Days had the less-than-stellar reputation of being a little slow, the kind of older guy who was, both literally and symbolically, 
perpetually a step or two behind everybody else. Days had been in the army for more than fifteen years, which was plenty long enough to earn him the label of a relic among most of the younger guys. And now, for reasons so unfathomable that it seemed pointless to even try to parse them, Days had pounded that reputation home by invoking a phrase lifted from the jungles of Vietnam and applying the thing to a firefight in the mountains of Afghanistan. This was one of the few comic relief moments in the day. Down inside the trench, however, one man didn't find this funny at all. Jones, who hadn't known that Kirk was dead, was filled with an implacable rage over the news that the man he had most looked up to, the person who had taught him the most about being a soldier, had just gotten smoked. It was the kind of rage that Kirk probably would have admired, because, in addition to being all-consuming, it refused to be corralled by prudence, instead demanding immediate release. And so, despite the fact that they were still pinned down, Jones rose up, laid down his machine gun, and started firing nonstop. This probably wasn't the smartest move in terms of conserving his shots for the inevitable moment when the Taliban decided to overwhelm the trench. But right then, Jones really didn't give a flying fuck about fire discipline. What's more, the need to conserve ammo vanished a few seconds later when a Taliban RPG drilled into the generator alongside the trench and set the damn thing on fire, producing a dense, black column of smoke that provided a perfect screen for the entire group to break contact by low-crawling to the north end of the trench and making a run for the barracks buildings. This fallback move, which they performed one at a time while covering one another, reflected a larger reality, which was that instead of pushing our lines out to retake the portions of the outpost that we'd lost during Hart's failed rescue attempt, we were doing the opposite and pulling farther in. Needless to say, this isn't the way you fight if you want to win. It's what you do if you're preparing to make a last stand.